Ascent of Mount Carmel by St. John of the Cross Treats of how the soul may prepare itself in order to attain in a short time to divine union. Gives very profitable counsels and instruction both to beginners and to proficients, that they may know how to disencumber themselves of all that is temporal, and not to encumber themselves with the spiritual, and to remain in complete detachment and liberty of spirit, as is necessary for divine union. Argument All the doctrine whereof I intend to treat in this ascent of Mount Carmel is included in the following stanzas, and in them is also described the manner of ascending to the summit of the mount, which is the higher state of perfection, which we here call union of the soul with God. And because I must continually base upon them that which I shall say, I have desired to set them down here together, to the end that all the substance of that which is to be written may be seen and comprehended together, although it will be fitting to set down each stanza separately before expounding it, and likewise the lines of each stanza, according as the matter and the exposition require. The poem, then, runs as follows. Stanzas Wherein the soul sings of the happy chance which it had in passing through the dark night of faith, in detachment and purgation of itself, to union with the Beloved. 1. On a dark night, kindled in love with yearnings, O oh, happy chance, I went forth without being observed, my house being now at rest. 2. In darkness and secure, by the secret ladder disguised, O oh, happy chance, in darkness and in concealment, my house being now at rest. 3. In the happy night, in secret, when none saw me, nor I beheld aught, without light or guide, save that which burned in my heart. 4. This light guided me more surely than the light of noonday, to the place where he, well I knew who, was awaiting me, a place where none appeared. 5. O oh, night that guided me, O oh, night more lovely than the dawn, O oh, night that joined beloved with lover, lover transformed in the beloved. 6. Upon my flowery breast, kept wholly for himself alone, there he stayed sleeping, and I caressed him, and the fanning of the cedars made a breeze. 7. The breeze blew from the turret as I parted his locks. With his gentle hand he wounded my neck and caused all my senses to be suspended. 8. I remained lost in oblivion. My face I reclined on the beloved. All ceased and I abandoned myself, leaving my cares forgotten among the lilies. Prologue in order to expound and describe this dark night through which the soul passes in order to attain to the divine light of the perfect union of the love of God, as far as is possible in this life, it would be necessary to have illumination of knowledge and experience other and far greater than mine, 
For this darkness and these trials, both spiritual and temporal, through which happy souls are wont to pass in order to be able to attain to this high estate of perfection, are so numerous and so profound that neither does human knowledge suffice for the understanding of them, nor experience for the description of them. For only he that passes this way can understand it, and even he cannot describe it. 2. Therefore, in order to say a little about this dark night, I shall trust neither to experience nor to knowledge, since both may fail and deceive. But while not omitting to make such use as I can of these two things, I shall avail myself in all that with the divine favour, I have to say, or at the least in that which is most important and dark to the understanding of divine scripture. For if we guide ourselves by this, we shall be unable to stray, since he who speaks therein is the Holy Spirit. And if ought I stray, whether through my imperfect understanding of that which is said in it, or of matters uncollected with it, it is not my intention to depart from the sound sense and doctrine of our Holy Mother the Catholic Church. For in such a case I submit and resign myself wholly, not only to her command, but to whatever better judgment she may pronounce concerning it. 3. To this end I have been moved not by any possibility that I see in myself of accomplishing so arduous a task, but by the confidence which I have in the Lord that He will help me to say something to relieve the great necessity which is experienced by many souls who, when they set out upon the road of virtue, and our Lord desires to bring them into this dark night, that they may pass through it to divine union, make no progress. At times this is because they have no desire to enter it or to allow themselves to be led into it, at other times, because they understand not themselves, and lack competent and alert directors, who will guide them to the summit. And so it is sad to see many souls to whom God gives both aptitude and favour with which to make progress, and who, if they would take courage, could attain to this higher state, remaining in an elementary stage of communion with God, for want of will or knowledge, or because there is none who will lead them in the right path, or teach them how to get away from these beginnings. And at length, although our Lord grants them such favour as to make them to go onward without this hindrance or that, they arrive at their goal very much later, and with greater labour, yet with less merit, because they have not conformed themselves to God and allowed themselves to be brought freely into the pure and sure road of union. For although it is true that God is leading them, and that He can lead them without their own help, they will not allow themselves to be led, and thus they make less progress, because they resist Him who is leading them, and they have less merit, because they apply not their will, and on this account they suffer more. For these are souls who, instead of committing themselves to God and making use of His help, rather hinder God by the indiscretion of their actions or by their resistance, like children who, when their mothers desire to carry them in their arms, start stamping and crying, and insist upon being allowed to walk, 
with the result that they can make no progress, and, if they advance at all, it is only at the pace of a child. For, wherefore, to the end that all, whether beginners or proficients, may know how to commit themselves to God's guidance, when His Majesty desires to lead them onward, we shall give instruction and counsel by His help, so that they may be able to understand His will, or at the least, allow Him to lead them. For some confessors and spiritual fathers, having no light and experience concerning these roads, are wont to hinder and harm such souls rather than to help them on the road. They are like the builders of Babel, who, when told to furnish suitable material, gave and applied other very different material, because they understood not the language, and thus nothing was done. Wherefore, it is a difficult and troublesome thing at such seasons for a soul not to understand itself, or to find none who understands it. For it will come to pass that God will lead the soul by a most lofty path of dark contemplation and aridity, wherein it seems to be lost, and, being thus full of darkness and trials, constraints and temptations, will meet one who will speak to it like Job's comforters, and say that it is suffering from melancholy or low spirits, or a morbid disposition, or that it may have some hidden sin, and that it is for this reason that God has forsaken it. Such comforters are wont to declare immediately that that soul must have been very evil, since such things as these are befalling it. 5. And there will likewise be those who tell the soul to retrace its steps, since it is finding no pleasure or consolation in the things of God as it did aforetime. And in this way they double the poor soul's trials. For it may well be that the greatest affliction which it is feeling is that of the knowledge of its own miseries, thinking that it sees itself, more clearly than daylight, to be full of evils and sins, for God gives it that light of knowledge in that night of contemplation, as we shall presently show. And when the soul finds someone whose opinion agrees with its own, and who says that these things must be due to its own fault, its affliction and trouble increases infinitely, and are wont to become more grievous than death. And, not content with this, such confessors, thinking that these things proceed from sin, make these souls go over their lives, and cause them to make many general confessions, and crucify them afresh, not understanding that this may quite well not be the time for any of such things, and that their penitence should be left in the state of purgation which God gives them, and be comforted and encouraged to desire it until God be pleased to dispose otherwise. For until that time, no matter what the souls themselves may do and their confessors may say, there is no remedy for them. 6. This, with the divine favour, we shall consider hereafter, and also how the soul should conduct itself at such a time, and how the confessor must treat it, and what signs there will be whereby it may be known, if this is the purgation of the soul, and, in such case, whether it be of sense or of spirit, which is the dark night whereof we speak, 
and how it may be known if it be melancholy or some other imperfection with respect to sense or to spirit. For there may be some souls who will think, or whose confessors will think, that God is leading them along this road of the dark night of spiritual purgation, whereas they may possibly be suffering only from some of the imperfections aforementioned. And again, there are many souls who think that they have no aptitude for prayer, when they have very much, and there are others who think that they have much when they have hardly any. 7. There are other souls who labour and weary themselves to a piteous extent, and yet go backward, seeking profit in that which is not profitable, but is rather a hindrance, and there are still others who, by remaining at rest and in quietness, continue to make great progress. There are others who are hindered and disturbed and make no progress because of the very consolations and favours that God is granting them in order that they may make progress. And there are many other things on this road that befall those who follow it, both joys and afflictions and hopes and griefs, some proceeding from the spirit of perfection and others from imperfection. Of all these, with the divine favour, we shall endeavour to say something, so that each soul who reads this may be able to see something of the road that he ought to follow, if he aspire to attain to the summit of this mount. 8. And since this introduction relates to the dark night through which the soul must go to God, let not the reader marvel if it seem to him somewhat dark also. This, I believe, will be so at the beginning when he begins to listen, but as he passes on he will find himself understanding the first part better, since one part will explain another, and then, if he listen to it a second time, I believe it will seem clearer to him and the instruction will appear sounder, and if any persons find themselves disagreeing with this instruction, it will be due to my ignorance and poor style." for in itself the matter is good and of the first importance. But I think that, even were it written in a more excellent and perfect manner than it is, only the minority would profit by it, for we shall not here set down things that are very moral and delectable for all spiritual persons who desire to travel toward God by pleasant and delectable ways, but solid and substantial instruction— as well suited to one kind of person as to another, if they desire to pass to the detachment of spirit which is here treated. 9. Nor is my principal intent to address all, but rather certain persons of our sacred order of Mount Carmel, of the primitive observance, both friars and nuns, since they have desired me to do so, to whom God is granting the favour of setting them on the road to this mount, who, as they are already detached from the temporal things of this world, will better understand the instruction concerning detachment of spirit. The First Book Wherein is described the nature of dark night, and how necessary it is to pass through it to divine union, and in particular this book describes the dark night of sense and desire and the evils which these work in the soul.
Chapter One sets down the first stanza, describes two different nights through which spiritual persons pass according to the two parts of man, the lower and the higher. Expounds the stanza which follows: On a dark night, kindled in love with yearnings, oh happy chance! I went forth without being observed, my house being now at rest. In this first stanza, the soul sings of the happy fortune and chance which it experienced in going forth from all things that are without, and from the desires and imperfections that are in the sensual part of man. Because of the disordered state of his reason, for the understanding of this, it must be known that for a soul to attain to the state of perfection, it has ordinarily first to pass through two principal kinds of night, which spiritual persons call purgations or purifications of the soul, and here we call them nights, for in both of them the soul journeys, as it were, by night in darkness. Two. The first night or purgation is of the sensual part of the soul, which is treated in the present stanza and will be treated in the first part of this book, and the second is of the spiritual part. Of this speaks the second stanza, which follows, and of this we shall treat likewise in the second and the third part, with respect to the activity of the soul, and in the fourth part with respect to its passivity. Three. And this first night pertains to beginners, occurring at the time when God begins to bring them into the state of contemplation. In this night, the spirit likewise has a part, as we shall say in due course. And the second night or purification pertains to those who are already proficient, occurring at the time when God desires to bring them to the state of union with God. And this latter night is a more obscure and dark and terrible purgation, as we shall say afterwards. Four, briefly, then, the soul means by this stanza that it went forth, being led by God, for love of Him alone, enkindled in love of Him upon a dark night, which is the privation and purgation of all its sensual desires, with respect to all outward things of the world. And to those which were delectable to its flesh, and likewise with respect to the desires of its will, this all comes to pass in this purgation of sense, for which cause the soul says that it went forth while its house was still at rest, which house is its sensual part, the desires being at rest and asleep in it, as it is to them. For there is no going forth from the pains and afflictions of the secret places of the desires until these be mortified and put to sleep, and this the soul says was a happy chance for it, namely its going forth without being observed, that is without any desire of its flesh or any other thing being able to hinder it, and likewise because it went out by night. Which signifies the privation of all these things wrought in it by God, which privation was night for it. Five, and it was a happy chance that God should lead it into this night, from which there came to it so much good, for of itself the soul would not have succeeded in entering therein, because no man of himself 
can succeed in voiding himself of all his desires in order to come to God. 6. This is, in brief, the exposition of the stanza, and we shall now have to go through it line by line, setting down one line after another, and expounding that which pertains to our purpose. And the same method is followed in the other stanzas, as I said in the prologue, namely that each stanza will be set down and expounded, and afterwards each line. Chapter 2 explains the nature of this dark night through which the soul says that it has passed on the road to union. On a dark night. We may say that there are three reasons for which this journey made by the soul to union with God is called night. The first has to do with the point from which the soul goes forth, for it has gradually to deprive itself of desire for all the worldly things which it possessed, by denying them to itself. The which denial and deprivation are, as it were, night to all the senses of man. The second reason has to do with the mean, or the road along which the soul must travel to this union, that is, faith, which is likewise as dark as night to the understanding. The third has to do with the point to which it travels, namely God, who equally is dark night to the soul in this life. These three nights must pass through the soul, or rather the soul must pass through them, in order that it may come to divine union with God. 2. In the book of the Holy Tobias, these three kinds of night were shadowed forth by the three nights which, as the angel commanded, were to pass ere the youth Tobias should be united with his bride. In the first he commanded him to burn the heart of the fish in the fire, which signifies the heart that is affectioned to and set upon the things of the world, which, in order that one may begin to journey toward God, must be burned and purified from all that is creature in the fire of the love of God. And in this purgation the devil flees away, for he has power over the soul only when it is attached to things corporeal and temporal. 3. On the second night the angel told him that he would be admitted into the company of the holy patriarchs, who are the fathers of the faith. For, passing through the first night, which is self-privation of all objects of sense, the soul at once enters into the second night, and abides alone in faith to the exclusion not of charity, but of other knowledge acquired by the understanding, as we shall say hereafter, which is a thing that pertains not to sense. 4. On the third night the angel told him that he would obtain a blessing, which is God, who, by means of the second night, which is faith, continually communicates himself to the soul in such a secret and intimate manner that he becomes another knight to the soul, inasmuch as this said communication is far darker than those others, as we shall say presently. And when this third night is past, which is the complete accomplishment of the communication of God in the Spirit, which is ordinarily wrought in great darkness of the soul, there then follows its union with the bride, which is the wisdom of God. Even so, the angel said likewise to Tobias that, when the third night was past, he should be united with his bride in the fear of the Lord, for, 
When this fear of God is perfect, love is perfect, and this comes to pass when the transformation of the soul is wrought through its love. 5. These three parts of the night are all one night, but after the manner of night it has three parts. For the first part, which is that of sense, is comparable to the beginning of night, the point at which things begin to fade from sight. And the second part, which is faith, is comparable to midnight, which is total darkness. And the third part is like the close of night, which is God, the which part is now near to the light of day. And, that we may understand this the better, we shall treat of each of these reasons separately as we proceed. Chapter 3 Speaks of the first cause of this night, which is that of the privation of the desire in all things, and gives the reason for which it is called night. We here describe as night the privation of every kind of pleasure which belongs to the desire, for even as night is naught but the privation of light, and, consequently, of all objects that can be seen by means of light, whereby the visual faculty remains unoccupied and in darkness, even so, likewise, the mortification of desire may be called night to the soul. For when the soul is deprived of the pleasure of its desire in all things, it remains, as it were, unoccupied and in darkness. For even as the visual faculty, by means of light, is nourished and fed by objects which can be seen, and which, when the light is quenched, are not seen, even so, by means of the desire, the soul is nourished and fed by all things wherein it can take pleasure according to its faculties, and, when this also is quenched, or rather mortified, the soul ceases to feed upon the pleasure of all things, and thus, with respect to its desire, it remains unoccupied and in darkness. 2. Let us take an example from each of the faculties. When the soul deprives its desire of the pleasure of all that can delight the sense of hearing, the soul remains unoccupied and in darkness with respect to this faculty. And, when it deprives itself of the pleasure of all that can please the sense of sight, it remains unoccupied and in darkness with respect to this faculty also. And, when it deprives itself of the pleasure of all the sweetness of perfumes which can give it pleasure through the sense of smell, it remains equally unoccupied and in darkness according to this faculty. And, if it also denies itself the pleasure of all food that can satisfy the palate, the soul likewise remains unoccupied and in darkness. And finally, when the soul mortifies itself with respect to all the delights and pleasures that it can receive from the sense of touch, it remains in the same way unoccupied and in darkness with respect to this faculty. So that the soul that has denied and thrust away from itself the pleasures which come from all these things, and has mortified its desire with respect to them, may be said to be, as it were, in the darkness of night, which is naught else than an emptiness within itself of all things. 3. The reason for this is that, as the philosophers say, the soul, as soon as God infuses it into the body, 
is like a smooth blank board upon which nothing is painted, and save for that which is experiences through the senses, nothing is communicated to it in the course of nature from any other source. And thus, for as long as it is in the body, it is like one who is in a dark prison and who knows nothing, save what he is able to see through the windows of the said prison. And if he saw nothing through them, he would see nothing in any other way. And thus the soul, save for that which is communicated to it through the senses, which are the windows of its prison, could acquire nothing in the course of nature in any other way. 4. Wherefore, if the soul rejects and denies that which it can receive through the senses, we can quite well say that it remains, as it were, in darkness and empty, since, as appears from what has been said, no light can enter it in the course of nature by any other means of illumination than those aforementioned. For, although it is true that the soul cannot help hearing and seeing and smelling and tasting and touching, this is of no greater import, nor, if the soul denies and rejects the object, it is hindered more than if it saw it not, heard it not, etc. Just so a man who desires to shut his eyes will remain in darkness, like the blind man who has not the faculty of sight. And to this purpose David says these words, I am poor, and in labours from my youth. He calls himself poor, although it is clear that he was rich, because his will was not set upon riches, and thus it was as though he were really poor. But if he had not been really poor, and had not been so in his will, he would not have been truly poor, for his soul, as far as its desire was concerned, would have been rich and replete. For that reason we call this detachment night to the soul— for we are not treating here of the lack of things, since this implies no detachment on the part of the soul if it has a desire for them, but we are treating of the detachment from them of the taste and desire, for it is this that leaves the soul free and void of them, although it may have them. For it is not the things of this world that either occupy the soul or cause it harm, since they enter it not, but rather the will and desire for them, for it is these that dwell within it. 5. This first kind of night, as we shall say hereafter, belongs to the soul according to its sensual part, which is one of the two parts, whereof we spoke above, through which the soul must pass in order to attain to union. 6. Let us now say how meet it is for the soul to go forth from its house into this dark night of sense, in order to travel to union with God. Chapter 4 Wherein is declared how necessary it is for the soul truly to pass through this dark night of sense, which is mortification of desire, in order that it may journey to union with God. The reason for which it is necessary for the soul, in order to attain to divine union with God, to pass through this dark night of mortification of the desires and denial of pleasures in all things, 
is because all the affections which it has for creatures are pure darkness in the eyes of God, and when the soul is clothed in these affections, it has no capacity for being enlightened and possessed by the pure and simple light of God, if it first cast them not from it. For light cannot agree with darkness, since, as St. John says, the darkness could not receive the light. Two, the reason is that two contraries, even as philosophy teaches us, cannot coexist in one person, and the darkness, which is affection set upon the creatures, and light, which is God, are contrary to each other, and have no likeness or accord between one another, even as St. Paul taught the Corinthians, saying, What communion can there be between light and darkness? Hence it is that the light of divine union cannot dwell in the soul if these affections first flee not away from it. 3. In order that we may the better prove what has been said, it must be known that the affection and attachment which the soul has for creatures renders the soul like to these creatures, and the greater is its affection, the closer is the equality and likeness between them, for love creates a likeness between that which loves and that which is loved. For which reason David, speaking of those who set their affections upon idols, said thus, Let them that set their heart upon them be like to them. And thus he that loves a creature becomes as low as that creature, and in some ways lower, for love not only makes the lover equal to the object of his love, but even subjects him to it. Hence, in the same way, it comes to pass that the soul that loves anything else becomes incapable of pure union with God and transformation in him. For the lower state of the creature is much less capable of union with the higher state of the Creator than is darkness with light. For all things of earth and heaven compared with God are nothing. As Jeremiah says in these words, I beheld the earth, and it was void, and it was nothing, and the heavens, and saw that they had no light. In saying that he beheld the earth void, he means that all its creatures were nothing, and that the earth was nothing likewise. And, in saying that he beheld the heavens and saw no light in them, he says that all the luminaries of heaven, compared with God, are pure darkness. So that in this way all the creatures are nothing, and their affections, we may say, are less than nothing, since they are an impediment to transformation in God and the privation thereof, even as darkness is not only nothing, but less than nothing, since it is privation of light. And even as he that is in darkness comprehends not the light, so the soul that sets its affection upon creatures will be unable to comprehend God, and until it be purged, it will neither be able to possess him here below, through pure transformation of love, nor yonder in clear vision." And, for greater clarity, we will now speak in greater detail. 4. All the being of creation, then, compared with the infinite being of God, is nothing. 
and therefore the soul that sets its affection upon the being of creation is likewise nothing in the eyes of God, and less than nothing. For, as we have said, love makes equality and similitude, and even sets the lover below the object of his love. And therefore such a soul will in no wise be able to attain to union with the infinite being of God. For that which is not can have no communion with that which is. And, coming down in detail to some examples, all the beauty of the creatures compared with the infinite beauty of God is the height of deformity. Even as Solomon says in the Proverbs, favor is deceitful and beauty is vain. And thus the soul that is affection to the beauty of any creature is the height of deformity in the eyes of God. And therefore this soul that is deformed will be unable to become transformed in beauty, which is God, since deformity cannot attain to beauty, and all the grace and beauty of the creatures compared with the grace of God is the height of misery and of uncomeliness. Wherefore the soul that is ravished by the graces and beauties of the creature has only supreme misery and unattractiveness in the eyes of God, and thus it cannot be capable of the infinite grace and loveliness of God, for that which has no grace is far removed from that which is infinitely gracious. And all the goodness of the creatures of the world, in comparison with the infinite goodness of God, may be described as wickedness. For there is naught good save only God, and therefore the soul that sets its heart upon the good things of the world is supremely evil in the eyes of God. And even as wickedness comprehends not goodness, even so such a soul cannot be united with God, who is supreme goodness. 5. All the wisdom of the world and all human ability compared with the infinite wisdom of God are pure and supreme ignorance. Even as St. Paul writes, The wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. Wherefore any soul that makes account of all its knowledge and ability in order to come to union with the wisdom of God is supremely ignorant in the eyes of God and will remain far removed from that wisdom. For ignorance knows not what wisdom is, even as St. Paul says that this wisdom seems foolishness to God, since in the eyes of God those who consider themselves to be persons with a certain amount of knowledge are very ignorant, so that the Apostle, writing to the Romans, says of them, Professing themselves to be wise, they became foolish. And those alone acquire wisdom of God who are like ignorant children, and, laying aside their knowledge, walk in his service with love. This manner of wisdom St. Paul taught, If any man among you seem to be wise, let him become ignorant that he may be wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. So that, in order to come to union with the wisdom of God, the soul has to proceed rather by unknowing than by knowing, and all the dominion and liberty of the world, compared with the liberty and dominion of the Spirit of God, is the most abject slavery, affliction, and captivity. 6. Wherefore the soul that is enamoured of prelacy, 
or of any other such office, and longs for liberty of desire, is considered and treated, in the sight of God, not as a son, but as a base slave and captive, since it has not been willing to accept his holy doctrine, wherein he teaches us that whoso would be greater must be less, and whoso would be less must be greater. And therefore such a soul will be unable to attain to that true liberty of spirit which is attained in his divine union. For slavery can have no part with liberty, and liberty cannot dwell in a heart that is subject to desires, for this is the heart of a slave. But it dwells in the free man, because he has the heart of a son. It was for this cause that Sarah bade her husband Abraham cast out the bondwoman and her son, saying that the son of the bondwoman should not be heir with the son of the free woman. 7. And all the delights and pleasures of the will in all the things of the world, in comparison with all those delights which are God, are supreme affliction, torment, and bitterness. And thus he that sets his heart upon them is considered, in the sight of God, as worthy of supreme affliction, torment, and bitterness. And thus he will be unable to attain to the delights of the embrace of union with God, since he is worthy of affliction and bitterness. All the wealth and glory of all creation, in comparison with the wealth which is God, is supreme poverty and wretchedness. Thus the soul that loves and possesses creature wealth is supremely poor and wretched in the sight of God, and for that reason will be unable to attain to that wealth and glory which is the state of transformation in God. For that which is miserable and poor is supremely far removed from that which is supremely rich and glorious. 8. And therefore divine wisdom, grieving for such as these, who make themselves vile, low, miserable, and poor, because they love the things in this world which seem to them so rich and beautiful, addresses an exclamation to them in the Proverbs, saying, O ye men to who I call, and my voice is to the sons of men, attend, little ones, to subtlety and sagacity, ye that are foolish take notice. Here, for I have to speak of great things. With me are riches and glory, high riches and justice. Better is the fruit that ye will find in me than gold and precious stones. And my generation, namely that which ye will engender of me in your souls, is better than choice silver. I walk in the ways of justice, in the midst of the paths of judgment, that I may enrich those that love me and fill their treasures perfectly. Herein divine wisdom speaks to all those that set their hearts and affections upon anything of the world, according as we have already said, and she calls them little ones, because they make themselves like to that which they love, which is little, and therefore she tells them to be subtle and to take note that she is treating of great things and not of things that are little like themselves, that the great riches and the glory that they love are with her and in her, and not where they think, and that high riches and justice dwell in her. For although they think the things of this world to be all this, she tells them to take note that her things are better, 
saying that the fruit that they will find in them will be better for them than gold and precious stones, and that which she engenders in souls is better than the choice silver which they love, by which is understood any kind of affection that can be possessed in this life. Chapter 5 Wherein the aforementioned subject is treated and continued, and it is shown by passages and figures from Holy Scripture how necessary it is for the soul to journey to God through this dark night of the mortification of desire in all things. From what has been said, it may be seen in some measure how great a distance there is between all that the creatures are in themselves and that which God is in Himself, and how souls that set their affections upon any of these creatures are at as great a distance as they from God. For, as we have said, love produces equality and likeness. This distance was clearly realized by St. Augustine, who said in the soliloquies, speaking with God, Miserable man that I am! When will my littleness and imperfection be able to have fellowship with thy uprightness? Thou indeed art good, and I am evil. Thou art merciful, and I am impious. Thou art holy, I am miserable. Thou art just, I am unjust. Thou art light, I am blind. Thou life, I death. Thou medicine, I sick. Thou supreme truth, I utter vanity. All this is said by this saint. 2. Wherefore it is supreme ignorance for the soul to think that it will be able to pass to this higher state of union with God, if first it void not the desire of all things, natural and supernatural, which may hinder it, according as we shall explain hereafter. For there is the greatest possible distance between these things and that which comes to pass in this estate, which is naught else than transformation in God. For this reason our Lord, when showing us this path, said through St. Luke, He that renounces not all things that he possesses with his will cannot be my disciple. And this is evident, for the doctrine that the Son of God came to teach was contempt for all things, whereby a man might receive as a reward the Spirit of God in himself. For as long as the soul rejects not all things, it has no capacity to receive the Spirit of God in pure transformation. 3. Of this we have a figure in Exodus, wherein we read that God gave not the children of Israel the food from heaven, which was manna, until the flour which they had brought from Egypt failed them. By this is signified that, first of all, it is meet to renounce all things, for this angel's food is not fitting for the palate that would find delight in the food of men. And not only does the soul become incapable of receiving the divine spirit, when it stays and pastures on other strange pleasures, but those souls greatly offend the divine majesty who desire spiritual food and are not content with God alone, but desire rather to intermingle desire and affection for other things. This can likewise be seen in the same book of Holy Scripture, wherein it is said that, not content with that simplest of food, 
they desired and craved fleshly food, and that our Lord was greatly wroth that they should desire to intermingle a food that was so base and so coarse with one that was so noble and so simple, which, though it was so, had within itself the sweetness and substance of all foods. Wherefore, while they yet had the morsels in their mouths, as David says, likewise, the wrath of God came down upon them, sending fire from heaven and consuming many thousands of them, for God held it an unworthy thing that they should have a desire for other food when he had given them food from heaven. 4. Oh, did spiritual persons but know how much good and what great abundance of spirit they lose through not seeking to raise up their desires above childish things, and how in this simple spiritual food they would find the sweetness of all things if they desired not to taste those things. But such food gives them no pleasure, for the reason why the children of Israel received not the sweetness of all foods that was contained in the manna was that they would not reserve their desire for it alone, so that they failed to find in the manna all the sweetness and strength that they could wish, not because it was not contained in the manna, but because they desired some other thing. Thus, he that will love some other thing together with God of a certainty makes little account of God, for he weighs in the balance against God that which, as we have said, is at the greatest possible distance from God. 5. It is well known by experience that when the will of a man is affection to one thing, he prizes it more than any other. Although some other thing may be much better, he takes less pleasure in it. And if he wishes to enjoy both, he is bound to wrong the more important, because he makes an equality between them. Wherefore, since there is naught that equals God, the soul that loves some other thing together with him, or clings to it, does him a grievous wrong. And if this is so, what would it be doing if it loved anything more than God? 6. It is this, too, that was denoted by the command of God to Moses, that he should ascend the mount to speak with him. He commanded him not only to ascend it alone, leaving the children of Israel below, but not even to allow the beasts to feed over against the mount. By this he signified that the soul that is to ascend this mount of perfection to commune with God must not only renounce all things and leave them below, but must not even allow the desires, which are the beasts, to pasture over against this mount, that is, upon other things which are not purely God, in whom, that is, in the state of perfection, every desire ceases. So he that journeys on the road and makes the ascent to God must needs be habitually careful to quell and mortify the desires, and the greater the speed wherewith a soul does this, the sooner will it reach the end of its journey. Until these be quelled, it cannot reach the end, however much it practice the virtues, since it is unable to attain to perfection in them. For this perfection consists in voiding and stripping and purifying the soul of every desire. Of this we have another very striking figure in Genesis, where we read that when the patriarch Jacob desired to ascend Mount Bethel, 
in order to build an altar there to God whereon he should offer him sacrifice, he first commanded all his people to do three things. One was that they should cast away from them all strange gods, the second that they should purify themselves, the third that they should change their garments. 7. By these three things it is signified that any soul that will ascend this mount in order to make of itself an altar whereon it may offer to God the sacrifice of pure love and praise and pure reverence must, before ascending to the summit of the mount, have done these three things aforementioned perfectly. First, it must cast away all strange gods, namely all strange affections and attachments. Secondly, it must purify itself of the remnants which the desires aforementioned have left in the soul by means of the dark night of sense whereof we are speaking, habitually denying them and repenting itself of them. And thirdly, in order to reach the summit of this high mount, it must have changed its garments, which, through its observance of the first two things, God will change for it from old to new, by giving it a new understanding of God in God, the old human understanding being cast aside, and a new love of God in God, the will being now stripped of all its old desires and human pleasures, and the soul being brought into a new state of knowledge and profound delight, all other old images and forms of knowledge having been cast away, and all that belongs to the old man, which is the aptitude of the natural self, quelled, and the soul clothed with a new supernatural aptitude with respect to all its faculties, so that its operation, which before was human, has become divine, which is that that is attained in the state of union, wherein the soul becomes naught else than an altar, whereon God is adored in praise and love, and God alone is upon it. For this cause God commanded that the altar whereon the Ark of the Covenant was to be laid should be hollow within, so that the soul may understand how completely empty of all things God desires it to be, that it may be an altar worthy of the presence of His Majesty. On this altar it was likewise forbidden that there should be any strange fire, or that its own fire should ever fail. And so essential was this, that because Nadab and Abayu, who were the sons of the high priest Aaron, offered strange fire upon his altar, our Lord was wroth and slew them there before the altar. By this we are to understand that the love of God must never fail in the soul, so that the soul may be a worthy altar, and so that no other love must be mingled with it. 8. God permits not that any other thing should dwell together with him. Wherefore we read in the first book, The Kings, that when the Philistines put the Ark of the Covenant into the temple where their idol was, the idol was cast down upon the ground at the dawn of each day, and broken to pieces. And he permits and wills that there should be only one desire where he is, which is to keep the law of God perfectly, and to bear upon oneself the cross of Christ. And thus naught else is said in the divine scripture to have been commanded by God to be put in the ark where the manna was, save the book of the law, and the rod Moses, which signifies the cross. 
For the soul that aspires naught else than the keeping of the law of the Lord perfectly and the bearing of the cross of Christ will be a true ark, containing within itself the true manner, which is God, when that soul attains to a perfect possession within itself of this law and this rod without any other thing soever. Chapter 6 Wherein are treated two serious evils caused in the soul by the desires, the one evil being privative and the other positive. In order that what we have said may be the more clearly and fully understood, it will be well to set down here and state how these desires are the cause of two serious evils in the soul. The one is that they deprive it of the Spirit of God, and the other is that the soul wherein they dwell is wearied, tormented, darkened, defiled, and weakened, according to that which is said in Jeremiah's chapter 2, They have forsaken me, who am the fountain of living water, and they have hewed them out broken cisterns that can hold no water. Those two evils, namely the privative and the positive, may be caused by any disordered act of the desire. And, speaking first of all of the privative, it is clear from the very fact that the soul becomes affection to a thing which comes under the head of creature, that the more the desire for that thing fills the soul, the less capacity has the soul for God. Inasmuch as two contraries, according to the philosophers, cannot coexist in one person, and further, since, as we said in the fourth chapter, affection for God and affection for creatures are contraries, there cannot be contained within one will affection for creatures and affection for God. For what has the creature to do with the Creator? What has sensual to do with spiritual? Visible with invisible, temporal with eternal? Food that is heavenly, spiritual, and pure with food that is of sense alone and is purely sensual? Christ-like poverty of spirit, with attachment to aught soever. 2. Wherefore, as in natural generation no form can be introduced unless the preceding, contrary form is first expelled from the subject, which form, while present, is an impediment to the other by reason of the contrariety which the two have between each other, even so, for as long as the soul is subjected to the sensual spirit, the spirit which is pure and spiritual cannot enter it. Wherefore our Saviour said through St. Matthew, It is not meet to take the children's bread and to cast it to the dogs. And elsewhere, too, he says through the same evangelist, Give not that which is holy to the dogs. In these passages our Lord compares those who renounce their creature desires and prepare themselves to receive the Spirit of God in purity to the children of God, and those who would have their desire feed upon the creatures, two dogs. For it is given to children to eat with their father at table and from his dish, which is to feed upon his spirit, and to dogs are given the crumbs which fall from the table. 3. From this we are to learn that all created things are crumbs that have fallen from the table of God. 
wherefore he that feeds ever upon the creatures is rightly called a dog, and therefore the bread is taken from the children, because they desire not to rise above feeding upon the crumbs, which are created things, to the uncreated spirit of their father. Therefore, like dogs, they are ever hungering, and justly so, because the crumbs serve to whet their appetite rather than to satisfy their hunger. And thus David says of them, They shall suffer hunger like dogs, and shall go round about the city, and if they find not enough to fill them, they shall murmur. For this is the nature of one that has desires, that he is ever discontented and dissatisfied, like one that suffers hunger. For what has the hunger which all the creatures suffer to do with the fullness which is caused by the Spirit of God? Wherefore this fullness that is uncreated cannot enter the soul, if there be not first cast out that other created hunger which belongs to the desire of the soul. For, as we have said, two contraries cannot dwell in one person, the which contraries in this case are hunger and fullness. 4. From what has been said, it will be seen how much greater is the work of God in the cleansing and the purging of a soul from these contrarieties than in the creating of that soul from nothing. For the contrarieties, these contrary desires and affections, are more completely opposed to God and offer Him greater resistance than does nothingness, for nothingness resists not at all. And let this suffice with respect to the first of the important evils which are inflicted upon the soul by the desires, namely, resistance to the Spirit of God, since much has been said of this above. 5. Let us now speak of the second effect which they cause in the soul. This is of many kinds, because the desires weary the soul, and torment and darken it, and defile it, and weaken it. Of these five things, we shall speak separately in their turn. 6. With regard to the first, it is clear that the desires weary and fatigue the soul, for they are like restless and discontented children, who are ever demanding this or that from their mother, and are never contented. And even as one that digs because he covets a treasure is wearied and fatigued, even so is the soul weary and fatigued, in order to attain that which its desires demand of it. And although in the end it may attain it, it is still weary, because it is never satisfied. For, after all, the cisterns which it is digging are broken, and cannot hold water to satisfy thirst. And thus, as Isaiah says, His desire is empty, and the soul that has desires is wearied and fatigued. For it is like a man that is sick of a fever, who finds himself no better until the fever leaves him, and whose thirst increases with every moment. For, as is said in the book of Job, when he has satisfied his desire, he will be the more oppressed and straitened. The heat of desire hath increased in his soul, and thus every sorrow will fall upon him. The soul is wearied and fatigued by its desires, because it is wounded and moved and disturbed by them, as is water by the winds. In just the same way they disturb it, allowing it not to rest in any place or in any thing soever.
And of such a soul, says Isaiah, the heart of the wicked man is like the sea when it rages. And he is a wicked man that conquers not his desires. The soul that would fain satisfy its desires grows wearied and fatigued, for it is like one that, being an hungered, opens his mouth that he may sate himself with wind, whereupon instead of being satisfied his craving becomes greater, for the wind is no food for him. To this purpose, said Jeremiah, in the desire of his will he snuffed up the wind of his affection. And he then tries to describe the aridity wherein such a soul remains, and warns it, saying, Keep thy foot, that is, thy thought, from being bare, and thy throat from thirst, that is to say, thy will from the indulgence of the desire which causes greater dryness, and, even as the lover is wearied and fatigued upon the day of his hopes when his attempt has proved to be vain, so the soul is wearied and fatigued by all its desires and by indulgence in them, since they all cause it greater emptiness and hunger. For, as is often said, desire is like the fire which increases as wood is thrown upon it, and which, when it has consumed the wood, must needs die. 7. And in this regard it is still worse with desire, for the fire goes down when the wood is consumed, but desire, though it increases when fuel is added to it, decreases not correspondingly when the fuel is consumed. On the contrary, instead of going down, as does the fire when its fuel is consumed, it grows weak through weariness, for its hunger is increased and its food diminished. And of this Isaiah speaks, saying, He shall turn to the right hand, and shall be hungry, and he shall eat on the left hand, and shall not be filled. For they that mortify not their desires, when they turn, justly see the fullness of the sweetness of spirit of those who are at the right hand of God, which fullness is not granted to themselves, and justly, too, when they eat on the left hand by which is meant the satisfaction of their desire with some creature comfort, they are not filled, for, leaving aside that which alone can satisfy, they feed on that which causes them greater hunger. It is clear, then, that the desires weary and fatigue the soul. Chapter 7 Wherein is shown how the desires torment the soul, this is proved likewise by comparison and quotations. The second kind of positive evil which the desires cause the soul is in their tormenting and afflicting of it, after the manner of one who is in torment through being bound with cords from which he has no relief until he be freed. And of these David says, The cords of my sins, which are my desires, have constrained me round about. And, even as one that lies naked upon thorns and briars is tormented and afflicted, even so is the soul tormented and afflicted when it rests upon its desires. For they take hold upon it, and distress it, and cause it pain, even as do thorns. Of these David says likewise, They compassed me about like bees, wounding me with their stings, and they were enkindled against me like fire among thorns. For in the desires which are the thorns increases the fire of anguish and torment, 
and even as the husbandman, coveting the harvest for which he hopes, afflicts and torments the ox in the plough, even so does concupiscence afflict a soul that is subject to its desire to attain that for which it longs. This can be clearly seen in that desire which Delilah had to know when Samson derived his strength that was so great, for the scripture says that it fatigued and tormented her so much that it caused her to swoon, almost to the point of death. 2. The more intense is the desire, the greater is the torment which it causes the soul, so that the torment increases with the desire, and the greater are the desires which possess the soul, the greater are its torments. For in such a soul is fulfilled, even in this life, that which is said in the Apocalypse concerning Babylon, in these words, As much as she has wished to exalt and fulfill her desires, so much give ye to her torment and anguish. And even as one that falls into the hands of his enemies is tormented and afflicted, even so is the soul tormented and afflicted that is led away by its desires. Of this there is a figure in the book of Judges, wherein it may be read that that strong man, Samson, who at one time was strong and free and a judge of Israel, fell into the power of his enemies, and they took his strength from him, and put out his eyes, and bound him in a mill to grind corn, wherein they tormented and afflicted him greatly. And thus it happens to the soul in which these, its enemies, the desires, live and rule. For the first thing that they do is to weaken the soul and blind it, as we shall say below. And then they afflict and torment it, binding it to the mill of concupiscence, and the bonds with which it is bound are its own desires. 3. Wherefore God, having compassion on these that, with such great labour and at such cost to themselves, go about endeavouring to satisfy the hunger and thirst of their desire in the creatures, says to them through Isaiah, All ye that have thirst of desire, come to the waters, and all ye that have no silver of your own will and desires, make haste, buy from me and eat. Come and buy from me wine and milk, that is, spiritual sweetness and peace, without the silver of your own will, and without giving me any labour in exchange for it, as ye give for your desires. Wherefore do ye give the silver of your will for that which is not bread, namely that of the divine spirit, and set the labour of your desires upon that which cannot satisfy you? Come, hearkening to me, and ye shall eat the good that ye desire, and your soul shall delight itself in fatness. 4. This attaining to fatness is a going forth from all pleasures of the creatures, for the creatures torment, but the Spirit of God refreshes. And thus he calls us through St. Matthew, saying, all ye that go about tormented, afflicted, and burdened with the burden of your cares and desires, go forth from them, come to me, and I will refresh you, and ye shall find for your souls the rest which your desires take from you, wherefore they are a heavy burden. Chapter 8 Wherein is shown how the desires darken and blind the soul.
The third evil that the desires cause in the soul is that they blind and darken it. Even as vapors darken the air and allow not the bright sun to shine, or as a mirror that is clouded over cannot receive within itself a clear image, or as water defiled by mud reflects not the visage of one that looks therein, even so the soul that is clouded by the desires is darkened in the understanding and allows neither the sun of natural reason nor that of the supernatural wisdom of God. To shine upon it and illumine it clearly, and thus David, speaking to this purpose, says, "Mine iniquities have taken hold upon me, and I could have no power to see." Two, and at this same time, when the soul is darkened in the understanding, it is benumbed also in the will, and the memory becomes dull and disordered in its due operation. For as these faculties in their operations depend upon the understanding, it is clear that when the understanding is impeded, they will become disordered and troubled. And thus David says, "My soul is sorely troubled," which is as much as to say, disordered in its faculties. For as we say, the understanding has no more capacity for receiving enlightenment from the wisdom of God than has the air. When it is dark, for receiving enlightenment from the sun, neither has the will any power to embrace God within itself in pure love, even as the mirror that is clouded with vapor has no power to reflect clearly within itself any visage, and even less power has the memory, which is clouded by the darkness of desire, to take clearly upon itself the form of the image of God. Just as the muddled water cannot show forth clearly the visage of one that looks at himself therein. Three, desire blinds and darkens the soul, for desire as such is blind, since of itself it has no understanding in itself. The reason being to it always, as it were, a child leading a blind man, and hence it comes to pass that whensoever the soul is guided by its desire, it becomes blind. For this is as if one that sees were guided by one that sees not, which is as it were for both to be blind, and that which follows from this is that which our Lord says through Saint Matthew: If the blind lead the blind, both fall into the pit. Of little use are its eyes to a moth, since desire for the beauty of the light dazzles it and leads it into the flame. And even so, we may say that one who feeds upon desire is like a fish that is dazzled, upon which the light acts rather as darkness, preventing it from seeing the snares which the fishermen are preparing for it. This is very well expressed by David himself, where he says of such persons, "There came upon them the fire, which burns with its heat and dazzles with its light." And it is this that desire does to the soul, in kindling its conupiscence and dazzling its understanding, so that it cannot see its light. For the cause of its being thus dazzled is that when another light of a different kind is set before the eye, the visual faculty is attracted by that which is interposed, so that it sees not the other. And as the desire is set so near to the soul. As to be within the soul itself, the soul meets this first light and is attracted by it, 
and thus it is unable to see the light of clear understanding, neither will see it until the dazzling power of desire is taken away from it. 4. For this reason must greatly lament the ignorance of certain men, who burden themselves with extraordinary penances and with many other voluntary practices, and think that this practice or that will suffice to bring them to the union of divine wisdom. But such will not be the case if they endeavour not diligently to mortify their desires. If they were careful to bestow half of that labour on this, they would profit more in a month than they profit by all the other practices in many years. For, just as it is necessary to till the earth if it is to bear fruit, and unless it be tilled it bears naught but weeds, just so is mortification of the desires necessary if the soul is to profit. Without this mortification, I make bold to say, the soul no more achieves progress on the road to perfection and to the knowledge of God of itself, however many efforts it may make, than the seed grows when it is cast upon untilled ground. Wherefore the darkness and rudeness of the soul will not be taken from it until the desires be quenched, for these desires are like cataracts, or like motes in the eye, which obstruct the sight until they be taken away. 5. And thus David, realizing how blind are these souls, and how completely impeded from beholding the light of truth, and how wroth is God with them, speaks to them, saying, Before your thorns, that is, your desires, harden and grow, changing from tender thorns into a thick hedge, and shutting out the sight of God, even as oft-times the living find their thread of life broken in the midst of its course, even so will God swallow them up in his wrath. For the desires that are living in the soul, so that it cannot understand him, will be swallowed up by God by means of chastisement and correction, either in this life or in the next, and this will come to pass through purgation. And he says that he will swallow them up in wrath, because that which is suffered in the mortification of the desires is punishment for the ruin which they have wrought in the soul. 6. Oh, if men but knew how great is the blessing of divine light, whereof they are deprived by this blindness which proceeds from their affections and desires, and into what great hurts and evils these make them to fall day after day, for so long as they mortify them not. For a man must not rely upon a clear understanding, or upon gifts that he has received from God, and think that he may indulge his affection or desire, and will not be blinded and darkened, and fall gradually into a worse estate. For who would have said that a man so perfect in wisdom and the gifts of God as was Solomon would have been reduced to such blindness and torpor of the will as to make altars to so many idols and to worship them himself? when he was old. Yet no more was needed to bring him to this than the affection which he had for women and his neglect to deny the desires and delights of his heart. For he himself says concerning himself in Ecclesiastes that he denied not his heart that which it demanded of him. And this man was capable of being so completely led away by his desires that, although it is true that at the beginning he was cautious, nevertheless, because he denied them not, 
they gradually blinded and darkened his understanding, so that in the end they succeeded in quenching that great light of wisdom which God had given him, and therefore in his old age he forsook God. 7. And if unmortified desires could do so much in this man who knew so well the distance that lies between good and evil, what will they not be capable of accomplishing by working upon our ignorance? For we, as God said to the prophet Jonas concerning the Ninevites, cannot discern between our right hand and our left. At every step we hold evil to be good and good evil, and this arises from our own nature. What then will come to pass if to our natural darkness is added the hindrance of desire? Nought but that which Isaiah describes thus, We have groped for the wall as though we were blind, and we have been groping as though we had no eyes, and our blindness has attained to such a point that we have stumbled at midday, as though it were in the darkness. For he that is blinded by desire has this property, that when he is set in the midst of truth and of that which is good for him, he can no more see them than if he were in darkness. Chapter 9 Wherein is described how the desires defile the soul. This is proved by comparisons and quotations from Holy Scripture. The fourth evil which the desires cause in the soul is that they stain and defile it, as is taught in Ecclesiasticus in these words, He that toucheth pitch shall be defiled with it. And a man touches pitch when he allows the desire of his will to be satisfied by any creature. Here it is to be noted that the wise man compares the creatures to pitch, for there is more difference between excellence of soul and the best of the creatures than there is between pure diamond or fine gold and pitch. And just as gold or diamond, if it were heated and placed upon pitch, would become foul and be stained by it, inasmuch as the heat would have cajoled and allured the pitch, even so the soul, that is hot with desire for any creature, draws forth foulness from it through the heat of its desire, and is stained by it. And there is more difference between the soul and other corporeal creatures than between a liquid that is highly clarified and mud that is most foul. Wherefore, even as such a liquid would be defiled if it were mingled with mud, so is the soul defiled that clings to creatures, since by doing this it becomes like to the said creatures. And in the same way that traces of soot would defile a face that is very lovely and perfect, even in this way do disordered desires befoul and defile the soul that has them, the which soul is in itself a most lovely and perfect image of God. 2. Wherefore Jeremiah, lamenting the ravages of foulness which these disordered affections cause in the soul, speaks first of its beauty and then of its foulness, saying, Its hair, that is to say, that of the soul, is more excellent in whiteness than the snow, clearer than milk, and ruddier than old ivory, and lovelier than the sapphire stone. Their face has now become blacker than coal, and they are not known in the streets. 
by the hair we here understand the affections and thoughts of the soul, which, ordered as God orders them, that is, in God himself, are whiter than snow, and clearer than milk, and ruddier than ivory, and lovelier than the sapphire. By these four things is understood every kind of beauty and excellence of corporeal creatures, higher than which, says the writer, are the soul and its operations, which are the Nazarites, or the hair aforementioned, the which Nazarites, being unruly, with their lives ordered in a way that God ordered not, that is, being set upon the creatures, have their face, says Jeremiah, made and turned blacker than coal. 3. All this harm, and more, is done to the beauty of the soul by its unruly desires for the things of this world, so much so that, if we set out to speak of the foul and vile appearance that the desires can give the soul, we should find nothing, however full of cobwebs and worms it might be, not even the corruption of a dead body, nor aught else that is impure and vile, nor aught that can exist and be imagined in this life to which we could compare it. For, although it is true that the unruly soul in its natural being is as perfect as when God created it, yet in its reasonable being it is vile, abominable, foul, black, and full of all the evils that are here being described, and many more. For, as we shall afterwards say, a single unruly desire— although there be in it no matter of mortal sin, suffices to bring a soul into such bondage, foulness, and vileness, that it can in no wise come to accord with God in union, until the desire be purified. What, then, will be the vileness of the soul that is completely unrestrained with respect to its own passions, and given up to its desires? And how far removed will it be from God and from His purity? For it is impossible to explain in words, or to cause to be understood by the understanding, what variety of impurity is caused in the soul by a variety of desires. For if it could be expressed and understood, it would be a wondrous thing, and one also which would fill us with pity to see how each desire, in accordance with its quality and degree, be it greater or smaller, leaves in the soul its mark and deposit of impurity and vileness, and how one single disorder of the reason can be the source of innumerable different impurities, some greater, some less, each one after its kind. For even as the soul of the righteous man has in one single perfection, which is uprightness of soul, innumerable gifts of the greatest richness, and many virtues of the greatest loveliness, each one different and full of grace after its kind, according to the multitude and the diversity of the affections of love which it has had in God, even so the unruly soul, according to the variety of the desires which it has for the creatures, has in itself a miserable variety of impurities and meannesses, wherewith it is endowed by the said desires. 5. The variety of these desires is well illustrated in the book of Ezekiel, where it is written that God showed this prophet in the interior of the temple, painted around its walls all likenesses of creeping things which crawl on the ground, and all the abomination of unclean beasts.
And then God said to Ezekiel, Son of man, hast thou not indeed seen the abominations that these do, each one in the secrecy of his chamber? And God commanded the prophet to go in farther, and he would see greater abominations. And he says that he there saw women seated weeping for Adonis, the god of love. And God commanded him to go in farther still, and he would see yet greater abominations. And he says that he saw there five-and-twenty old men, whose backs were turned toward the temple. 6. The diversity of creeping things and unclean beasts that were painted in the first chamber of the temple are the thoughts and conceptions which the understanding fashions from the lowly things of earth, and from all the creatures which are painted just as they are in the temple of the soul, when the soul embarrasses its understanding with them, which is the soul's first habitation. The women that were farther within, in the second habitation, weeping for the god Adonis, are the desires that are in the second faculty of the soul, which is the will, the which are, as it were, weeping, inasmuch as they covet that to which the will is affectioned, which are the creeping things painted in the understandings. And the men that were in the third habitation are the images and representations of the creatures which the third part of the soul, namely memory, keeps and reflects upon within itself. Of these it is said that their backs are turned toward the temple, because when the soul, according to these three faculties, completely and perfectly embraces anything that is of the earth, it can be said to have its back turned toward the temple of God, which is the right reason of the soul, which admits within itself nothing that is of creatures. 7. And let this now suffice for the understanding of this foul disorder of the soul with respect to its desires. For if we had to treat in detail of the lesser foulness which these imperfections and their variety make and cause in the soul, and that which is caused by venial sins, which is still greater than that of the imperfections and their great variety, and likewise that which is caused by the desires for mortal sin, which is complete foulness of the soul and its great variety, according to the variety and multitude of all these three things, we should never end, nor would the understanding of angels suffice to understand it. That which I say, and that which is to the point for my purpose, is that any desire, although it be for but the smallest imperfection, stains and defiles the soul. Chapter 10 Wherein is described how the desires weaken the soul in virtue and make it lukewarm. The fifth way in which the desires harm the soul is by making it lukewarm and weak, so that it has no strength to follow after virtue and to persevere therein. For as the strength of the desire when it is set upon various aims is less than if it were set wholly on one thing alone, and as the more are the aims whereon it is set, the less of it there is for each of them. For this cause philosophers say that virtue in union is stronger than if it be dispersed. Wherefore it is clear that if the desire of the will be dispersed among other things than virtue, it must be weaker as regards virtue. 
and thus the soul whose will is set upon various trifles is like water which, having a place below wherein to empty itself, never rises, and such a soul has no profit. For this cause the patriarch Jacob compared his son Reuben to water poured out, because in a certain sin he had given rein to his desires. And he said, Thou art poured out like water, grow thou not. As though he had said, Since thou art poured out like water as to the desires, thou shalt not grow in virtue. And thus, as hot water, when uncovered, readily loses heat, and as aromatic spices, when they are unwrapped, gradually lose the fragrance and strength of their perfume, even so the soul that is not recollected in one single desire for God loses heat and vigour in its virtue. This was well understood by David when he said, speaking with God, I will keep my strength for thee, that is, concentrating the strength of my desires upon thee alone. 2. And the desires weaken the virtue of the soul, because they are to it like the shoots that grow about a tree and take away its virtue, so that it cannot bring forth so much fruit. And of such souls as these, says the Lord, Woe to them that in those days are with child, and to them that give suck. This being with child and giving suck is understood with respect to the desires, which, if they be not pruned, will ever be taking more virtue from the soul, and will grow to the harm of the soul like the shoots upon the tree. Wherefore our Lord counsels us, saying, Have your loins girt about, the loins signifying here the desires, and, indeed, they are also like leeches, which are ever sucking the blood from the veins, for thus the preacher terms them when he says, The leeches are the daughters, that is, the desires. 3. From this it is clear that the desires bring no good to the soul, but rather take from it that which it has, and, if it mortify them not, they will not cease till they have wrought in it that which the children of the viper are said to work in their mother, who, as they are growing within her womb, consume and kill her, and they themselves remain alive at her cost. Just so the desires that are not mortified grow to such a point that they kill the soul with respect to God, because it has not first killed them, and they alone live in it. 4. And even though they reach not this point, it is very piteous to consider how the desires that live in this poor soul treat it, how unhappy it is with regard to itself, how dry with respect to its neighbours, and how weary and slothful with respect to the things of God. For there is no evil humour that makes it as wearisome and difficult for a sick man to walk, or gives him a distaste for eating comparable to the weariness and distaste for following virtue which is given to a soul by desire for creatures. And thus the reason why many souls have no diligence and eagerness to gain virtue is, as a rule, that they have desires and affections which are not pure and are not fixed upon God. Chapter 11 
wherein it is proved necessary that the soul that would attain to divine union should be free from desires, however slight they be. I expect that for a long time the listener has been wishing to ask whether it be necessary in order to attain to this higher state of perfection to undergo, first of all, total mortification in all the desires, great and small, or if it will suffice to mortify some of them and to leave others, those at least which seem of little moment. For it appears to be a severe and most difficult thing for the soul to be able to attain to such purity and detachment that it has no will and affection for anything. 2. To this I reply, first, that it is true that all the desires are not equally hurtful, nor do they all equally embarrass the soul. I am speaking of those that are voluntary, for the natural desires hinder the soul little, if at all, from attaining to union, when they are not consented to nor pass beyond the first movements. I mean all those wherein the rational will has had no part, whether at first or afterward, and to take away these, that is, to mortify them wholly in this life, is impossible. And these hinder not the soul in such a way as to prevent its attainment to divine union, even though they be not, as I say, wholly mortified. For the natural man may well have them, and yet the soul may be quite free from them according to the rational spirit. For it will sometimes come to pass that the soul will be in the full union of the prayer of quiet in the will at the very time when these desires are dwelling in the sensual part of the soul, and yet the higher part which is in prayer will have nothing to do with them. But all the other voluntary desires, whether they be of mortal sin, which are the gravest, or of venial sin, which are less grave, or whether they be only of imperfections, which are the least grave of all, must be driven away every one, and the soul must be free from them all, howsoever slight they be, if it is to come to this complete union. And the reason is that the state of this divine union consists in the soul's total transformation according to the will in the will of God, so that there may be naught in the soul that is contrary to the will of God, but that in all and through all its movement may be that of the will of God alone. 3. It is for this reason that we say of this state that it is the making of two wills into one, namely into the will of God, which will of God is likewise the will of the soul. For if this soul desired any imperfection that God wills not, there would not be made one will of God, since the soul would have a will for that which God has not. It is clear, then, that for the soul to come to unite itself perfectly with God through love and will, it must first be free from all desire of the will, howsoever slight. That is, that it must not intentionally and knowingly consent with the will to imperfections, and it must have power and liberty to be able not so to consent intentionally. I say knowingly, because unintentionally and unknowingly, or without having the power to do otherwise, it may well fall into imperfections and venial sins, and into the natural desires whereof we have spoken. For of such sins as these, which are not voluntary and surreptitious, it is written that the just man shall fall seven times in the day, and shall rise up again.
but of the voluntary desires which, though they be for very small things, are, as I have said, intentional venial sins, any one that is not conquered suffices to impede union. I mean, if this habit be not mortified, for sometimes certain acts of different desires have not as much power when the habits are mortified. Still, the soul will attain to the stage of not having even these, for they likewise proceed from a habit of imperfection. But some habits of voluntary imperfections, which are never completely conquered, prevent not only the attainment of divine union, but also progress in perfection. 4. These habitual imperfections are, for example, a common custom of much speaking, or some slight attachment which we never quite wish to conquer, such as that to a person, a garment, a book, a cell, a particular kind of food, tittle-tattle, fancies for tasting, knowing or hearing certain things, and such like. Any one of these imperfections, if the soul has become attached and habituated to it, is of as great harm to its growth and progress in virtue as though it were to fall daily into many other imperfections and usual venial sins, which proceed not from a habitual indulgence in any habitual and harmful attachment, and will not hinder it so much as when it has attachment to anything. For as long as it has this, there is no possibility that it will make progress in perfection, even though the imperfection be extremely slight. For it comes to the same thing, whether a bird be held by a slender cord or by a stout one, since even if it be slender, the bird will be well held as though it were stout, or so long as it breaks it not and flies not away. It is true that the slender one is the easier to break. Still, easy though it be, the bird will not fly away if it be not broken. And thus, the soul that has attachment to anything, however much virtue it possess, will not attain to the liberty of divine union. For the desire and the attachment of the soul have the power which the sucking fish is said to have when it clings to a ship. For, though but a very small fish, if it succeed in clinging to the ship, it makes it incapable of reaching the port or of sailing on at all. It is sad to see certain souls in this plight. Like rich vessels, they are laden with wealth and good works and spiritual exercises, and with the virtues and the favours that God grants them. And yet, because they have not the resolution to break with some whim or attachment or affection, which all come to the same thing, they never make progress or reach the port of perfection, though they would need to do no more than make one good flight, and thus to snap that cord of desire right off, or to rid themselves of that sucking fish of desire which clings to them. 5. It is greatly to be lamented that, when God has granted them strength to break other and stouter cords, namely affections for sins and vanities, they should fail to attain to such blessing because they have not shaken off some childish thing which God had bidden them conquer for love of Him, and which is nothing more than a thread or a hair. And, what is worse, not only do they make no progress, but because of this attachment they fall back, lose that which they have gained, and retrace that part of the road along which they have travelled at the cost of so much time and labour. For it is well known that, on this road, not to go forward is to turn back, and not to be gaining is to be losing. 
This our Lord desired to teach us when he said, He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth. He that takes not the trouble to repair the vessel, however slight be the crack in it, is likely to spill all the liquid that is within it. The preacher taught us this clearly when he said, He that contemneth small things shall fall by little and little. For, as he himself says, a great fire cometh from a single spark. And thus one perfection is sufficient to lead to another, and these lead to yet more, wherefore you will hardly ever see a soul that is negligent in conquering one desire, and that has not many more arising from the same weakness and imperfection that this desire causes. In this way they are continually filling. We have seen many persons to whom God has been granting the favour of leading them a long way, into a state of great detachment and liberty, yet who, merely through beginning to indulge some slight attachment under the pretext of doing good, or in the guise of conversation and friendship, often lose their spirituality and desire for God and holy solitude, fall from the joy and whole-hearted devotion which they had in their spiritual exercises, and cease not until they have lost everything, and this because they broke not with that beginning of sensual desire and pleasure, and kept not themselves in solitude for God. 6. Upon this road we must ever journey in order to attain our goal, which means that we must ever be mortifying our desires and not indulging them, and if they are not all completely mortified, we shall not completely attain. For even as a log of wood may fail to be transformed in the fire because a single degree of heat is wanting to it, even so the soul will not be transformed in God if it have but one imperfection, although it be something less than voluntary desire. For, as we shall say hereafter concerning the night of faith, the soul has only one will, and that will, if it be embarrassed by aught and set upon by aught, is not free, solitary, and pure, as is necessary for divine transformation. 7. Of this that has been said, we have a figure in the book of the Judges, where it is related that the angel came to the children of Israel and said to them that, because they had not destroyed that forward people, but had made a league with some of them, they would therefore be left among them as enemies, that they might be to them an occasion of stumbling and perdition. And just so does God deal with certain souls, though he has taken them out of the world, and slain the giants, their sins, and destroyed the multitude of their enemies, which are the occasions of sin that they encountered in the world, solely that they may enter this promised land of divine union with greater liberty. Yet they harbour friendship and make alliance with the insignificant peoples, that is, with imperfections, and mortify them not completely. Therefore our Lord is angry, and allows them to fall into their desires, and go from bad to worse. 8. In the book of Joshua, again, we have a figure of what has just been said, where we read that God commanded Joshua, at the time that he had to enter into possession of the promised land, to destroy all things that were in the city of Jericho, in such wise as to leave therein nothing alive, man or woman, young or old, and to slay all the beasts, and to take naught, neither to covet aught of all the spoils. 
This, he said, that we may understand how, if a man is to enter this divine union, all that lives in his soul must die, both little and much, small and great, and that the soul must be without desire for all this, and detached from it, even as though it existed not for the soul, neither the soul for it. This St. Paul teaches us clearly in his epistle to the Corinthians, saying, This I say to you, brethren, that the time is short. It remains, and it behooves you, that they that have wives should be as if they had none, and they that weep for the things of this world as though they wept not, and they that rejoice as if they rejoiced not, and they that buy as though they possess not, and they that use this world as if they used it not. This the Apostle says to us in order to teach us how complete must be the detachment of our soul from all things if it is to journey to God. Chapter 12, which treats of the answer to another question, explaining what the desires are that suffice to cause the evils aforementioned in the soul. We might write at greater length upon this matter of the night of sense, saying all that there is to say concerning the harm which is caused by the desires, not only in the ways aforementioned, but in many others. But for our purpose that which has been said suffices, for we believe we have made it clear in what way the mortification of these desires is called night, and how it behooves us to enter this night in order to journey to God. The only thing that remains, before we treat of the manner of entrance therein, in order to bring this part to a close, is a question concerning what has been said which might occur to the reader. 2. It may first be asked if any desire can be sufficient to work and produce in the soul the two evils aforementioned, namely the privative, which consists in depriving the soul of the grace of God, and the positive, which consists in producing within it the five serious evils whereof we have spoken. Secondly, it may be asked if any desire, however slight it be and of whatever kind, suffices to produce all these together— or if some desires produce some, and others produce others, if, for example, some produce torment, others weariness, others darkness, etc. 3. Answering this question, I say, first of all, that with respect to the privative evil, which consists in the soul's being deprived of God, this is wrought wholly, and can only be wrought, by the voluntary desires which are of the matter of mortal sin for they deprive the soul of grace in this life and of glory, which is the possession of God in the next. In the second place, I say that both those desires which are of the matter of mortal sin, and the voluntary desires which are of the matter of venial sin, and those that are of the matter of imperfection, are each sufficient to produce in the soul all these positive evils together, the which evils, although in a certain way they are privative, we here call positive, since they correspond to a turning towards the creature, even as the privative evils correspond to a turning away from God. But there is this difference, that the desires which are of mortal sin produce total blindness, torment, impurity, weakness, etc. Those others, however, which are of the matter of venial sin or imperfection, 
produce not these evils in a complete and supreme degree, since they deprive not the soul of grace, upon the loss of which depends the possession of them, since the death of the soul is their life, but they produce them in the soul remissly, proportionately to the remission of grace which these desires produce in the soul. So that desire which most weakens grace will produce the most abundant torment, blindness, and defilement. 4. It should be noted, however, that although each desire produces all these evils which we here term positive, there are some which, principally and directly, produce some of them, and others which produce others, and the remainder are produced consequently upon these. For although it is true that one sensual desire produces all these evils, yet its principal and proper effect is the defilement of soul and body. And although one avaricious desire produces them all, its principal and direct result is to produce misery. And although similarly one vainglorious desire produces them all, its principal and direct result is to produce darkness and blindness. And although one gluttonous desire produces them all, its principal result is to produce lukewarmness in virtue, and even so is it with the rest. 5. And the reason why any act of voluntary desire produces in the soul all these effects together lies in the direct contrariety which exists between them and all the acts of virtue which produce the contrary effects in the soul. For even as an act of virtue produces and begets in the soul sweetness, peace, consolation, light, cleanness, and fortitude altogether, even so an unruly desire causes torment, fatigue, weariness, blindness, and weakness. All the virtues grow through the practice of any one of them, and all the vices grow through the practice of any one of them likewise, and the remnants of each grow in the soul. And although all these evils are not evident at the moment when the desire is indulged, since the resulting pleasure gives no occasion for them, yet the evil remnants which they leave are clearly perceived, whether before or afterwards. This is very well illustrated by that book which the angel commanded St. John to eat in the Apocalypse, the which book was sweetness to his mouth, and in his belly bitterness. For the desire, when it is carried into effect, is sweet and appears to be good, but its bitter taste is felt afterwards. The truth of this can be clearly proved by any one who allows himself to be led away by it. Yet I am not ignorant that there are some men so blind and insensible as not to feel this, for as they do not walk in God, they are unable to perceive that which hinders them from approaching him. 6. I am not writing here of the other natural desires which are not voluntary, and of thoughts that go not beyond the first movements, and other temptations to which the soul is not consenting, for these produce in the soul none of the evils aforementioned. For although a person who suffers from them may think that the passion and disturbance which they then produce in him are defiling and blinding him, this is not the case. Rather, they are bringing him the opposite advantages. For in so far as he resists them, he gains fortitude, purity, light, and consolation, and many blessings, even as our Lord said to St. Paul, that virtue was made perfect in weakness. But the voluntary desires work all the evils aforementioned and more. 
wherefore the principal care of spiritual masters is to mortify their disciples immediately with respect to any desire soever, by causing them to remain without the objects of their desires, in order to free them from such great misery. Chapter 13 Wherein is described the manner and way which the soul must follow in order to enter this night of sense. It now remains for me to give certain counsels whereby the soul may know how to enter this night of sense, and may be able so to do. To this end it must be known that the soul habitually enters this night of sense in two ways. The one is active, the other passive. The active way consists in that which the soul can do, and does, of itself, in order to enter therein, whereof we shall now treat in the counsels which follows. The passive way is that wherein the soul does nothing, and God works in it, and it remains, as it were, patient. Of this we shall treat in the fourth book, where we shall be treating of beginners, and because there, with the divine favour, we shall give many counsels to beginners, according to the many imperfections which they are apt to have while on this road, I shall not spend time in giving many here. And this, too, because it belongs not to this place to give them, as at present we are treating only of the reasons for which this journey is called a night, and of what kind it is, and how many parts it has. But, as it seems that it would be incomplete and less profitable than it should be, if we gave no help or counsel here for walking in this night of desires, I have thought well to set down briefly here the way which is to be followed, and I shall do the same at the end of each of the next two parts, or causes, of this night, whereof, with the help of the Lord, I have to treat. 2. These counsels for the conquering of the desires which now follow, albeit brief and few, I believe to be as profitable and efficacious as they are concise, so that one who sincerely desires to practice them will need no others, but will find them all included in these. 3. First let him have an habitual desire to imitate Christ in everything that he does, conforming himself to his life, upon which life he must meditate so that he may know how to imitate it and to behave in all things as Christ would behave. 4. Secondly, in order that he may be able to do this well, every pleasure that presents itself to the senses, if it be not purely for the honour and glory of God, must be renounced and completely rejected for the love of Jesus Christ, who in this life had no other pleasure, neither desired any, than to do the will of his Father, which he called his meat and food. I take this example. If there present itself to a man the pleasure of listening to things that tend not to the service and honour of God, let him not desire that pleasure, nor desire to listen to them. And if there present itself the pleasure of looking at things that help him not Godward, let him not desire the pleasure or look at these things, and if in conversation or in aught else soever such pleasure present itself, let him act likewise, and similarly with respect to all the senses, in so far as he can fairly avoid the pleasure in question. If he cannot, it suffices that, although these things may be present to his senses, he desires not to have this pleasure." and in this wise he will be able to mortify and void his senses of such pleasure as though they were in darkness. 
If he takes care to do this, he will soon reap great profit. 5. For the mortifying and calming of the four natural passions, which are joy, hope, fear, and grief, from the concord and pacification whereof come these and other blessings, the counsels here following are of the greatest help, and of great merit, and the source of great virtues. 6. Strive always to prefer not that which is easiest, but that which is most difficult. Not that which is most delectable, but that which is most unpleasing. Not that which gives most pleasure, but rather that which gives least. Not that which is restful, but that which is wearisome. Not that which is consolation, but rather that which is disconsolateness. Not that which is greatest, but that which is least. Not that which is loftiest and most precious, but that which is lowest and most despised. Not that which is a desire for anything, but that which is a desire for nothing. Strive to go about seeking not the best of temporal things, but the worst. Strive thus to desire to enter into complete detachment and emptiness and poverty with respect to everything that is in the world for Christ's sake. 7. And it is meet that the soul embrace these acts with all its heart, and strive to subdue its will thereto. For, if it perform them with its heart, it will very quickly come to find in them great delight and consolation, and to act with order and discretion. 8. These things that have been said, if they be faithfully put into practice, are quite sufficient for entrance into the night of sense. But, for greater completeness, we shall describe another kind of exercise which teaches us to mortify the concupiscence of the flesh and the concupiscence of the eyes and the pride of life, which, says St. John, are the things that reign in the world from which all the other desires proceed. 9. First, let the soul strive to work in its own despite and desire all to do so. Secondly, let it strive to speak in its own despite and desire all to do so. Third, let it strive to think humbly of itself in its own despite and desire all to do so. 10. To conclude these counsels and rules, it will be fitting to set down here those lines which are written in the ascent of the mount, which is the figure that is at the beginning of this book, the which lines are instructions for ascending to it, and thus reaching the summit of union. For although it is true that that which is there spoken of is spiritual and interior, there is reference likewise to the spirit of imperfection according to sensual and exterior things, as may be seen by the two roads which are on either side of the path of perfection. It is in this way, and according to this sense, that we shall understand them here, that is to say, according to that which is sensual. Afterwards, in the second part of this night, they will be understood according to that which is spiritual. 11. The lines are these. In order to arrive at having pleasure in everything, desire to have pleasure in nothing. In order to arrive at possessing everything, desire to possess nothing. In order to arrive at being everything, desire to be nothing. 
in order to arrive at knowing everything, desire to know nothing. In order to arrive at that wherein thou hast no pleasure, thou must go by a way wherein thou hast no pleasure. In order to arrive at that which thou knowest not, thou must go by a way that thou knowest not. In order to arrive at that which thou possessest not, thou must go by a way that thou possessest not. In order to arrive at that which thou art not, thou must go through that which thou art not. 12. When thy mind dwells upon anything, thou art ceasing to cast thyself upon the all, for in order to pass from the all to the all, thou hast to deny thyself wholly in all, and when thou comest to possess it wholly, thou must possess it without desiring anything, for if thou wilt have anything in having all, thou hast not thy treasure purely in God. 13. In this detachment the spiritual soul finds its quiet and repose, for since it covets nothing, nothing wearies it when it is lifted up, and nothing oppresses it when it is cast down, because it is in the centre of its humility. But when it covets anything, at that very moment it becomes wearied. Chapter 14 Wherein is expounded the second line of the stanza, Kindled in love with yearnings. Now that we have expounded the first line of this stanza, which treats of the night of sense, explaining what this night of sense is, and why it is called night, and now that we have likewise described the order and manner which are to be followed for a soul to enter therein actively, the next thing to be treated in due sequence is its properties and effects, which are wonderful, and are described in the next lines of the stanza aforementioned, upon which I will briefly touch for the sake of expounding the said lines, as I promised in the prologue. And I will then pass on at once to the second book, treating of the other part of this night, which is the spiritual. 2. The soul, then, says that, kindled in love with yearnings, it passed through this dark night of sense, and came out thence to the union of the Beloved. For, in order to conquer all the desires, and to deny itself the pleasures which it has in everything, and for which its love and affection are wont to enkindle the will that it may enjoy them, it would need to experience another and a greater enkindling by an other and a better love, which is that of its spouse." to the end that, having its pleasure set upon him, and deriving from him its strength, it should have courage and constancy to deny itself all other things with ease. And, in order to conquer the strength of the desires of sense, it would need not only to have love for its spouse, but also to be enkindled by love, and to have yearnings. For it comes to pass, and so it is, that with such yearnings of desire the sensual nature is moved and attracted towards sensual things, so that, if the spiritual part be not enkindled with other and greater yearnings for that which is spiritual, it will be unable to throw off the yoke of nature, or to enter this night of sense, neither will it have courage to remain in darkness as to all things, depriving itself of desire for them all. 3. 
and the nature and all the varieties of these yearnings of love which souls experience in the early stages of this road to union, and the diligent means and contrivances which they employ in order to leave their house, which is self-will, during the night of the mortification of their senses, and how easy and even sweet and delectable these yearnings for the spouse make all the trials and perils of this night to appear to them, this is not the place to describe, neither is such description possible, for it is better to know and meditate upon these things than to write of them, and so we shall pass on to expound the remaining lines in the next chapter. Chapter 15 Wherein are expounded the remaining lines of the aforementioned stanza. O happy chance! I went forth without being observed, my house being now at rest. These lines take as a metaphor the miserable estate of captivity, a man's deliverance from which, when none of the jailers hinder his release, he considers a happy chance. For the soul, on account of original sin, is truly, as it were, a captive in this mortal body, subject to the passions and desires of nature, from bondage and subjection to which it considers its having gone forth without being observed as a happy chance, having gone forth, that is, without being impeded or engulfed by any of them. 2. For to this end the soul profited by going forth upon a dark night, that is, in the privation of all pleasures and mortification of all desires, after the manner whereof we have spoken, and by its house being now at rest, is meant the sensual part, which is the house of all the desires, and is now at rest, because they have all been overcome and lulled to sleep. For until the desires are lulled to sleep through the mortification of the sensual nature, until at last the sensual nature itself is at rest from them, so that they make not war upon the spirit, the soul goes not forth to true liberty, and to the fruition of union with its beloved. End of the first book. The second book. Of the Ascent of Mount Carmel. Wherein is treated the proximate means of ascending to union with God, which is faith and wherein, therefore, is described the second part of this night, which, as we said, belongs to the spirit, and is contained in the second stanza, which is as follows. Chapter 1 In darkness and secure, by the secret ladder disguised, O oh, happy chance, in darkness and in concealment, my house being now at rest. In this second stanza the soul sings of the happy chance which it experienced in stripping the spirit of all spiritual imperfections and desires for the possession of spiritual things. This was a much greater happiness, too, by reason of the greater difficulty that there is in putting to rest this house of the spiritual part, and of being able to enter this interior darkness, which is spiritual detachment from all things, whether sensual or spiritual, and leaning on pure faith alone, and an ascent thereby to God. The soul here calls this a ladder, and secret, because all the rungs and parts of it are secret and hidden from all sense and understanding, 
and thus the soul has remained in darkness as to all light of sense and understanding, going forth beyond all limits of nature and reason in order to ascend by this divine ladder of faith, which attains and penetrates even to the heights of God. The soul says that it was travelling disguised, because the garments and vesture which it wears and its natural condition are changed into the divine as it ascends by faith. And it was because of this disguise that it was not recognized or impeded, either by time or by reason or by the devil, for none of these things can harm one that journeys in faith. And not only so, but the soul travels in such wise concealed and hidden and is so far from all the deceits of the devil that in truth it journeys, as it also says here, in darkness and in concealment, that is to say, hidden from the devil, to whom the light of faith is more than darkness. 2. And thus the soul that journeys through this night, we may say, journeys in concealment and in hiding from the devil, as will be more clearly seen hereafter. Wherefore the soul says that it went forth in darkness and secure, for one that has such happiness as to be able to journey through the darkness of faith, taking faith for his guide, like to one that is blind, and leaving behind all natural imaginings and spiritual reasonings, journeys very securely, as we have said. And so the soul says, furthermore, that it went forth through this spiritual night, its house being now at rest, that is to say, its spiritual and rational parts. When, therefore, the soul attains to union which is of God, its natural faculties are at rest, as are likewise its impulses and yearnings of the senses in its spiritual part. For this cause the soul says not here that it went forth with yearnings, as in the first night of sense. For, in order to journey in the night of sense, and to strip itself of that which is of sense, it needed yearnings of sense-love, so that it might go forth perfectly. But, in order to put to rest the house of its spirit, it needs no more than denial of all faculties and pleasures and desires of the spirit in pure faith. This attained, the soul is united with the beloved in a union of simplicity and purity and love and similitude. 3. And it must be remembered that the first stanza, speaking of the sensual part, says that the soul went forth upon a dark night, and here, speaking of the spiritual part, it says that it went forth in darkness. For the darkness of the spiritual part is by far the greater, even as darkness is a greater obscurity than that of night. For, however dark a night may be, something can always be seen, but in true darkness nothing can be seen. And thus, in the night of sense there still remains some light, for the understanding and reason remain, and are not blinded. But this spiritual night, which is faith, deprives the soul of everything, both as to understanding and as to sense. And for this cause the soul in this night says that it was journeying in darkness and secure, which it said not in the other. For the less the soul works with its own ability, the more securely it journeys, because it journeys more in faith. And this will be expounded at length in the course of this second book, 
wherein it will be necessary for the devout reader to proceed attentively, because there will be said herein things of great importance to the person that is truly spiritual. And although they are somewhat obscure, some of them will pave the way to others, so that I believe they will all be quite clearly understood. Chapter 2 Which begins to treat of the second part or cause of this night, which is faith, proves by two arguments how it is darker than the first and than the third. We now go on to treat of the second part of this night, which is faith. This is the wondrous means which, as we said, leads to the goal, which is God, who, as we said, is also to the soul, naturally, the third cause or part of this night. For faith, which is the means, is compared with midnight, and thus we may say that it is darker for the soul either than the first part, or, in a way, than the third, for the first part, which is that of sense, is compared to the beginning of night, or the time when sensible objects can no longer be seen, and thus it is not so far removed from light as is midnight. The third part, which is the period preceding the dawn, is quite close to the light of day, and it, too, therefore, is not so dark as midnight, for it is now close to the enlightenment and illumination of the light of day, which is compared with God. For although it is true, if we speak after a natural manner, that God is as dark a night to the soul as is faith, still, when these three parts of the night are over, which are naturally night to the soul, God begins to illumine the soul by supernatural means with the ray of his divine light, which is the beginning of the perfect union that follows, when the third night is past, and it can thus be said to be less dark. 2. It is likewise darker than the first night, for this belongs to the lower part of man, which is the sensual part, and consequently the more exterior, and this second part, which is of faith, belongs to the higher part of man, which is the rational part, and, in consequence, more interior and more obscure, since it deprives it of the light of reason, or, to speak more clearly, blinds it and thus it is aptly compared to midnight, which is the depth of night and the darkest part thereof. 3. We have now to prove how this second part, which is faith, is night to the spirit, even as the first part is night to sense, and we shall then also describe the things that are contrary to it, and how the soul must prepare itself actively to enter it. For, concerning the passive part, which is that which God works in it, when he brings it into that night, we shall speak in its place, which I intend shall be the third book. Chapter 3 How Faith is Dark Night to the Soul This is proved with arguments and quotations and figures from Scripture. Faith, say the theologians, is a habit of the soul, certain and obscure, and the reason for its being an obscure habit is that it makes us believe truths revealed by God himself, which transcend all natural light and exceed all human understanding beyond all proportion. Hence it follows that for the soul this excessive light of faith which is given to it is thick darkness, for it overwhelms greater things and does away with small things, 
even as the light of the sun overwhelms all other lights whatsoever, so that when it shines and disables our visual faculty, they appear not to be lights at all, so that it blinds it and deprives it of the sight that has been given to it, inasmuch as its light is great beyond all proportion and transcends the faculty of vision. Even so the light of faith, by its excessive greatness, oppresses and disables that of the understanding, for the latter, of its own power, extends only to natural knowledge, although it has a faculty for the supernatural, whenever our Lord is pleased to give it supernatural activity. 2. Wherefore a man can know nothing by himself, save after a natural manner, which is only that which he attains by means of the senses. For this cause he must have the phantasms and the forms of objects present in themselves and in their likenesses. Otherwise it cannot be, for, as philosophers say, from the object that is present and from the faculty, knowledge is born in the soul. Wherefore, if one should speak to a man of things which he has never been able to understand, and whose likeness he has never seen, he would have no more illumination from them whatever than if naught had been said of them to him. I take an example. If one should say to a man that on a certain island there is an animal which he has never seen, and give him no idea of the likeness of that animal, that he may compare it with others that he has seen, he will have no more knowledge of it or idea of its form than he had before, however much is being said to him about it. And this will be better understood by another and a more apt example. If one should describe to a man that was born blind and has never seen any colour what is meant by a white colour or by a yellow, he would understand it but indifferently, however fully one might describe it to him. For, as he has never seen such colours or anything like them by which he may judge them, only their names would remain with him. For these he would be able to comprehend through the ear, but not their forms or figures, since he has never seen them. 3. Even so is faith with respect to the soul. It tells us of things which we have never seen or understood, nor have we seen or understood aught that resembles them, since there is naught that resembles them at all. And thus we have no light of natural knowledge concerning them, since that which we are told of them bears no relation to any sense of ours. We know it by the ear alone, believing that which we are taught, bringing our natural light into subjection and treating it as if it were not. For, as St. Paul says, faith is not knowledge which enters by any of the senses, but is only the consent given by the soul to that which enters through the ear. 4. And faith far transcends even that which is indicated by the examples given above. For not only does it give no information and knowledge, but, as we have said, it deprives us of all other information and knowledge, and blinds us to them, so that they cannot judge it well. For other knowledge can be acquired by the light of the understanding, but the knowledge that is of faith is acquired without the illumination of the understanding, which is rejected for faith. And in its own light, if that light be not darkened, it is lost. Wherefore Isaiah said, If ye believe not, ye shall not understand. 
It is clear, then, that faith is dark night of the soul, and it is in this way that it gives it light. And the more the soul is darkened, the greater is the light that comes to it. For it is by blinding that it gives light, according to this saying of Isaiah, For if ye believe not, ye shall not, he says, have light. And thus faith was foreshadowed by that cloud which divided the children of Israel and the Egyptians when the former were about to enter the Red Sea, whereof Scripture says that that cloud was full of darkness and gave light to the night. 5. A wondrous thing it is that, though it was dark, it should give light to the night. This was said to show that faith which is a black and dark cloud to the soul, and likewise is night, since in the presence of faith the soul is deprived of its natural light and is blinded, can with its darkness give light and illumination to the darkness of the soul, for it was fitting that the disciples should thus be like the Master. For man who is in darkness could not fittingly be enlightened save by other darkness, even as David teaches us, saying, Day unto day uttereth and aboundeth in speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. Which, to speak more clearly, signifies the day which is God in bliss, where it is day to the blessed angels and souls who are now day, communicates and reveals to them the word, which is his Son, that they may know him and enjoy him. And the night, which is faith in the church militant, where it is still night, shows knowledge is night to the church, and consequently to every soul, which knowledge is night to it, since it is without clear beatific wisdom, and in the presence of faith it is blind as to its natural light. 6. So that which is to be inferred from this, that faith, because it is dark night, gives light to the soul, which is in darkness, that there may come to be fulfilled that which David likewise says to this purpose in these works, The night will be illumination in my delights, which is as much as to say, In the delights of my pure contemplation and union with God, the night of faith shall be my guide wherein he gives it clearly to be understood that the soul must be in darkness in order to have light for this road. Chapter 4 Treats in general of how the soul likewise must be in darkness, insofar as this rests with itself, to the end that it may be effectively guided by faith to the highest contemplation. It is now, I think, becoming clear how faith is dark night to the soul, and how the soul likewise must be dark, or in darkness as to its own light, so that it may allow itself to be guided by faith to this high goal of union. But in order that the soul may be able to do this, it will now be well to continue describing in somewhat greater detail this darkness which it must have in order that it may enter into this abyss of faith. And thus, in this chapter, I shall speak of it in a general way, and hereafter, with the divine favour, I shall continue to describe more minutely the way in which the soul is to conduct itself, that it may neither stray therein nor impede this guide. 2. 
I say, then, that the soul, in order to be effectively guided to this state by faith, must not only be in darkness with respect to that part that concerns the creatures and temporal things, which is the sensual and the lower part, whereof we have already treated, but that likewise it must be blinded and darkened according to the part which has respect to God and to spiritual things, which is the rational and higher part whereof we are now treating. For, in order that one may attain supernatural transformation, it is clear that he must be plunged into darkness and carried far away from all contained in his nature that is sensual and rational. For the word supernatural means that which soars above the natural self. The natural self, therefore, remains beneath it. For, although this transformation and union is something that cannot be comprehended by human ability and sense, the soul must completely and voluntarily void itself of all that can enter into it, whether from above or from below, I mean, according to the affection and will, so far as this rests with itself. For who shall prevent God from doing that which he will in the soul that is resigned, annihilated, and detached? But the soul must be voided of all such things as can enter its capacity, so that, however many supernatural experiences it may have, it will ever remain as it were detached from them and in darkness. It must be like to a blind man, leaning upon dark faith, taking it for guide and light, and leaning upon none of the things that he understands, experiences, feels, and imagines. For all these are darkness which will cause him to stray, and faith is above all that he understands and experiences and feels and imagines. And if he be not blinded as to this, and remain not in total darkness, he attains not to that which is greater, namely, that which is taught by faith. 3. A blind man, if he be not quite blind, refuses to be led by a guide, and, since he sees a little, he thinks it better to go in whatever happens to be the direction which he can distinguish, because he sees none better, and thus he can lead astray a guide who sees more than he, for, after all, it is for him to say where he shall go rather than for the guide. In the same way, a soul may lean upon any knowledge of its own, or any feeling or experience of God, yet, however great this may be, it is very little and far different from what God is. And, in going along this road, a soul is easily led astray, or brought to a standstill, because it will not remain in faith like one that is blind, and faith is its true guide. For it is this that was meant by St. Paul when he said, He that would journey towards union with God must needs believe in his being. As though he had said, He that would attain to being joined in a union with God must not walk by understanding, neither lean upon experience or feeling or imagination, but he must believe in his being, which is not perceptible to the understanding, neither to the desire, nor to the imagination, nor to any other sense, neither can it be known in this life at all. Yea, in this life, the highest thing that can be felt and experienced concerning God is infinitely remote from God, and from the pure possession of Him. Isaiah and St. Paul say, 
That which God hath prepared for them that love him, neither eye hath seen nor ear heard, neither hath it entered into the heart or thought of man. So, however much the soul aspires to be perfectly united through grace in this life with that to which it will be united through glory in the next, which, as St. Paul here says, eye hath not seen nor ear heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of man in the flesh, it is clear that in order perfectly to attain to union in this life through grace and through love, a soul must be in darkness with respect to all that can enter through the eye, and to all that can be received through the ear, and can be imagined with the fancy and understood with the heart, which here signifies the soul. And thus a soul is greatly impeded from reaching this higher state of union with God, when it clings to any understanding or feeling or imagination or appearance or will or manner of its own, or to any other act or to anything of its own, and cannot detach and strip itself of all these. For, as we say, the goal which it seeks lies beyond all this, yea, beyond even the highest thing that can be known or experienced, and thus a soul must pass beyond everything to unknowing. 5. Wherefore, upon this road, to enter upon the road is to leave the road, or, to express it better, it is to pass on to the goal and to leave one's own way, and to enter upon that which has no way, which is God. For the soul that attains to this state has no longer any ways or methods, still less is it attached to ways and methods, or is capable of being attached to them. I mean ways of understanding, or of perception, or of feeling— Nevertheless, it has within itself always, after the way of one that possesses nothing, yet possesses all things. For, if it have courage to pass beyond its natural limitations, both interiorly and exteriorly, it enters within the limits of the supernatural, which has no way, yet in substance has always. Hence, for the soul to arrive at these limits is for it to leave these limits, in each case going forth out of itself a great way, from this lowly state to that which is high above all others. 6. Wherefore, passing beyond all that can be known and understood, both spiritually and naturally, the soul will desire with all desire to come to that which in this life cannot be known, neither can enter into its heart. And, leaving behind all that it experiences and feels, both temporally and spiritually, and all that it is able to experience and feel in this life, it will desire with all desire to come to that which surpasses all feeling and experience. And, in order to be free and void to that end, it must in no wise lay hold upon that which it receives— either spiritually or sensually, within itself, as we shall explain presently when we treat this in detail, considering it all to be of much less account. For the more emphasis the soul lays upon what it understands, experiences, and imagines, and the more it esteems this, whether it be spiritual or no, the more it loses of the supreme good, and the more it is hindered from attaining thereto and the less it thinks of what it may have, however much this be, in comparison with the highest good, 
the more it dwells upon that good and esteems it, and, consequently, the more nearly it approaches it. And in this wise the soul approaches a great way towards union in darkness, by means of faith, which is likewise dark, and in this wise faith wondrously illumines it. It is certain that if the soul should desire to see, it would be in darkness much more quickly, with respect to God, than would one who opens his eyes to look upon the great brightness of the sun. 7. Wherefore, by blinding itself in its faculties upon this road, the soul will see the light, even as the Saviour says in the Gospel, I am come into this world for judgment, that they which see not may see, and that they which see may become blind. This, as it will be supposed, is to be understood of this spiritual road, where the soul that is in darkness and is blinded as regards all its natural and proper lights will see supernaturally, and the soul that would depend upon any light of its own will become the blinder and will halt upon the road to union. 8. And that we may proceed with less confusion, I think it will be necessary to describe in the following chapter the nature of this that we call union of the soul with God. For when this is understood, that which we shall say hereafter will become much clearer. And so I think the treatment of this union comes well at this point, as in its proper place. For although the thread of that which we are expounding is interrupted thereby, this is not done without a reason, since it serves to illustrate in this place the very thing that is being described. The chapter which follows, then, will be a parenthetical one, placed, as it were, between the two terms of an enthymeme, since we shall afterwards have to treat in detail of the three faculties of the soul, with respect to the three logical virtues, in relation to this second night. Chapter 5 Wherein is described what is meant by union of the soul with God. A comparison is given. From what has been said above, it becomes clear to some extent what we mean by union of the soul with God. What we now say about it, therefore, will be the better understood. It is not my intention here to treat of the divisions of this union, nor of its parts, for I should never end if I were to begin now to explain what is the nature of union of the understanding, and what is that of union according to the will, and likewise according to the memory, and likewise what is transitory and what permanent in the union of the said faculties, and then what is meant by total union, transitory and permanent, with regard to the said faculties altogether. All this we shall treat gradually in our discourse, speaking first of one and then of another. But here this is not to the point in order to describe what we have to say concerning them. It will be explained much more fittingly in its place, when we shall again be treating the same matter, and shall have a striking illustration to add to the present explanation, so that everything will then be considered and explained, and we shall judge of it better. 2. Here I treat only of this permanent and total union according to the substance of the soul and its faculties with respect to the obscure habit of union. For with respect to the act we shall explain later, with the divine favour, 
how there can be no permanent union in the faculties in this life, but a transitory union only. Three, in order then to understand what is meant by this union whereof we are treating, it must be known that God dwells and is present substantially in every soul, even in that of the greatest sinner in the world. And this kind of union is ever wrought between God and all the creatures, for in it He is preserving their being. If union of this kind were to fail them, they would at once become annihilated and would cease to be. And so, when we speak of union of the soul with God, we speak not of this substantial union which is continually being wrought, but of the union and transformation of the soul with God, which is not being wrought continually, but only when there is produced that likeness that comes from love. We shall therefore term this the union of likeness, even as that other union is called substantial or essential. The former is natural, the latter supernatural, and the latter comes to pass when the two wills, namely that of the soul and that of God, are conformed together in one, and there is naught in the one that repugnant to the other. And thus, when the soul rids itself totally of that which is repugnant to the divine will, and conforms not with it, it is transformed in God through love. 4. This is to be understood of that which is repugnant, not only in action, but likewise in habit, so that not only must the voluntary acts of imperfection cease, but the habits of any such imperfections must be annihilated. And since no creature whatsoever, and none of its actions or abilities, can conform or can attain to that which is God, therefore must the soul be stripped of all things created, and of its own actions and abilities, namely, of its understanding, perception, and feeling, so that, when all that is unlike God and unconformed to Him is cast out, the soul may receive the likeness of God, and nothing will then remain in it that is not the will of God, and it will thus be transformed in God. Wherefore, although it is true that, as we have said, God is ever in the soul, giving it, and through his presence, conserving within it its natural being, yet he does not always communicate supernatural being to it. For this is communicated only by love and grace, which not all souls possess, and all those that possess it have it not in the same degree, for some have attained more degrees of love and others fewer. Wherefore God communicates himself most to that soul that has progressed farthest in love, namely that has its will in closest conformity with the will of God, and the soul that has attained complete conformity and likeness of will is totally united and transformed in God supernaturally. Wherefore, as has already been explained, the more completely a soul is wrapped up in the creatures and in its own abilities by habit and affection, the less preparation it has for such union, for it gives not God a complete opportunity to transform it supernaturally. The soul, then, needs only to strip itself of these natural dissimilarities and contrarieties, so that God, who is communicating himself naturally to it, according to the course of nature, may communicate himself to it supernaturally by means of grace. 5. And it is this that St. John desired to explain when he said, 
He gave power to be sons of God, that is, to be transformed in God, only to those who are born, not of blood, that is, not of natural constitution and temperament, neither of the will, of the flesh, that is, of the free will of natural capacity and ability, still less of the will of man, wherein is included every way and manner of judging and comprehending with the understanding. He gave power to none of these to become sons of God, but only to those that are born of God. That is, to those who, being born again through grace and dying, first of all, to everything that is of the old man, are raised above themselves to the supernatural, and receive from God this rebirth and adoption, which transcends all that can be imagined. For, as St. John himself says elsewhere, he that is not born again in the Holy Spirit will not be able to see this kingdom of God, which is the state of perfection. And to be born again in the Holy Spirit in this life is to have a soul most like to God in purity, having in itself no admixture of imperfection, so that pure transformation can be wrought in it through participation of union, albeit not essentially. 6. In order that both these things may be the better understood, let us make a comparison. A ray of sunlight is striking a window. If the window is in any way stained or misty, the sun's ray will be unable to illumine it and transform it into its own light, totally, as it would if it were clean of all these things and pure. But it will illumine it to a lesser degree in proportion as it is less free from those mists and stains, and will do so to a greater degree in proportion as it is cleaner from them, and this will not be because of the sun's ray, but because of itself, so much so that if it be wholly pure and clean, the ray of sunlight will transform it and illumine it in such wise that it will itself seem to be a ray, and will give the same light as the ray. Although in reality the window has a nature distinct from that of the ray itself, however much it may resemble it, yet we may say that that window is a ray of the sun, or is light by participation. And the soul is like this window, whereupon is ever beating, or, to express it better, wherein is ever dwelling, this divine light of the being of God according to nature, which we have described. 7. In thus allowing God to work in it, the soul, having rid itself of every mist and stain of the creatures, which consists in having its will perfectly united with that of God, for to love is to labour, to detach and strip itself for God's sake of all that is not God, is at once illumined and transformed in God, and God communicates to it his supernatural being, in such wise that it appears to be God himself, and has all that God himself has. And this union comes to pass when God grants the soul this supernatural favour, that all the things of God and the soul are one in participant transformation, and the soul seems to be God rather than a soul, and is indeed God by participation, although it is true that its natural being, though thus transformed, is as distinct from the being of God as it was before, 
even as the window has likewise a nature distinct from that of the ray, though the ray gives it brightness. 8. This makes it clearer that the preparation of the soul for this union, as we said, is not that it should understand or perceive or feel or imagine anything concerning either God or aught else, but that it should have purity and love, that is, perfect resignation and detachment from everything for God's sake alone. And, as there can be no perfect transformation if there be not perfect purity, and as the enlightenment, illumination, and union of the soul with God will be according to the proportion of its purity, in greater or in less degree, yet the soul will not be perfect, as I say, if it be not wholly and perfectly bright and clean. 9. This will likewise be understood by the following comparison. A picture is truly perfect, with many and most sublime beauties and delicate and subtle illuminations, and some of its beauties are so fine and subtle that they cannot be completely realized because of their delicacy and excellence. Fewer beauties and less delicacy will be seen in this picture by one whose vision is less clear and refined, and he whose vision is somewhat more refined will be able to see in it more beauties and perfections, and, if another person has a vision still more refined, he will see still more perfection. And finally, he who has the clearest and purest faculties will see the most beauties and perfections of all. For there is so much to see in the picture that, however far one may attain, there will ever remain higher degrees of attainment. 10. After the same manner, we may describe the condition of the soul with relation to God in this enlightenment or transformation. For, although it is true that a soul, according to its greater or lesser capacity, may have attained to union, yet not all do so in an equal degree, for this depends upon what the Lord is pleased to grant to each one. It is in this way that souls see God in heaven, some more, some less, but all see Him, and all are content, for their capacity is satisfied. 11. Wherefore, although in this life here below we find certain souls enjoying equal peace and tranquillity in the state of perfection, and each one of them satisfied, yet some of them may be many degrees higher than others. All, however, will be equally satisfied, because the capacity of each one is satisfied. But the soul that attains not to such a measure of purity as is in conformity with its capacity never attains true peace and satisfaction, since it has not attained to the possession of that detachment and emptiness in its faculties which is required for simple union. Chapter 6 wherein is described how it is the three theological virtues that perfect the three faculties of the soul, and how the said virtues produce emptiness and darkness within them. Having now to endeavour to show how the three faculties of the soul, understanding, memory, and will, are brought into this spiritual night, which is the means to divine union, it is necessary first of all to explain in this chapter how the three theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity, which have respect to the three faculties aforesaid as their proper supernatural objects, 
and by means whereof the soul is united with God according to its faculties, produce the same emptiness and darkness, each one in its own faculty. Faith in the understanding, hope in the memory, and charity in the will. And afterwards we shall go on to describe how the understanding is perfected in the darkness of faith, and the memory in the emptiness of hope, and likewise how the will must be buried by withdrawing and detaching every affection so that the soul may journey to God. This done, it will be clearly seen how necessary it is for the soul, if it is to walk securely on this spiritual road, to travel through this dark night, leaning upon these three virtues, which empty it of all things and make it dark with respect to them. For, as we have said, the soul is not united with God in this life through understanding, nor through enjoyment, nor through the imagination, nor through any sense whatsoever, but only through faith, according to the understanding, and through hope, according to the memory, and through love, according to the will. 2. These three virtues, as we have said, all cause emptiness in the faculties. Faith in the understanding causes an emptiness and darkness with respect to understanding. Hope in the memory causes emptiness of all possessions and charity causes emptiness in the will and detachment from all affection, and from rejoicing in all that is not God. For, as we see, faith tells us what cannot be understood with the understanding. Wherefore St. Paul spoke of it as meaning that faith is the substance of things hoped for, and, although the understanding may be firmly and certainly consenting to them, they are not things that are revealed to the understanding, since, if they were revealed to it, there would be no faith. So faith, although it brings certainty to the understanding, brings it not clearness, but obscurity. 3. Then, as to hope, there is no doubt but that it renders the memory empty and dark with respect both to things below and to things above, for hope always relates to that which is not possessed. For if it were possessed, there would be no more hope. Wherefore St. Paul says, Hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, that is, what a man possesseth, how doth he hope for it? This virtue, then, also produces emptiness, for it has to do with that which is not possessed, and not with that which is possessed. 4. Similarly, charity causes emptiness in the will with respect to all things, since it obliges us to love God above them all, which cannot be unless we withdraw our affection from them in order to set it wholly upon God. Wherefore, Christ says, through St. Luke, He that renounces not all that he possesses with the will cannot be my disciple. And thus all these three virtues set the soul in obscurity and emptiness with respect to all things. 5. And here we must consider that parable which our Redeemer related in the eleventh chapter of St. Luke, wherein he said that a friend had to go out at midnight in order to ask his friend for three loaves, the which loaves signified these three virtues. 
and he said that he asked for them at midnight in order to signify that the soul that is in darkness as to all things must acquire these three virtues according to its faculties, and must perfect itself in them in this night. In the sixth chapter of Isaiah, we read that the two seraphim whom this prophet saw on either side of God had each six wings. With two they covered their feet, which signified the blinding and quenching of the affections of the will with respect to all things for the sake of God. And with two they covered their face, which signified the darkness of the understanding in the presence of God. And with the other two they flew. This is to signify the flight of hope to the things that are not possessed, when it is raised above all that it can possess, whether below or above, apart from God. 6. To these three virtues, then, we have to lead the three faculties of the soul, informing each faculty by each one of them, and stripping it and setting it in darkness concerning all things, save only these three virtues. And this is the spiritual night which just now we called active, for the soul does that which in it lies in order to enter therein. And even as in the night of sense we described a method of voiding the faculties of sense of their sensible objects with regard to the desire, so that the soul might go forth from the beginning of its course to the mean, which is faith, even so, in this spiritual night, with the favour of God, we shall describe a method whereby the spiritual faculties are voided and purified of all that is not God, and are set in darkness concerning these three virtues, which, as we have said, are the means and preparation for the union of the soul with God. 7. In this method is found all security against the crafts of the devil and against the efficacy of self-love and its ramifications, which is wont most subtly to deceive and hinder spiritual persons on their road, when they know not how to become detached and to govern themselves according to these three virtues, and thus they are never able to reach the substance and purity of spiritual good nor do they journey by so straight and short a road as they might. 8. And it must be noted that I am now speaking particularly to those who have begun to enter the state of contemplation, because as far as this concerns beginners, it must be described somewhat more amply, as we shall note in the second book, God willing, when we treat of the properties of these beginners. Chapter 7 wherein is described how straight is the way that leads to eternal life, and how completely detached and disencumbered must be those that will walk in it. We begin to speak of the detachment of the understanding. We have now to describe the detachment and purity of the three faculties of the soul, and for this are necessary a far greater knowledge and spirituality than mine, in order to make clear to spiritual persons how straight is this road, which, said our Saviour, leads to life, so that, persuaded of this, they may not marvel at the emptiness and detachment to which in this night we have to abandon the faculties of the soul. 2. To this end must be carefully noted the words which our Saviour used in the seventh chapter of St. Matthew concerning this road as follows. How straight is the gate, and how narrow the way that leadeth unto life, and few there are that find it. 
In this passage, we must carefully note the emphasis and insistence which are contained in that word quam. For it is as if he had said, In truth, the way is very straight, more so than you think. And likewise, it is to be noted that he says, First, that the gate is straight, to make it clear that, in order for the soul to enter by this gate, which is Christ, and which comes at the beginning of the road, the will must first be straightened and detached in all things sensual and temporal, and God must be loved above them all, which belongs to the night of sense, as we have said. 3. He then says that the way is narrow, that is to say, the way of perfection, in order to make it clear that, to travel upon the way of perfection, the soul has not only to enter by the straight gate, emptying itself of things of sense, but also to straighten itself, freeing and disencumbering itself completely in that which pertains to the spirit. And thus we can apply what he says of the straight gate to the sensual part of man, and what he says of the narrow road we can understand of the spiritual or the rational part, and when he says, Few there are that find it, the reason of this must be noted, which is that there are few who can enter and desire to enter into this complete detachment and emptiness of spirit. For this path, ascending the high mountain of perfection, leads upward and is narrow, and therefore requires travellers that have no burden weighing upon them with respect to lower things, neither aught that embarrasses them with respect to higher things, and, as this is a matter wherein we must seek after and attain to God alone, God alone must be the object of our search and attainment. 4. Hence it is clearly seen that the soul must not only be disencumbered from that which belongs to the creatures, but likewise, as it travels, must be annihilated and detached from all that belongs to its spirit. Wherefore our Lord, instructing us and leading us into this road, gave in the eighth chapter of St. Mark that wonderful teaching of which I think it may almost be said that the more necessary it is for spiritual persons, the less it is practised by them. As this teaching is so important and so much to our purpose, I shall reproduce it here in full and expound it according to its genuine spiritual sense. He says then thus, If any man will follow my road, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For he that will save his soul shall lose it, but he that loses it for my sake shall gain it. Five, oh, that one could show us how to understand, practice, and experience what this counsel is which our Saviour here gives us concerning self-denial, so that spiritual persons might see in how different a way they should conduct themselves upon this road from that which many of them think proper. For they believe that any kind of retirement and reformation of life suffices, and others are content with practising the virtues and continuing in prayer and pursuing mortification. But they attain not to detachment and poverty or selflessness or spiritual purity, which are all one, which the Lord here commends to us. For they prefer feeding and clothing their natural selves with spiritual feelings and consolations to stripping themselves of all things and denying themselves all things for God's sake. 
for they think that it suffices to deny themselves worldly things without annihilating and purifying themselves of spiritual attachment. Wherefore it comes to pass that, when there presents itself to them any of this solid and perfect spirituality, consisting in the annihilation of all sweetness in God, in aridity, distaste, and trial, which is the true spiritual cross, and the detachment of the spiritual poverty of Christ, they flee from it as from death, and seek only sweetness and delectable communion with God. This is not self-denial and detachment of spirit, but spiritual gluttony. Herein, spiritually, they become enemies of the cross of Christ, for true spirituality seeks for God's sake that which is distasteful rather than that which is delectable, and inclines itself rather to suffering than to consolation, and desires to go without all blessings for God's sake rather than to possess them, and to endure aridities and afflictions rather than to enjoy sweet communications, knowing that this is to follow Christ and to deny oneself, and that the other is perchance to seek oneself in God, which is clean contrary to love. For to seek oneself in God is to seek the favours and refreshments of God, but to seek God in oneself is not only to desire to be without both of these for God's sake, but to be disposed to choose for Christ's sake all that is most distasteful, whether in relation to God or to the world, and this is love of God. 6. Oh, that one could tell us how far our Lord desires this self-denial to be carried! It must certainly be like to death and annihilation, temporal, natural, and spiritual, in all things that the will esteems wherein consists all self-denial. And it is this that our Lord meant when he said, He that will save his life, the same shall lose it. That is to say, he that will possess anything or seek anything for himself, the same shall lose it, and he that loses his soul for my sake, the same shall gain it. That is to say, he who for Christ's sake renounces all that his will can desire and enjoy, and chooses that which is most like to the cross, which the Lord himself, through St. John, describes as hating his soul, the same shall gain it. And this his majesty taught to those two disciples who went and begged him for a place on his right hand and on his left, when, giving no countenance to their request for such glory, he offered them the chalice which he had to drink, as a thing more precious and more secure upon this earth than is fruition. 7. This chalice is death to the natural self, a death attained through the detachment and annihilation of that self, in order that the soul may travel by this narrow path, with respect to all its connections with sense, as we have said, and according to the spirit, as we shall now say, that is, in its understanding, and in its enjoyment, and in its feeling. And as a result, not only has the soul made its renunciation as regards both sense and spirit, but it is not hindered, even by that which is spiritual, in taking the narrow way, on which there is room only for self-denial, as the Saviour explains, and the cross, which is the staff wherewith one may reach one's goal, and whereby the road is greatly lightened and made easy. 
Wherefore, our Lord said through St. Matthew, My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Which burden is the cross? For if a man resolved to submit himself to carrying this cross, that is to say, if he resolved to desire in truth to meet trials and to bear them in all things for God's sake, he will find in them all great relief and sweetness, wherewith he may travel upon this road, detached from all things, and desiring nothing. Yet, if he desire to possess anything, whether it come from God or from any other source, with any feeling of attachment, he has not stripped and denied himself in all things, and thus he will be unable to walk along this narrow path or to climb upward by it. 8. I would, then, that I could convince spiritual persons that this road to God consists not in a multiplicity of meditations, nor in ways or methods of such, nor in consolations, although these things may in their own way be necessary to beginners, but that it consists only in the one thing that is needful, which is the ability to deny oneself truly, according to that which is without and to that which is within, giving oneself up to suffering for Christ's sake and to total annihilation. For the soul that practices this suffering and annihilation will achieve all that those other exercises can achieve, and that can be found in them, and even more. And if a soul be found wanting in this exercise, which is the sum and root of the virtues, all its other methods are so much beating about the bush, and profiting not at all, although its meditations and communications may be as lofty as those of the angels. For progress comes not save through the imitation of Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by him, even as he himself says through St. John. And elsewhere he says, I am the door. By me, if any man enter, he shall be saved. Wherefore, as it seems to me, any spirituality that would fain walk in sweetness and with ease, and flees from the imitation of Christ, is worthless. 9. And, as I have said that Christ is the way, and that this way is death to our natural selves, in things both of sense and of spirit, I will now explain how we are to die, following the example of Christ, for He is our example and light. 10. In the first place, it is certain that he died as to sense, spiritually, in his life, besides dying naturally, at his death. For, as he said, he had not in his life where to lay his head, and at his death this was even truer. 11. In the second place, it is certain that at the moment of his death he was likewise annihilated in his soul, and was deprived of any relief and consolation, since his father left him in the most intense aridity, according to the lower part of his nature. Wherefore he had perforce to cry out, saying, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This was the greatest desolation with respect to sense that he had suffered in his life. And thus he wrought herein the greatest work that he had ever wrought, whether in miracles or in mighty works, during the whole of his life, either upon earth or in heaven, which was the reconciliation and union of mankind through grace with God. And this, as I say, 
was at the moment and the time when this lord was most completely annihilated in everything. Annihilated, that is to say, with respect to human reputation. Since when men saw him die, they mocked him rather than esteemed him, and also with respect to nature, since his nature was annihilated when he died, and further with respect to the spiritual consolation and protection of the father, since at that time he forsook him, that he might pay the whole of man's debt and unite him with God, being thus annihilated and reduced, as it were, to nothing. Wherefore David says concerning him, Ad nihilum redactus sum et nesivi. This he said, that the truly spiritual man may understand the mystery of the gate and of the way of Christ, and so become united with God, and may know that the more completely he is annihilated for God's sake according to these two parts, the sensual and the spiritual, the more completely is he united to God, and the greater is the work which he accomplishes. And when at last he is reduced to nothing, which will be the greatest extreme of humility, spiritual union will be wrought between the soul and God, which in this life is the greatest and the highest state attainable. This consists not, then, in refreshment and in consolations and spiritual feelings, but in a living death of the cross, both as to sense and as to spirit, that is, both inwardly and outwardly. 12. I will not pursue this subject farther, although I have no desire to finish speaking of it, for I see that Christ is known very little by those who consider themselves his friends. We see them seeking in him their own pleasures and consolations because of their great love for themselves, but not loving his bitter trials and his death because of their great love for him. I am speaking now of those who consider themselves his friends, for such as live far away, withdrawn from him, men of great learning and influence, and all others who live yonder with the world, and are eager about their ambitions and their prelacies, may be said not to know Christ, and their end, however good, will be very bitter. Of such I make no mention in these lines, but mention will be made of them on the day of judgment, for to them it was fitting to speak first this word of God, as to those whom God set up as a target for it, by reason of their learning and their high position. 13. But let us now address the understanding of the spiritual man, and particularly that of the man to whom God has granted the favour of leading him into the state of contemplation. For, as I have said, I am now speaking to these in particular, and let us say how such a man must direct himself toward God in faith, and purify himself from contrary things, constraining himself that he may enter upon this narrow path of obscure contemplation. Chapter 8 Which describes in a general way how no creature and no knowledge that can be comprehended by the understanding can serve as a proximate means of divine union with God. Before we treat of the proper and fitting means of union with God, which is faith, it behooves us to prove how no thing, created or imagined, can serve the understanding as a proper means of union with God, and how all that the understanding can attain serves it rather as an impediment than as such a means, if it should desire to cling to it. 
and now in this chapter we shall prove this in a general way, and afterwards we shall begin to speak in detail, treating in turn of all kinds of knowledge that the understanding may receive from any sense, whether inward or outward, and of the inconveniences and evils that may result from all these kinds of inward and outward knowledge when it clings not, as it progresses, to the proper means, which is faith. 2. It must be understood, then, that, according to a rule of philosophy, all means must be proportioned to the end, that is to say, they must have some connection and resemblance with the end, such as is enough and sufficient for the desired end to be attained through them. I take an example. A man desires to reach a city. He has, of necessity, to travel by the road, which is the means that brings him to this same city and connects him with it. Another example. Fire is to be combined and united with wood. It is necessary that heat, which is the means, shall first prepare the wood by conveying to it so many degrees of warmth that it will have great resemblance and proportion to fire. Now, if one would prepare the wood by any other than the proper means, namely with heat, as, for example, with air or water or earth, it would be impossible for the wood to be united with the fire, just as it would be to reach the city without going by the road that leads to it. Wherefore, in order that the understanding may be united with God in this life, so far as is possible, it must, of necessity, employ that means that unites it with him and that bears the greatest resemblance to him. 3. Here it must be pointed out that, among all the creatures, the highest or the lowest, there is none that comes near to God or bears any resemblance to His being. For, although it is true that all creatures have, as theologians say, a certain relation to God, and bear a divine impress, some more and others less, according to the greater or lesser excellence of their nature, Yet there is no essential resemblance or connection between them and God. On the contrary, the distance between their being and His divine being is infinite. Wherefore, it is impossible for the understanding to attain to God by means of the creatures, whether these be celestial or earthly, inasmuch as there is no proportion or resemblance between them. Wherefore, when David speaks of the heavenly creatures, he says, there is none among the gods like unto thee, O Lord, meaning by the gods the angels and holy souls, and elsewhere, O God, thy way is in the holy place. What god is there so great as our god? As though he were to say, The way of approach to thee, O God, is a holy way, that is, the purity of faith. For what god can there be so great? That is to say, what angel will there be so exalted in his being, and what saint so exalted in glory, as to be a proportionate and sufficient road by which a man may come to thee? And the same David, speaking likewise of earthly and heavenly things both together, says, The Lord is high, and looketh on lowly things, and the high things he knoweth afar off. As though he had said, Lofty in his own being, he sees that the being of things here below is very low in comparison with his lofty being, 
and the lofty things which are these celestial creatures he sees and knows to be very far from his being. All the creatures, then, cannot serve as a proportionate means to the understanding whereby it may reach God. 4. Just so all that the imagination can imagine and the understanding can receive and understand in this life is not, nor can it be, approximate means of union with God. For if we speak of natural things, since understanding can understand naught save that which is contained within, and comes under the category of forms and imaginings of things that are received through the bodily senses, the which things we have said cannot serve as means, it can make no use of natural intelligence. And if we speak of the supernatural, in so far as is possible in this life of our ordinary faculties, the understanding in its bodily prison has no preparation or capacity for receiving the clear knowledge of God. For such knowledge belongs not to this state, and we must either die or remain without receiving it. Wherefore Moses, when he entreated God for this clear knowledge, was told by God that he would be unable to see him, in these words, No man shall see me and remain alive. Wherefore St. John says, No man hath seen God at any time, neither aught that is like to him. And St. Paul says with Isaiah, I hath not seen him, nor hath ear heard him, neither hath it entered into the heart of man. And it is for this reason that, as is said in the Acts of the Apostles, Moses in the bush durst not consider for as long as God was present, for he knew that his understanding could make no consideration that was fitting concerning God, corresponding to the sense which he had of God's presence. And of Elias our father, it is said that he covered his face on the mount in the presence of God, an action signifying the blinding of his understanding, which he wrought there, daring not to lay so base a hand upon that which was so high, and seeing clearly that whatsoever he might consider or understand with any precision would be very far from God and completely unlike him. 5. Wherefore no supernatural apprehension or knowledge in this mortal state can serve as approximate means to the high union of love with God. For all that can be understood by the understanding, that can be tasted by the will, and that can be invented by the imagination, is most unlike to God and bears no proportion to Him, as we have said. All this Isaiah admirably explained in that most noteworthy passage where he says, to what thing have ye been able to liken God, or what image will ye make that is like to him? Will the workman in iron perchance be able to make a graven image, or will he that works gold be able to imitate him with gold, or the silversmith with plates of silver? By the workman in iron is signified the understanding, the office of which is to form intelligence and strip them of the iron of species and images. By the workman in gold is understood the will, which is able to receive the figure and the form of pleasure caused by the gold of love. By the silversmith, who is spoken of as being unable to form him with plates of silver, 
is understood the memory with the imagination, whereof it may be said with great propriety that its knowledge and the imaginings that it can invent and make are like plates of silver. And thus it is as though he had said, Neither the understanding with its intelligence will be able to understand aught that is like him, nor can the will taste pleasure and sweetness that bears any resemblance to that which is God. Neither can the memory set in the imagination ideas and images that represent him. It is clear, then, that none of these kinds of knowledge can lead the understanding direct to God, and that, in order to reach him, a soul must rather proceed by not understanding than by desiring to understand, and by blinding itself and setting itself in darkness— rather than by opening its eyes in order the more nearly to approach the ray divine. 6. And thus it is that contemplation, whereby the understanding has the loftiest knowledge of God, is called mystical theology, which signifies secret wisdom of God, for it is secret even to the understanding that receives it. For that reason St. Dionysius calls it a ray of darkness. Of this the prophet Baruch says, There is none that knoweth its way, nor any that can think of its paths. It is clear, then, that the understanding must be blind to all paths that are open to it, in order that it may be united with God. Aristotle says that, Even as are the eyes of the bat with regard to the sun, which is total darkness to it, even so is our understanding to that which is greater light in God which is total darkness to us. And he says further that the loftier and clearer are the things of God in themselves, the more completely unknown and obscure are they to us. This, likewise, the Apostle affirms, saying, The lofty things of God are the least known unto men. 7. But we should never end, if we continued at this rate, to quote authorities and arguments to prove and to make clear that among all created things, and things that can be apprehended by the understanding, there is no ladder whereby the understanding can attain to this high Lord. Rather, it is necessary to know that if the understanding should seek to make use of all these things, or of any of them, as approximate means to such union, they would be not only a hindrance, but even an occasion of numerous errors and delusions in the ascent of this mount. Chapter 9 How faith is the proximate and proportionate means to the understanding whereby the soul may attain to the divine union of love. This is proved by passages and figures from divine scripture. From what has been said, it is to be inferred that, in order for the understanding to be prepared for this divine union, it must be pure and void of all that pertains to sense, and detached and freed from all that can clearly be apprehended by the understanding, profoundly hushed and put to silence, and leaning upon faith, which alone is the proximate and proportionate means whereby the soul is united with God. For such is the likeness between itself and God, that there is no other difference, save that which exists between seeing God and believing in Him. For even as God is infinite, so faith sets Him before us as infinite, 
and as he is three and one, it sets him before us as three and one, and as God is darkness to our understanding, even so does faith likewise blind and dazzle our understanding. And thus, by this means alone, God manifests himself to the soul in divine light, which passes all understanding. And therefore, the greater is the faith of the soul, the more closely is it united with God. It is this that St. Paul meant in the passage which we quoted above, where he says, He that will be united with God must believe. That is, he must walk by faith as he journeys to him, the understanding being blind and in darkness, walking in faith alone. For beneath this darkness the understanding is united with God, and beneath it God is hidden, even as David said in these words, He set darkness under his feet, and he rose upon the cherubim, and flew upon the wings of the wind, and he made darkness and the dark water his hiding place. 2. By his saying that he set darkness beneath his feet, and that he took the darkness for a hiding place, and that his tabernacle round about him was in the dark water, is denoted the obscurity of the faith wherein he is concealed. And by his saying that he rose upon the cherubim and flew upon the wings of the winds, is understood his soaring above all understanding. For the cherubim denote those who understand or contemplate, and the wings of the winds signify the subtle and lofty ideas and conceptions of spirits, above all of which is his being, and to which none by his own power can attain. 3. This we learn from an illustration in the Scriptures. When Solomon had completed the building of the temple, God came down in darkness and filled the temple so that the children of Israel could not see. Whereupon Solomon spake and said, The Lord hath promised that he will dwell in darkness. Likewise he appeared in darkness to Moses on the mount where God was concealed. And whensoever God communicated himself intimately, he appeared in darkness, as may be seen in Job, where the Scripture says that God spoke with him from the darkness of the air. All these mentions of darkness signify the obscurity of the faith wherein the divinity is concealed, when it communicates itself to the soul, which will be ended when, as St. Paul says, that which is in part shall be ended, which is this darkness of faith, and that which is perfect shall come, which is the divine light. Of this we have a good illustration in the army of Gideon, whereof it is said all the soldiers had lamps in their hands, which they saw not, because they had them concealed in the darkness of the pitchers. But when these pitchers were broken, the light was seen. Just so does faith, which is foreshadowed by those pitchers, contain within itself divine light, which, when it is ended and broken at the ending and breaking of this mortal life, will allow the glory and light of the divinity which was contained in it to appear. 4. It is clear, then, that if the soul in this life is to attain to union with God and commune directly with him, it must unite itself with the darkness whereof Solomon spake, wherein God had promised to dwell, and must draw near to the darkness of the air wherein God was pleased to reveal his secrets to Job, and must take in its hands, in darkness, the jars of Gideon, 
that it may have in its hands, that is, in the works of its will, the light which is the union of love, though it be in the darkness of faith, so that when the pitchers of this life are broken, which alone have kept from it the light of faith, it may see God face to face in glory. 5. It now remains to describe in detail all the types of knowledge and the apprehensions which the understanding can receive, the hindrance and the harm which it can receive upon this road of faith, and the way wherein the soul must conduct itself, so that, whether they proceed from the senses or from the spirit, they may cause it not harm, but profit. CHAPTER Ten, WHEREIN DISTINCTION IS MADE BETWEEN ALL APPREHENSIONS AND TYPES OF KNOWLEDGE WHICH CAN BE COMPREHENDED BY THE UNDERSTANDING. In order to treat in detail of the profit and the harm which may come to the soul with respect to this means to divine union which we have described, namely faith, through the ideas and apprehensions of the understanding, it is necessary here to make a distinction between all the apprehensions, whether natural or supernatural, that the soul may receive, so that then, with regard to each of them in order, we may direct the understanding with greater clearness into the night and obscurity of faith. This will be done with all possible brevity. 2. It must be known, then, that the understanding can receive knowledge and intelligence by two channels, the one natural and the other supernatural. By the natural channel is meant all that the understanding can understand, whether by means of the bodily senses or by its own power. The supernatural channel is all that is given to the understanding over and above its natural ability and capacity. 3. Of these kinds of supernatural knowledge, some are corporeal and some are spiritual. The corporeal are two in number. Some are received by means of the outward bodily senses, others by means of the inward bodily senses, wherein is comprehended all that the imagination can comprehend, form, and conceive. 4. The spiritual supernatural knowledge is likewise of two kinds, that which is distinct and special in its nature, and that which is confused, general, and dark. Of the distinct and special kind there are four manners of apprehension which are communicated to the spirit without the aid of any bodily sense. There are visions, revelations, locutions, and spiritual feelings. The obscure and general type of knowledge is of one kind alone, which is contemplation that is given in faith. To this we have to lead the soul by bringing it thereto through all these other means, beginning with the first and detaching it from them. Chapter 11 of the hindrance and harm that may be caused by apprehension of the understanding which proceed from that which is supernaturally represented to the outward bodily senses, and how the soul is to conduct itself therein. The first kinds of knowledge whereof we have spoken in the preceding chapter are those that belong to the understanding and come through natural channels. Of these, since we have treated them already in the first book, where we led the soul into the night of sense, we shall here say not a word, for in that place we gave suitable instruction to the soul concerning them. 
What we have to treat, therefore, in the present chapter, will be solely those kinds of knowledge and those apprehensions which belong to the understanding and come supernaturally by way of the outward bodily senses, namely by seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and touching. With respect to all these, there may come, and there are wont to come, to spiritual persons, representations, and objects of a supernatural kind. With respect to sight, they are apt to picture figures and forms of persons belonging to the life to come, the forms of certain saints, and representations of angels, good and evil, and certain lights and brightnesses of an extraordinary kind. And with the ears, they hear certain extraordinary words, sometimes spoken by those figures that they see, sometimes without seeing the person who speaks them. As to the sense of smell, they sometimes perceive the sweetest perfumes with the senses, without knowing whence they proceed. Likewise, as to taste, it comes to pass that they are conscious of the sweetest savours, and as to touch, they experience great delight, sometimes to such a degree that it is as though all the bones and the marrow rejoice and sing, and are bathed in delight. This is like that which we call spiritual unction, which in pure souls proceeds from the spirit and flows into the very members. And this sensible sweetness is a very ordinary thing with spiritual persons, for it comes to them from their sensible affection and devotion, to a greater or a lesser degree, to each one after his own manner. 2. And it must be known that, although all these things may happen to the bodily senses in the way of God, we must never rely upon them or accept them, but must always fly from them without trying to ascertain whether they be good or evil. For the more completely exterior and corporeal they are, the less certainly are they of God. For it is more proper and habitual to God to communicate himself to the spirit, wherein there is more security and profit for the soul, than to sense, wherein there is ordinarily much danger and deception. For bodily sense judges and makes its estimate of spiritual things by thinking that they are as it feels them to be, whereas they are as different as is the body from the soul and sensuality from reason. For the bodily sense is as ignorant of spiritual things as is a beast of rational things, and even more so. 3. So he that esteems such things errs greatly and exposes himself to great peril of being deceived. In any case, he will have within himself a complete impediment to the attainment of spirituality. For, as we have said, between spiritual things and all these bodily things, there exists no kind of proportion whatever. And thus it may always be supposed that such things as these are more likely to be of the devil than of God. For the devil has more influence in that which is exterior and corporeal, and can deceive a soul more easily thereby, than by that which is more interior and spiritual. 4. And the more exterior are these corporeal forms and objects in themselves, the less do they profit the interior and spiritual nature, because of the great distance and the lack of proportion existing between the corporeal and the spiritual. For, although there is communicated by their means a certain degree of spirituality, as is always the case with things that come from God, 
much less is communicated than would be the case if the same things were more interior and spiritual, and thus they very easily become the means whereby error and presumption and vanity grow in the soul, since, as they are so palpable and material, they stir the senses greatly, and it appears to the judgment of the soul that they are of greater importance because they are more readily felt. Thus the soul goes after them, abandoning faith and thinking that the light which it receives from them is the guide and means to its desired goal, which is union with God. But the more attention it pays to such things, the farther it strays from the true way and means, which are faith. 5. And besides all this, when the soul sees that such extraordinary things happen to it, it is often visited insidiously and secretly by a certain complacency, so that it thinks itself to be of some importance in the eyes of God, which is contrary to humility. The devil, too, knows how to insinuate into the soul a secret satisfaction with itself, which at times becomes very evident, wherefore he frequently represents these objects to the senses, setting before the eyes figures of saints and most beauteous lights, and before the ears words very much dissembled, and representing also sweetest perfumes, delicious tastes, and things delectable to the touch, to the end that, by producing desires for such things, he may lead the soul into much evil. These representations and feelings, therefore, must always be rejected, for even though some of them be of God, he is not offended by their rejection, nor is the effect and fruit which he desires to produce in the soul by means of them any the less surely received, because the soul rejects them and desires them not. 6. The reason for this is that corporeal vision, or feeling in respect to any of the other senses, or any other communication of the most interior kind, if it be of God, produces its effect upon the spirit at the very moment when it appears or is felt, without giving the soul time or opportunity to deliberate whether it will accept or reject it. For even as God gives these things supernaturally, without effort on the part of the soul, and independently of its capacity, even so likewise, without respect to its effort or capacity, God produces in it the effect that he desires by means of such things. For this is a thing that is wrought and brought to pass in the spirit passively, and thus its acceptance or non-acceptance consists not in the acceptance or the rejection of it by the will. It is as though fire were applied to a person's naked body. It would matter little whether or no he wished to be burned. The fire would of necessity accomplish its work. Just so is it with visions and representations that are good. Even though the soul desire it not, they work their effect upon it, chiefly and especially in the soul rather than in the body. And likewise, those that come from the devil, without the consent of the soul, cause it disturbance or aridity or vanity or presumption in the spirit. Yet these are not so effective to work evil as are those of God to work good. For those of the devil can only set in action the first movements of the will, and move it no farther, unless the soul be consenting thereto. And such trouble continues not long unless the soul's lack of courage and prudence be the occasion of its continuance. 
but the visions that are of God penetrate the soul and move the will to love, and produce their effect, which the soul cannot resist, even though it would, any more than the window can resist the sun's rays when they strike. 7. The soul, then, must never presume to desire to receive them, even though, as I say, they be of God. For if it desire to receive them, there follow six inconveniences. The first is that faith grows gradually less, for things that are experienced by the senses derogate from faith, since faith, as we have said, transcends every sense, and thus the soul withdraws itself from the means of union with God when it closes not its eyes to all these things of sense. Secondly, if they be not rejected, they are a hindrance to the spirit, for the soul rests in them, and its spirit soars not to the invisible. This was one of the reasons why the Lord said to his disciples that it was needful for him to go away, that the Holy Spirit might come. So, too, he forbade Mary Magdalene to touch his feet after his resurrection, that she might be grounded in faith. Thirdly, the soul becomes attached to these things, and advances not to true resignation and detachment of spirit. Fourthly, it begins to lose the effect of them and the inward spirituality which they cause it, because it sets its eyes upon their sensual aspect, which is the least important, and thus it receives not so fully the spirituality which they cause, which is impressed and preserved more securely when all things of sense are rejected, since these are very different from pure spirit. Fifthly, the soul begins to lose the favours of God, because it accepts them as though they belong to it, and profits not by them as it should. And to accept them in this way, and not to profit by them, is to seek after them. But God gives them not that the soul may seek after them, nor should the soul take upon itself to believe that they are of God. Sixthly, a readiness to accept them opens the door to the devil that he may deceive the soul by other things like to them, which he very well knows how to dissimulate and disguise, so that they may appear to be good. For, as the Apostle says, he can transform himself into an angel of light. Of this we shall treat hereafter, by the divine favour, in our third book in the chapter upon spiritual gluttony. 8. It is always well, then, that the soul should reject these things and close its eyes to them, whensoever they come. For unless it does so, it will prepare the way for those things that come from the devil, and will give him such influence that not only will his visions come in place of God's, but his visions will begin to increase and those of God to cease, in such manner that the devil will have all the power and God will have none. So it has happened to many incautious and ignorant souls who rely on these things to such an extent that many of them have found it hard to return to God in purity of faith, and many have been unable to return, so securely has the devil rooted himself in them. For which reason it is well to resist and reject them all. For by the rejection of evil visions the errors of the devil are avoided, and by the rejection of good visions no hindrance is offered to faith, and the spirit harvests the fruit of them. And just as when the soul allows them entrance, 
God begins to withhold them because the soul is becoming attached to them and is not profiting by them as it should, while the devil insinuates and increases his own visions where he finds occasion and cause for them. Just so, when the soul is resigned or even averse to them, the devil begins to desist, since he sees that he is working it no harm. And contrariwise, God begins to increase and magnify his favours in a soul that is so humble and detached, making it ruler over many things, even as he made the servant who was faithful in small things. 9. In these favours, if the soul be faithful and humble, the Lord will not cease until he has raised it from one step to another, even to divine union and transformation. For our Lord continues to prove the soul and to raise it ever higher, so that he first gives it things that are very unpretentious and exterior and in the order of sense, in conformity with the smallness of its capacity, to the end that, when it behaves as it should and receives these first morsels with moderation for its strength and sustenance, he may grant it further and better food. If, then, the soul conquer the devil upon the first step, it will pass to the second, and if upon the second, likewise it will pass to the third, and so onward through all seven mansions, which are the seven steps of love, until the spouse shall bring it to the cellar of wine of his perfect charity. 10. Happy the soul that can fight against that beast of the apocalypse, which has seven heads, set over against these seven steps of love, which makes war therewith against each one, and strives therewith against the soul in each of these mansions, wherein the soul is being exercised and is mounting step by step in the love of God. And undoubtedly, if it strive faithfully against each of these heads and gain the victory, it will deserve to pass from one step to another, and from one mansion to another, and even unto the last, leaving the beast vanquished after destroying its seven heads, wherewith it made so furious a war upon it. So furious is this war that St. John says in that place that it was given unto the beast to make war against the saints, and to be able to overcome them upon each one of these steps of love, arraying against each one many weapons and munitions of war. And it is therefore greatly to be lamented that many who engage in this spiritual battle against the beast do not even destroy its first head by denying themselves the sensual things of the world. And though some destroy and cut off this head, they destroy not the second head, which is that of the visions of sense whereof we are speaking. But what is most to be lamented is that some, having destroyed not only the first and the second, but even the third, which is that of the interior senses, pass out of the state of meditation and travel still farther onward, and are overcome by this spiritual beast at the moment of their entering into purity of spirit, for he rises up against them once more, and even his first head comes to life again, and the last state of those souls is worse than the first, since when they fall back the beast brings with him seven other spirits worse than himself. 11. The spiritual person, then, has to deny himself all the apprehensions and the temporal delights that belong to the outward senses 
if he will destroy the first and the second head of this beast, and enter into the first chamber of love, and the second, which is of living faith, desiring neither to lay hold upon nor to be embarrassed by that which is given to the senses, since it is this that derogates most from faith. 12. It is clear, then, that these sensual apprehensions and visions cannot be a means to union, since they bear no proportion to God, and this was one of the reasons why Christ desired that the Magdalene and St. Thomas should not touch him. And so the devil rejoices greatly when a soul desires to receive revelations, and when he sees it inclined to them, for he has then a great occasion and opportunity to insinuate errors, and, in so far as he is able, to derogate from faith. For, as I have said, he renders the soul that desires them very gross, and at times even leads it into many temptations and unseemly ways. 13. I have written at some length of these outward apprehensions in order to throw and shed rather more light on the others whereof we have to treat shortly. There is so much to say on this part of my subject that I could go on and never end. I believe, however, that I am summarizing it sufficiently by merely saying that the soul must take care never to receive these apprehensions save occasionally on another person's advice, which should very rarely be given and even then it must have no desire for them. I think that on this part of my subject what I have said is sufficient. Chapter 12 Which treats of natural imaginary apprehensions, describes their nature, and proves that they cannot be a proportionate means of attainment to union with God shows the harm which results from inability to detach oneself from them. Before we treat of the imaginary visions which are wont to occur supernaturally to the interior sense, which is the imagination and the fancy, it is fitting here, so that we may proceed in order, to treat of the natural apprehensions of this same interior bodily sense, in order that we may proceed from the lesser to the greater, and from the more exterior to the more interior, until we reach the most interior recollection, wherein the soul is united with God. This same order we have followed up to this point, for we treated first of all the detachment of the exterior senses from the natural apprehensions of objects, and in consequence from the natural power of the desires. This was contained in the first book, wherein we spoke of the night of sense. We then began to detach these same senses from supernatural exterior apprehensions, which, as we have just shown in the last chapter, affect the exterior senses in order to lead the soul into the night of the spirit. 2. In this second book, the first thing that is now to be treated is the interior bodily sense, namely the imagination and the fancy. This we must likewise void of all the imaginary apprehensions and forms that may belong to it by nature, and we must prove how impossible it is that the soul should attain to union with God until its operations cease in them, since they cannot be the proper and proximate means of this union. 3. It is to be known, then, 
that the senses whereof we are here particularly speaking are two interior bodily senses which are called imagination and fancy, which subserve each other in due order. For the one sense reasons, as it were, by imagining, and the other forms the imagination, or that which is imagined, by making use of the fancy. For our purpose, the discussion of the one is equivalent to that of the other, and, for this reason, when we name them not both, it must be understood that we are speaking of either, as we have here explained. All the things, then, that these senses can receive and fashion are known as imaginations and fancies, which are forms that are represented to these senses by bodily figures and images. This can happen in two ways. The one way is supernatural, wherein representation can be made and is made to these senses passively, without any effort of their own. These we call imaginary visions, produced after a supernatural manner, and of these we shall speak hereafter. The other way is natural, wherein, through the ability of the soul, these things can be actively fashioned in it through its operation, beneath forms, figures, and images. And thus, to these two faculties belongs meditation, which is a discursive action wrought by means of images, forms, and figures that are fashioned and imagined by the said senses, as when we imagine Christ crucified or bound to the column or at another of the stations, or when we imagine God seated upon a throne with great majesty, or when we consider and imagine glory to be like a most beauteous light, etc., or when we imagine all kinds of other things, whether divine or human, that can belong to the imagination. All these imaginings must be cast out from the soul, which will remain in darkness as far as this sense is concerned, that it may attain to divine union, for they can bear no proportion to proximate means of union with God any more than can the bodily imaginings which serve as objects to the five exterior senses. 4. The reason of this is that the imagination cannot fashion or imagine anything whatsoever beyond that which it has experienced through its exterior senses, namely, that which it has seen with the eyes or heard with the ears, etc. At most, it can only compose likenesses of those things that it has seen or heard or felt, which are of no more consequence than those which have been received by the senses aforementioned. Nor are they even of as much consequence. For, although a man imagines palaces of pearls and mountains of gold, because he has seen gold and pearls, all this is in truth less than the essence of a little gold or of a single pearl, although in the imagination it be greater in quantity and in beauty. And since, as has already been said, no created things can bear any proportion to the being of God, it follows that nothing that is imagined in their likeness can serve as proximate means to union with him, but, as we say, quite the contrary. 5. Wherefore, those that imagine God beneath any of these figures, or as a great fire, or brightness, or in any other such form, and think that anything like this will be like to him, are very far from approaching him. For, although these considerations and forms and manners of meditation are necessary to beginners, in order that they may gradually feed and enkindle their souls with love by means of sense, as we shall say hereafter, 
and although they thus serve them as remote means to union with God, through which a soul has commonly to pass in order to reach the goal and abode of spiritual repose, yet they must merely pass through them and not remain ever in them, for in such a manner they would never reach their goal, which does not resemble these remote means, neither has aught to do with them. The stairs of a staircase have naught to do with the top of it and the abode to which it leads, yet are means to the reaching of both. And if the climber left not behind the stairs below him until there were no more to climb, but desired to remain upon any one of them, he would never reach the top of them, nor would he mount to the pleasant and peaceful room which is the goal. And just so the soul that is to attain in this life to the union of that supreme repose and blessing, by means of all these stairs of meditations, forms, and ideas, must pass through them and have done with them, since they have no resemblance and bear no proportion to the goal to which they lead, which is God. Wherefore St. Paul says in the Acts of the Apostles, we ought not to think of the Godhead by likening him to gold or to silver, neither to stone that is formed by art, nor to aught that a man can fashion with his imagination. 6. Great, therefore, is the error of many spiritual persons who have practised approaching God by means of images and forms and meditations, as befits beginners. God would now lead them on to further spiritual blessings, which are interior and invisible, by taking from them the pleasure and sweetness of discursive meditation. But they cannot, or dare not, or know not how, to detach themselves from those palpable methods to which they have grown accustomed. They continually labour to retain them, desiring to proceed as before, by the way of consideration and meditation upon forms, for they think that it must be so with them always. They labour greatly to this end, and find little sweetness or none. Rather, the aridity and weariness and disquiet of their souls are increased and grow in proportion as they labour for that earlier sweetness. They cannot find this in that earlier manner, for the soul no longer enjoys that food of sense, as we have said. It needs not this but another food, which is more delicate, more interior, and partaking less of the nature of sense. It consists not in labouring with the imagination, but in setting the soul at rest, and allowing it to remain in its quiet and repose, which is more spiritual. For the farther the soul progresses in spirituality, the more it ceases from the operation of the faculties in particular acts, since it becomes more and more occupied in one act that is general and pure. And thus the faculties that were journeying to a place whither the soul has arrived cease to work, even as the feet stop and cease to move when their journey is over. For if all were motion, one would never arrive, and if all were means, where or when would come the fruition of the end and goal? 7. It is piteous, then, to see many a one who, though his soul would fain tarry in this peace and rest of interior quiet, where it is filled with the peace and refreshment of God, takes from it its tranquillity, and leads it away to the most exterior things, 
and would make it return and retrace the ground it has already traversed to no purpose and abandon the end and goal wherein it is already reposing for the means which led it to that repose, which are meditations. This comes not to pass without great reluctance and repugnance of the soul, which would fain be in that peace that it understands, not as in its proper place. Even as one who has arrived with great labour and is now resting suffers pain if he is made to return to his labour, and as such souls know not the mystery of this new experience, the idea comes to them that they are being idle and doing nothing, and thus they allow not themselves to be quiet, but endeavour to meditate and reason. Hence they are filled with aridity and affliction, because they seek to find sweetness where it is no longer to be found. We may even say of them that the more they strive, the less they profit, for the more they persist after this manner, the worse is the state wherein they find themselves, because their soul is drawn farther away from spiritual peace, and this is to leave the greater for the less, and to retrace the ground already traversed, and to seek to do that which has been done. 8. To such as these the advice must be given to learn to abide attentively and wait lovingly upon God in that state of quiet, and to pay no heed either to imagination or to its working, for here, as we say, the faculties are at rest, and are working, not actively but passively, by receiving that which God works in them. And, if they work at times, it is not with violence or with carefully elaborated meditation, but with sweetness of love, moved less by the ability of the soul itself than by God, as will be explained hereafter. But let this now suffice to show how fitting and necessary it is for those who aim at making further progress to be able to detach themselves from all these methods and manners and works of the imagination at the time and season when the profit of the state which they have reached demands and requires it. 9. And that it may be understood how this is to be, and at what season, we shall give in the chapter following certain signs which the spiritual person will see in himself, and whereby he may know at what time and season he may freely avail himself of the goal mentioned above, and may cease from journeying by means of meditation and the work of the imagination. Chapter 13 Wherein are set down the signs which the spiritual person will find in himself, whereby he may know at what season it behooves him to leave meditation and reasoning, and pass to the state of contemplation. In order that there may be no confusion in this instruction, it will be meet in this chapter to explain at what time and season it behooves the spiritual person to lay aside the task of discursive meditation as carried on through the imaginations and forms and figures above mentioned, in order that he may lay them aside neither sooner nor later than when the spirit bids him. For although it is meet for him to lay them aside at the proper time, in order that he may journey to God and not be hindered by them, it is no less needful for him not to lay aside the said imaginative meditation before the proper time, lest he should turn backward. For although the apprehensions of these faculties serve not as proximate means of union to the proficient, 
They serve, nevertheless, as remote means to beginners, in order to dispose and habituate the spirit to spirituality by means of sense, and in order to void the sense, in the meantime, of all the other low forms and images, temporal, worldly, and natural. We shall therefore speak here of certain signs and examples which the spiritual person will find in himself, whereby he may know whether or not it will be meet for him to lay them aside at this season. 2. The first sign is his realization that he can no longer meditate or reason with his imagination, neither can take pleasure therein as he was wont to do aforetime. He rather finds aridity in that which aforetime was wont to captivate his senses and to bring him sweetness. But for as long as he finds sweetness in meditation and is able to reason, he should not abandon this, save when his soul is led into the peace and quietness which is described under the third head. 3. The second sign is a realization that he has no desire to fix his mediation or his sense upon other particular objects, exterior or interior. I do not mean that the imagination neither comes nor goes, for even at times of deep recollection it is apt to move freely, but that the soul has no pleasure in fixing it of set purpose upon other objects. 4. The third and surest sign is that the soul takes pleasure in being alone, and waits with loving attentiveness upon God, without making any particular meditation, in inward peace and quietness and rest, and without acts and exercises of the faculties, memory, understanding, and will, at least without discursive acts, that is, without passing from one thing to another. The soul is alone, with an attentiveness and a knowledge, general and loving, as we said, but without any particular understanding, and adverting not to that which it is contemplating. 5. These three signs, at least, the spiritual person must observe in himself altogether, before he can venture safely to abandon the state of meditation and sense, and to enter that of contemplation and spirit. 6. And it suffices not for a man to have the first alone without the second, for it might be that the reason for his being unable to imagine and meditate upon the things of God, as he did aforetime, was distraction on his part and lack of diligence, for the which cause he must observe in himself the second likewise, which is the absence of inclination or desire to think upon other things. For when the inability to fix the imagination and sense upon the things of God proceeds from distraction or lukewarmness, the soul then has the desire and inclination to fix it upon other and different things which lead it thence altogether. Neither does it suffice that he should observe in himself the first and second signs, if he observe not likewise, together with these, the third, for although he observe his inability to reason and think upon the things of God, and likewise his distaste for thinking upon other and different things, this might proceed from melancholy or from some other kind of humour in the brain or the heart, which habitually produces a certain absorption and suspension of the senses, causing the soul to think not at all, nor to desire or be inclined to think, but rather to remain in that pleasant state of reverie. Against this must be set the third sign, 
which is loving attentiveness and knowledge, in peace, etc., as we have said. 7. It is true, however, that when this condition first begins, the soul is hardly aware of this loving knowledge, and that for two reasons. First, this loving knowledge is apt at the beginning to be very subtle and delicate, and almost imperceptible to the senses. Secondly, when the soul has been accustomed to that other exercise of meditation which is wholly perceptible, it is unaware and hardly conscious of this other new and imperceptible condition which is purely spiritual, especially when, not understanding it, the soul allows not itself to rest in it, but strives after the former which is more readily perceptible, so that abundant though the loving interior peace may be, the soul has no opportunity of experiencing and enjoying it. But the more accustomed the soul grows to this, by allowing itself to rest, the more it will grow therein, and the more conscious it will become of that loving general knowledge of God, in which it has greater enjoyment than in aught else, since this knowledge causes it peace, rest, pleasure, and delight without labour. 8. And to the end that what has been said may be the clearer, we shall give, in this chapter following, the causes and reasons why the three signs aforementioned appear to be necessary for the soul that is journeying to pure spirit. Chapter 14 Wherein is proved the fitness of these signs, and the reason is given why that which has been said in speaking of them is necessary to progress. With respect to the first sign whereof we are speaking, that is to say that the spiritual person who would enter upon the spiritual road, which is that of contemplation, must leave the way of imagination and of meditation through sense when he takes no more pleasure therein and is unable to reason. There are two reasons why this should be done, which may almost be comprised in one. The first is that, in one way, the soul has received all the spiritual good which it would be able to derive from the things of God by the path of meditation and reasoning, the sign whereof is that it can no longer meditate or reason as before, and finds no new sweetness or pleasure therein as it found before, because up to that time it had not progressed as far as the spirituality which was in store for it. For as a rule, whensoever the soul receives some spiritual blessing, it receives it with pleasure, at least in spirit, in that means whereby it receives it and profits by it. Otherwise, it is astonishing if it profits by it, or finds in the cause of it that help and that sweetness which it finds when it receives it. For this is in agreement with a saying of the philosophers, "'That which is palatable nourishes and fattens.' whereby holy Job said, Can that which is unsavoury perchance be eaten when it is not seasoned with salt? It is this cause that the soul is unable to meditate or reason as before, the little pleasure which the spirit finds therein, and the little profit which it gains. 2. The second reason is that the soul at this season has now both the substance and the habit of the spirit of meditation, for it must be known that the end of reasoning and meditation on the things of God is the gaining of some knowledge and love of God, 
and each time that the soul gains this through meditation, it is an act. And just as many acts of whatever kind end by forming a habit in the soul, just so many of these acts of loving knowledge, which the soul has been making one after another from time to time, come through repetition to be so continuous in it that they become habitual. This end God is wont also to effect in many souls without the intervention of these acts, or at least without many such acts having preceded it, by setting them at once in contemplation. And thus that which aforetime the soul was gaining gradually through its labour of meditation upon particular facts, has now through practice, as we have been saying, become converted and changed into a habit and substance of loving knowledge, of a general kind, and not distinct or particular as before. Wherefore, when it gives itself to prayer, the soul is now like one to whom water has been brought, so that he drinks peacefully without labour, and is no longer forced to draw the water through the aqueducts or past meditations and forms and figures, so that as soon as the soul comes before God, it makes an act of knowledge, confused, loving, passive and tranquil, wherein it drinks of wisdom and love and delight. 3. And it is for this cause that the soul feels great weariness and distaste, when, although it is in this condition of tranquillity, men try to make it meditate and labour in particular acts of knowledge. For it is like a child, which, while receiving the milk that has been collected and brought together for it in the breast, is taken from the breast, and then forced to try to gain and collect food by its own diligent squeezing and handling. Or it is like one who has removed the rind from a fruit, and is tasting the substance of the fruit, when he is forced to cease doing this, and try to begin removing the said rind, which has been removed already. He finds no rind to remove, and yet he is unable to enjoy the substance of the fruit, which he already had in his hand. Herein he is like to one who leaves a prize, which he holds for another which he holds not. 4. And many act thus when they begin to enter this state. They think that the whole business consists in a continual reasoning and learning to understand particular things by means of images and forms, which are to the spirit as rind. When they find not these in that substantial and loving quiet wherein their soul desires to remain, and wherein it understands nothing clearly, they think that they are going astray and wasting time, and they begin once more to seek the rind of their imaginings and reasonings, but find it not, because it has already been removed. And thus they neither enjoy the substance nor make progress in meditation, and they become troubled by the thought that they are turning backward and are losing themselves. They are indeed losing themselves, though not in the way they think, for they are becoming lost to their own senses and to their first manner of perception. And this means gain in that spirituality which is being given them. The less they understand, however, the farther they penetrate into the night of the spirit, whereof we are treating in this book, through the which night they must pass in order to be united with God in a union that transcends all knowledge. 5. 
With respect to the second sign, there is little to say, for it is clear that at this season the soul cannot possibly take pleasure in other and different objects of the imagination, which are of the world, since, as we have said, and for the reasons already mentioned, it has no pleasure in those which are in closest conformity with it, namely those of God. Only as has been noted above, the imaginative faculty in this state of recollection is in the habit of coming and going and varying of its own accord, but neither according to the pleasure nor at the will of the soul, which is troubled thereby, because its peace and joy are disturbed. 6. Nor do I think it necessary to say anything here concerning the fitness and necessity of the third sign, whereby the soul may know if it is to leave the meditation aforementioned, which is a knowledge of God, or a general and loving attentiveness to Him. For something has been said of this in treating of the first sign, and we shall treat of it again hereafter, when we speak in its proper place of this confused and general knowledge, which will come after our description of all the particular apprehensions of the understanding. But we will speak of one reason alone, by which it may clearly be seen how, when the contemplative has to turn aside from the way of meditation and reasoning, he needs this general and loving attentiveness or knowledge of God. The reason is that if the soul at that time had not this knowledge of God or this realization of his presence, the result would be that it would do nothing and have nothing. For, having turned aside from meditation, by means whereof the soul has been reasoning with its faculties of sense, and being still without contemplation, which is the general knowledge whereof we are speaking, wherein the soul makes use of its spiritual faculties, namely memory, understanding, and will, these being united in this knowledge which is then wrought and received in them, the soul would of necessity be without any exercise in the things of God, since the soul can neither work nor can it receive that which has been worked in it, save only by way of these two kinds of faculty, that of sense and that of spirit. For, as we have said, by means of the faculties of sense it can reason and search out and gain knowledge of things, and by means of the spiritual faculties it can have fruition of the knowledge which it has already received in these faculties aforementioned, though the faculties themselves take no part herein. 7. And thus the difference between the operation of these two kinds of faculty in the soul is like the difference between working and enjoying the fruit of work which has been done, or like that between the labour of journeying and the rest and quiet which comes from arrival at the goal, or again like that between preparing a meal and partaking and tasting of it, when it has been both prepared and masticated without having any of the labour of cooking it, or it is like the difference between receiving something and profiting by that which has been received. Now if the soul be occupied neither with respect to the operation of the faculties of sense, which is meditation and reasoning, nor with respect to that which has already been received and affected in the spiritual faculties, which is the contemplation and knowledge whereof we have spoken, it will have no occupation, but will be wholly idle, and there would be no way in which it could be said to be employed. This knowledge, then, 
is needful for the abandonment of the way of meditation and reasoning. 8. But here it must be made clear that this general knowledge whereof we are speaking is at times so subtle and delicate, particularly when it is most pure and simple and perfect, most spiritual and most interior, that, although the soul be occupied therein, it can neither realize it nor perceive it. This is most frequently the case when we can say that it is in itself most clear, perfect, and simple. And this comes to pass when it penetrates a soul that is unusually pure and far withdrawn from other particular kinds of knowledge and intelligence, which the understanding or the senses might fasten upon. Such a soul, since it no longer has those things wherein the understanding and the senses have the habit and custom of occupying themselves, is not conscious of them, inasmuch as it has not its accustomed powers of sense. And it is for this reason that, when this knowledge is purest and simplest and most perfect, the understanding is least conscious of it, and thinks of it as most obscure. And similarly, in contrary wise, when it is in itself least pure and simple in the understanding, it seems to the understanding to be clearest and of the greatest importance, since it is clothed in, mingled with, or involved in certain intelligible forms which understanding or sense may seize upon. 9. This will be clearly understood by the following comparison. If we consider a ray of sunlight entering through a window, we see that the more the said ray is charged with atoms and particles of matter, the more palpable, visible, and bright it appears to the eye of sense. Yet it is clear that the ray is in itself least pure, clear, simple, and perfect at that time, since it is full of so many particles and atoms. And we see likewise that when it is purest and freest from those particles and atoms, the least palpable and the darkest does it appear to the material eye, and the purer it is, the darkest and less apprehensible it appears to it. And if the ray were completely pure and free from all these atoms and particles, even from the minutest specks of dust, it would appear completely dark and invisible to the eye, since everything that could be seen would be absent from it namely the objects of sight. For the eye would find no objects whereon to rest, since light is no proper object of vision, but the means whereby that which is visible is seen. So that, if there be no visible objects wherein the sun's ray or any light can be reflected, nothing will be seen. Wherefore, if the ray of light entered by one window and went out by another, without meeting anything that has material form, it would not be seen at all. Yet, notwithstanding, that ray of light would be purer and clearer in itself than when it was more clearly seen and perceived through being full of visible objects. 10. The same thing happens in the realm of spiritual light with respect to the sight of the soul, which is the understanding, and which this general and supernatural knowledge and light whereof we are speaking strikes so purely and simply. So completely is it detached and removed from all intelligible forms, which are objects of the understanding, that it is neither perceived nor observed. Rather, at times, that is, when it is purest, it becomes darkness, because it withdraws the understanding from its accustomed lights, from forms and from fancies, 
and then the darkness is more clearly felt and realized. But when this divine light strikes the soul with less force, it neither perceives darkness nor observes light, nor apprehends aught that it knows, from whatever source. Hence, at times, the soul remains, as it were, in a great forgetfulness, so that it knows not where it has been or what it has done, nor is it aware of the passage of time. Wherefore it may happen, and does happen, that many hours are spent in this forgetfulness, and, when the soul returns to itself, it believes that less than a moment has passed, or no time at all. 11. The cause of this forgetfulness is the purity and simplicity of this knowledge which occupies the soul, and simplifies, purifies, and cleanses it from all apprehensions and forms of the senses and of the memory, through which it acted when it was conscious of time, and thus leaves it in forgetfulness and without consciousness of time. This prayer, therefore, seems to the soul extremely brief, although, as we say, it may last for a long period, for the soul has been united in pure intelligence which belongs not to time, and this is the brief prayer which is said to pierce the heavens, because it is brief, and because it belongs not to time. And it pierces the heavens because the soul is united in heavenly intelligence, and when the soul awakens, this knowledge leaves in it the effects which it created in it without its being conscious of them, which effects are the lifting up of the spirit to the heavenly intelligence, and its withdrawal and abstraction from all things and forms and figures and memories thereof. It is this that David describes as having happened to him when he returned to himself out of this same forgetfulness, saying, I have watched, and I have become like the lonely bird on the housetop. He uses the word lonely to indicate that he was withdrawn and abstracted from all things, and by the housetop he means the elevation of the spirit on high, so that the soul remains as though ignorant of all things, for it knows God only without knowing how. Wherefore the bride declares in the songs that among the effects which that sleep and forgetfulness of hers produced was this unknowing. She says that she came down to the garden, saying, I knew not whence. Although, as we have said, the soul in this state of knowledge believes itself to be doing nothing, and to be entirely unoccupied, because it is working neither with the senses nor with the faculties, it should realize that it is not wasting time. For, although the harmony of the faculties of the soul may cease, its intelligence is as we have said. For this cause the bride, who was wise, answered this question herself in the songs, saying, Although I sleep with respect to my natural self, ceasing to labor, my heart waketh, being supernaturally lifted up in supernatural knowledge. 12. But, it must be realized, we are not to suppose that this knowledge necessarily causes this forgetfulness when the soul is in the state that we are here describing. This occurs only when God suspends in the soul the exercise of all its faculties, both natural and spiritual, which happens very seldom, for this knowledge does not always fill the soul entirely. It is sufficient for the purpose, in the case which we are treating, that the understanding should be withdrawn from all particular knowledge, whether temporal or spiritual, 
and that the will should not desire to think with respect to either, as we have said, for this is a sign that the soul is occupied, and it must be taken as an indication that this is so when this knowledge is applied and communicated to the understanding only, which sometimes happens when the soul is unable to observe it. For when it is communicated to the will also, which happens almost invariably, the soul does not cease to understand in the very least degree, if it will reflect hereon, that it is employed and occupied in this knowledge, inasmuch as it is conscious of a sweetness of love therein, without particular knowledge or understanding of that which it loves. It is for this reason that this knowledge is described as general and loving, for just as it is so in the understanding being communicated to it obscurely, even so is it in the will, sweetness and love being communicated to it confusedly, so that it cannot have a distinct knowledge of the object of its love. 13. Let this suffice now to explain how meet it is that the soul should be occupied in this knowledge, so that it may turn aside from the way of spiritual meditation, and be sure that, although it seem to be doing nothing, it is well occupied. If it discern within itself these signs, it will also be realized from the comparison which we have made, that if this light presents itself to the understanding in a more comprehensible and palpable manner, as the sun's rays presents itself to the eye when it is full of particles, the soul must not, for that reason, consider it purer, brighter, and more sublime. It is clear that, as Aristotle and the theologians say, the higher and more sublime is the divine light, the darker is it to our understanding. 14. Of this divine knowledge there is much to say concerning both itself and the effects which it produces upon contemplatives. All this we reserve for its proper place, for although we have spoken of it here, there would be no reason for having done so at such length, save our desire not to leave this doctrine rather more confused than it is already, for I confess it is certainly very much so. Not only is it a matter which is seldom treated in this way, either verbally or in writing, being in itself so extraordinary and obscure, but my rude style and lack of knowledge make it more so. Further, since I have misgivings as to my ability to explain it, I believe I often write at too great length and go beyond the limits which are necessary for that part of the doctrine which I am treating. Herein I confess that I sometimes err purposely, for that which is not explicable by one kind of reasoning will perhaps be better understood by another, or by others yet, and I believe, too, that in this way I am shedding more light upon that which is to be said hereafter. 15. Wherefore it seems well to me also, before completing this part of my treatise, to set down a reply to one question which may arise with respect to the continuance of this knowledge, and this shall be briefly treated in the chapter following. Chapter 15 Wherein is explained how it is sometimes well for progressives who are beginning to enter upon this general knowledge of contemplation to make use of natural reasoning and the work of the natural faculties. With regard to that which has been said, there might be raised one question— 
if progressives, that is, those whom God is beginning to bring into this supernatural knowledge of contemplation whereof we have spoken, must never again, because of this that they are beginning to experience, return to the way of meditation and reasoning and natural forms. To this the answer is that it is not to be understood that such as are beginning to experience this loving knowledge must, as a general rule, never again try to return to meditation. For when they are first making progress in proficiency, the habit of contemplation is not yet so perfect that they can give themselves to the act thereof whensoever they wish, nor, in the same way, have they reached a point so far beyond meditation that they cannot occasionally meditate and reason in a natural way, as they were wont, using the figures and the steps that they were wont to use, and finding something new in them. Rather, in these early stages, when, by means of the indications already given, they are able to see that the soul is not occupied in that repose and knowledge, they will need to make use of meditation until by means of it they come to acquire in some degree of perfection the habit which we have described. This will happen when, as soon as they seek to meditate, they experience this knowledge and peace, and find themselves unable to meditate and no longer desirous of doing so, as we have said. For until they reach this stage, which is that of the proficient in this exercise, they use sometimes the one and sometimes the other at different times. 2. The soul, then, will frequently find itself in this loving or peaceful state of waiting upon God without in any way exercising its faculties, that is, with respect to particular acts, and without working actively at all but only receiving. In order to reach this state, it will frequently need to make use of meditation quietly and in moderation. But when once the soul is brought into this other state, it acts not at all with its faculties, as we have already said. It would be truer to say that understanding and sweetness work in it and are wrought within it than that the soul itself works at all, save only by waiting upon God and by loving Him, without desiring to feel or to see anything. Then God communicates Himself to it passively, even as to one who has his eyes open, so that light is communicated to him passively, without his doing more than keep them open. And this reception of light, which is infused supernaturally, is passive understanding. We say that the soul works not at all, not because it understands not, but because it understands things without taxing its own industry, and receives only that which is given to it, as comes to pass in the illuminations and enlightenments or inspirations of God. 3. Although in this condition the will freely receives this general and confused knowledge of God, it is needful, in order that it may receive this divine light more simply and abundantly, only that it should not try to interpose other lights which are more palpable, whether forms or ideas or figures, having to do with any kind of meditation, for none of these things is similar to that pure and serene light. So that if at this time the will desires to understand and consider particular things, however spiritual they be, this would obstruct the pure and simple general light of the Spirit by setting those clouds in the way. 
even as a man might set something before his eyes which impeded his vision and kept from him both the light and the sight of things in front of him. 4. Hence it clearly follows that when the soul has completely purified and voided itself of all forms and images that can be apprehended, it will remain in this pure and simple light, being transformed therein into a state of perfection. For though this light never fails in the soul, it is not infused into it because of the creature forms and veils, wherewith the soul is veiled and embarrassed. But if these impediments and these veils were wholly removed, as will be said hereafter, the soul would then find itself in a condition of pure detachment and poverty of spirit, and, being simple and pure, would be transformed into simple and pure wisdom, which is the Son of God. For the enamoured soul finds that that which is natural has failed it, and it is then imbued with that which is divine, both naturally and supernaturally, so that there may be no vacuum in its nature. 5. When the spiritual person cannot meditate, let him learn to be still in God, fixing his loving attention upon him in the calm of his understanding, although he may think himself to be doing nothing. For thus, little by little and very quickly, divine calm and peace will be infused into his soul, together with a wondrous and sublime knowledge of God, enfolded in divine love. And let him not meddle with forms, meditations and imaginings, or with any kind of reasoning, lest his soul be disturbed, and brought out of its contentment and peace, which can only result in its experiencing distaste and repugnance. And if, as we have said, such a person has scruples that he is doing nothing, let him note that he is doing no small thing by pacifying the soul and bringing it into calm and peace, unaccompanied by any act or desire, for it is this that our Lord asks of us through David, saying, Learn to be empty of all things, that is to say, inwardly and outwardly, and you will see that I am God. Chapter 16 Which treats of the imaginary apprehensions that are supernaturally represented in the fancy, describing how they cannot serve the soul as approximate means to union with God. Now that we have treated of the apprehensions which the soul can receive within itself by natural means, and whereon the fancy and the imagination can work by means of reflection, it will be suitable to treat here of the supernatural apprehensions, which are called imaginary visions, which likewise belong to these senses, since they come within the category of images, forms, and figures, exactly as do the natural apprehensions. 2. It must be understood that beneath this term imaginary vision we purpose to include all things which can be represented to the imagination supernaturally by means of any image, form, figure, and species. For all the apprehensions and species which, through all the five bodily senses, are represented to the soul and dwell within it after a natural manner, may likewise occur in the soul after a supernatural manner, and be represented to it without any assistance of the outward senses. For this sense of fancy, together with memory, is, as it were, an archive and storehouse of the understanding, wherein are received all forms and images that can be understood. 
and thus the soul has them within itself, as it were, in a mirror, having received them by means of the five senses, or, as we say, supernaturally, and thus it presents them to the understanding, whereupon the understanding considers them and judges them, and not only so, but the soul can also prepare and imagine others like to those with which it is acquainted. 3. It must be understood, then, that even as the five outward senses represent the images and species of their objects to these inward senses, even so, supernaturally, as we say, without using the outward senses, both God and the devil can represent the same images and species, and much more beautiful and perfect ones. Wherefore, beneath these images, God often represents many things to the soul, and teaches it much wisdom. This is continually seen in the Scriptures, as when Isaiah saw God in his glory beneath the smoke which covered the temple, and beneath the seraphim who covered their faces and their feet with wings, and as Jeremiah saw the rod watching, and Daniel a multitude of visions, etc. And the devil, too, strives to deceive the soul with his visions which in appearance are good, as may be seen in the book of the kings, when he deceived all the prophets of Achab, presenting to their imaginations the horns wherewith he said the king was to destroy the Assyrians, which was a lie. Even such were the visions of Pilate's wife, warning him not to condemn Christ. And there are many other places where it is seen how, in this mirror of the fancy and the imagination, these imaginary visions come more frequently to proficience than do outward and bodily visions. These, as we say, differ not in their nature, that is, as being images and species, from those which enter by the outward senses, but with respect to the effect which they produce and in the degree of their perfection there is a great difference. For imaginary visions are subtler and produce a deeper impression upon the soul, inasmuch as they are supernatural, and are also more interior than the exterior supernatural visions. Nevertheless, it is true that some of these exterior bodily visions may produce a deeper impression. The communication, after all, is as God wills. We are speaking, however, merely as concerns their nature, and in this respect they are more spiritual. 4. It is to these senses of imagination and fancy that the devil habitually betakes himself with his wiles, now natural, now supernatural, for they are the door and entrance to the soul, and here, as we have said, the understanding comes to take up or set down its goods, as it were in a harbour or in a storehouse where it keeps its provisions. And for this reason it is hither that both God and the devil always come with their jewels of supernatural forms and images to offer them to the understanding, although God does not make use of this means alone to instruct the soul, but dwells within it in substance, and is able to do this by himself and by other methods. 5. There is no need for me to stop here in order to give instruction concerning the signs by which it may be known which visions are of God and which not, and which are of one kind and which of another. For this is not my intention, which is only to instruct the understanding herein, that it may not be hindered or impeded as to union with divine wisdom by the good visions, neither may be deceived by those which are false. 6. 
I say, then, that with regard to all these imaginary visions and apprehensions, and to all other forms and species whatsoever, which present themselves beneath some particular kind of knowledge or image or form, whether they be false and come from the devil, or are recognized as true and coming from God, the understanding must not be embarrassed by them or feed upon them, neither must the soul desire to receive them or to have them, lest it should no longer be detached, free, pure, and simple, without any mode or manner, as is required for union. 7. The reason of this is that all these forms which we have already mentioned are always represented in the apprehension of the soul, as we have said, beneath certain modes and manners which have limitations, and that the wisdom of God, wherewith the understanding is to be united, has no mode or manner, neither is it contained within any particular or distinct kind of intelligence or limit, because it is wholly pure and simple. And as, in order that these two extremes may be united, namely the soul and divine wisdom, it will be necessary for them to attain to agreement by means of a certain mutual resemblance. Hence it follows that the soul must be pure and simple, neither bounded by nor attached to any particular kind of intelligence, nor modified by any limitation of form, species, or image. As God comes not within any image or form, neither is contained within any particular kind of intelligence, so the soul, in order to reach God, must likewise come within no distinct form or kind of intelligence. 8. And that there is no form or likeness in God is clearly declared by the Holy Spirit in Deuteronomy, where he says, Ye heard the voice of his words, and ye saw in God no form whatsoever. But he says that there was darkness there, and clouds, and thick darkness, which are the confused and dark knowledge whereof we have spoken, wherein the soul is united with God. And afterwards he says further, Ye saw no likeness in God upon the day when he spoke to you on Mount Horeb, out of the midst of the fire. 9. And that the soul cannot reach the height of God, even as far as is possible in this life, by means of any form and figure, is declared likewise by the same Holy Spirit in the book of Numbers, where God reproves Aaron and Miriam, the brother and sister of Moses, because they murmured against him, and, desiring to convey to them the loftiness of the state of union and friendship with him, wherein he had placed him, said, If there be any prophet of the Lord among you, I will appear to him in some vision or form, or I will speak with him in his dreams. But there is none like my servant Moses, who is the most faithful in all my house, and I speak with him mouth to mouth, and he sees not God by comparisons, similitudes, and figures. Herein he says clearly that, in this lofty state of union whereof we are speaking, God is not communicated to the soul by means of any disguise, of imaginary vision, or similitude, or form, neither can he be so communicated, but mouth to mouth, that is, in the naked and pure essence of God, which is the mouth of God in love, with the naked and pure essence of the soul, which is the mouth of the soul in love of God. 10. 
Wherefore, in order to come to this essential union of love in God, the soul must have a care not to lean upon imaginary visions, nor upon forms or figures or particular objects of the understanding, for these cannot serve it as a proportionate and proximate means to such an end, rather they would disturb it, and for this reason the soul must renounce them and strive not to have them. For if in any circumstances they were to be received and prized, it would be for the sake of profit which true visions bring to the soul, and the good effect which they produce upon it. But for this to happen, it is not necessary to receive them. Indeed, for the soul's profit, it is well always to reject them. For these imaginary visions, like the outward bodily visions whereof we have spoken, do the soul good by communicating to it intelligence or love or sweetness. But for this effect to be produced by them in the soul, it is not necessary that it should desire to receive them. For, as has also been said above, at this very time when they are present to the imagination, they produce in the soul and infuse into it intelligence and love, or sweetness, or whatever effect God wills them to produce. And not only do they produce this joint effect, but principally, although not simultaneously, they produce their effect in the soul passively, without its being able to hinder this effect, even if it so desired, just as it was also powerless to acquire it, although it had been able previously to prepare itself. For even as the window is powerless to impede the ray of sunlight which strikes it, but when it is prepared by being cleansed, receives its light passively without any diligence or labour on its own part, even so the soul, although against its will, cannot fail to receive in itself the influence and communications of those figures, however much it might desire to resist them. For the will that is negatively inclined cannot, if coupled with loving and humble resignation, resist supernatural infusions. Only the impurity and imperfections of the soul can resist them, even as the stains upon a window impede the brightness of the sunlight. 11. From this it is evident that when the soul completely detaches itself in its will and affection from the apprehensions of the strains of those forms, images, and figures wherein are clothed the spiritual communications which we have described, not only is it not deprived of these communications and the blessings which they cause within it, but it is much better prepared to receive them with greater abundance, clearness, liberty of spirit, and simplicity, when all these apprehensions are set on one side, for they are, as it were, curtains and veils covering the spiritual thing that is behind them. And thus, if the soul desire to feed upon them, they occupy spirit and sense in such a way that the spirit cannot communicate itself simply and freely. For, while they are still occupied with the outer rind, it is clear that the understanding is not free to receive the substance. Wherefore, if the soul at that time desires to receive these forms and to set store by them, it would be embarrassing itself and contenting itself with the least important part of them, namely, all that it can apprehend and know of them, which is the form and image and particular object of the understanding in question. The most important part of them, which is the spiritual part that is infused into the soul, it can neither apprehend nor understand, nor can it even know what it is or be able to express it, since it is purely spiritual. 
all that it can know of them, as we say, according to its manner of understanding, is but the least part of what is in them, namely the forms perceptible by sense. For this reason, I say that what it cannot understand or imagine is communicated to it by these visions passively, without any effort of its own to understand, and without its even knowing how to make such an effort. Twelve. Wherefore the eyes of the soul must ever be withdrawn from all these apprehensions which it can see and understand distinctly, which are communicated through sense, and do not make for a foundation of faith or for reliance on faith, and must be set upon that which it sees not, and which belongs not to sense but to spirit, which can be expressed by no figure of sense. And it is this which leads the soul to union in faith." which is the true medium, as has been said. And thus these visions will profit the soul substantially in respect of faith, when it is able to renounce the sensible and intelligible part of them, and to make good use of the purpose for which God gives them to the soul, by casting them aside. For, as we said of corporeal visions, God gives them not, so that the soul may desire to have them, and to set its affection upon them. 13. But there arises here this question. If it be true that God gives the soul supernatural visions, but not so that it may desire to have them, or be attached to them, or set store by them, why does he give them at all, since by their means the soul may fall into many errors and perils, or at the least may find in them such hindrances to further progress as are here described, especially since God can come to the soul and communicate to it, spiritually and substantially, that which he communicates to it through sense, by means of the sensible forms and visions aforementioned. 14. We shall answer this question in the following chapter. It involves important teaching, most necessary as I see it, both to spiritual persons and to those who instruct them. For herein is taught the way and purpose of God, with respect to these visions, which many know not, so that they cannot rule themselves or guide themselves to union, neither can they guide others to union through these visions. For they think that, just because they know them to be true and to come from God, it is well to receive them and to trust them, not realizing that the soul will become attached to them, cling to them, and be hindered by them, as it will by things of the world, if it know not how to renounce these as well as those. And thus they think it well to receive one kind of vision and to reject another, causing themselves and the souls under their care great labor and peril in discerning between the truth and the falsehood of these visions. But God does not command them to undertake this labor, nor does he desire that sincere and simple souls should be led into this conflict and danger, for they have safe and sound teaching, which is that of the faith, wherein they can go forward. 15. This, however, cannot be unless they close their eyes to all that is of particular and clear intelligence and sense. For although St. Peter was quite certain of that vision of glory which he saw in Christ at the Transfiguration, yet, after having described it in his second canonical epistle, he desired not that it should be taken for an important and sure testimony, but rather directed his hearers to faith, saying, 
and we have a surer testimony than this vision of Tabor, namely the sayings and words of the prophets who bear testimony to Christ, whereunto ye must indeed cling as to a candle which gives light in a dark place. If we will think upon this comparison, we shall find therein the teaching which we are now expanding. For in telling us to look to the faith whereof the prophets spake, as to a candle that shines in a dark place, he is bidding us remain in the darkness with our eyes closed to all these other lights, and telling us that in this darkness faith alone, which likewise is dark, will be the light to which we shall cling. For if we desire to cling to these other bright lights, namely to distinct objects of the understanding, we cease to cling to that dark light which is faith, and we no longer have that light in the dark place whereof St. Peter speaks. This place, which here signifies the understanding, which is the candlestick wherein this candle of faith is set, must be dark until the day when the clear vision of God dawns upon it in the life to come, or, in this life, until the day of transformation and union with God to which the soul is journeying. Chapter 17 Wherein is described the purpose and manner of God in His communication of spiritual blessings to the soul by means of the senses. Herein is answered the question which has been referred to. There is much to be said concerning the purpose of God and concerning the manner wherein He gives these visions in order to raise up the soul from its lowly estate to His divine union. All spiritual books deal with this, and in this treatise of ours the method which we pursue is to explain it. Therefore, I shall only say in this chapter as much as is necessary to answer our question, which was as follows. Since in these supernatural visions there is so much hindrance and peril to progress, as we have said, why does God, who is most wise and desires to remove stumbling blocks and snares from the soul, offer and communicate them to it? 2. In order to answer this, it is well, first of all, to set down three fundamental points. The first is from St. Paul to the Romans, where he says, The works that are done are ordained of God. The second is from the Holy Spirit in the Book of Wisdom, where he says, The wisdom of God, although it extends from one end to another, that is to say, from one extreme to another, orders all things with sweetness. The third is from the theologians, who say that God moves all things according to their nature. 3. It is clear, then, from these fundamental points, that if God is to move the soul and to raise it up from the extreme depth of its lowliness to the extreme height of His loftiness, in divine union with Him, He must do it with order and sweetness and according to the nature of the soul itself. Then, since the order whereby the soul acquires knowledge is through forms and images of created things, and the natural way wherein it acquires this knowledge and wisdom is through the senses, it follows that if God is to raise up the soul to supreme knowledge and to do so with sweetness, he must begin to work from the lowest and extreme end of the senses of the soul, in order that he may gradually lead it, according to its own nature, to the other extreme of his spiritual wisdom, which belongs not to sense. 
wherefore he first leads it onward by instructing it through forms, images, and ways of sense, according to its own method of understanding, now naturally, now supernaturally, and by means of reasoning to this supreme spirit of God. 4. It is for this reason that God gives the soul visions and forms, images and other kinds of sensible and intelligible knowledge of a spiritual nature. Not that God would not give it spiritual wisdom immediately and all at once, if the two extremes, which are human and divine, sense and spirit, could in the ordinary way concur and unite in one single act without the previous intervention of many other preparatory acts which concur among themselves in order and sweetness, and are a basis and a preparation one for another, like natural agents, so that the first acts serve the second, the second, the third, and so onward, in exactly the same way. And thus God brings man to perfection according to the way of man's own nature, working from what is lowest and most exterior up to what is most interior and highest. First, then, he perfects his bodily senses, impelling him to make use of good things which are natural, perfect, and exterior, such as hearing sermons and masses, looking on holy things, mortifying the palate at meals, and chastening the sense of touch by penance and holy rigour. And when these senses are in some degree prepared, he is wont to perfect them still further, by bestowing on them certain supernatural favours and gifts, in order to confirm them the more completely in that which is good, offering them certain supernatural communications, such as visions of saints or holy things, in corporeal shape, the sweetest perfumes, locutions, and exceeding great delights of touch, wherewith sense is greatly continued in virtue, and is withdrawn from a desire for evil things. And besides this, he continues at the same time to perfect the interior bodily senses, whereof we are here treating, such as imagination and fancy, and to habituate them to that which is good, by means of considerations, meditations, and reflections of a sacred kind, in all of which he is instructing the spirit. And when these are prepared by this natural exercise, God is wont to enlighten and spiritualize them still more by means of certain supernatural visions, which are those that we are here calling imaginary, wherein, as we have said, the spirit at the same time profits greatly, for both kinds of vision help to take away its grossness and gradually to reform it. And after this manner God continues to lead the soul step by step, till it reaches that which is the most interior of all. Not that it is always necessary for him to observe this order, and to cause the soul to advance exactly in this way, from the first step to the last. Sometimes he allows the soul to attain one stage and not another, or leads it from the more interior to the less, or effects two stages of progress together. This happens when God sees it to be meet for the soul, or when he desires to grant it his favours in this way. Nevertheless, his ordinary method is as has been said. 5. It is in this way, then, that God instructs the soul and makes it more spiritual, communicating spirituality to it, first of all by means of outward and palpable things, adapted to sense, on account of the soul's feebleness and incapacity, 
so that, by means of the outer husk of those things which in themselves are good, the Spirit may make particular acts and receive so many spiritual communications, that it may form a habit as to things spiritual, and may acquire actual and substantial spirituality, which is completely removed from every sense. To this, as we have said, the soul cannot attain except very gradually, and in its own way, that is, by means of sense, to which it has ever been attached. And thus, in proportion, as the spirit attains more nearly to converse with God, it becomes ever more detached and emptied of the ways of sense, which are those of imaginary meditation and reflection. Wherefore, when the soul attains perfectly to spiritual converse with God, it must, of necessity, have been voided of all that relates to God, and yet might come under the head of sense. Even so, the more closely a thing grows attracted to one extreme, the farther removed and withdrawn it becomes from the other. And when it comes to rest perfectly in the one, it will also have withdrawn itself perfectly from the other. Wherefore there is a commonly quoted spiritual adage which says, After the taste and sweetness of the spirit have been experienced, everything carnal is insipid. That is, no profit or enjoyment is afforded by all the ways of the flesh, wherein is included all communication of sense with the spiritual. And this is clear, for if it is spirit, it has no more to do with sense, and if sense can comprehend it, it is no longer pure spirit. For the more can be known of it by natural apprehension and sense, the less it has of spirit and of the supernatural, as has been explained above. 6. The spirit that has become perfect, therefore, pays no heed to sense, nor does it receive anything through sense, nor make any great use of it, neither does it need to do so in its relations with God, as it did aforetime when it had not grown spiritually. It is this that is signified by that passage from St. Paul's epistle to the Corinthians, which says, When I was a child... I spake as a child, I knew as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. We have already explained how the things of sense and the knowledge that spirit can derive from them are the business of a child. Thus, if the soul should desire to cling to them forever and not to throw them aside, it would never be aught but a little child. It would speak ever of God as a child, and would know of God as a child, and would think of God as a child. For, clinging to the outer husk of sense which pertains to the child, it would never attain to the substance of the spirit which pertains to the perfect man. And thus the soul must not desire to receive the said revelations in order to continue in growth, even though God offer them to it just as the child must leave the breast in order to accustom its palate to strong meat, which is more substantial. 7. You will ask, then, if, when the soul is immature, it must take these things, and, when it is grown, must abandon them, even as an infant must take the breast in order to nourish itself until it be older and can leave it. I answer that, with respect to meditation and natural reflection by means of which the soul begins to seek God, it is true that it must not leave the breast of sense in order to continue taking in nourishment until the time and season to leave it have arrived, 
and this comes when God brings the soul into a more spiritual communion, which is contemplation, concerning which we gave instruction in the eleventh chapter of this book. But when it is a question of imaginary visions or other supernatural apprehensions which can enter the senses without the cooperation of man's free will, I will say that at no time and season must it receive them, whether the soul be in the state of perfection or whether in a state less perfect, not even though they come from God. And this for two reasons. The first is that, as we have said, he produces his effect in the soul— without its being able to hinder it, although, as often happens, it can and may hinder visions, and consequently that effect which was to be produced in the soul is communicated to it much more substantially, although not after that manner. For, as we said likewise, the soul cannot hinder the blessings that God desires to communicate to it, since it is not in the soul's power to do so, save when it has some imperfection and attachment, and there is neither imperfection nor attachment in renouncing these things with humility and misgiving. The second reason is that the soul may free itself from the peril and effort inherent in discerning between evil visions and good, and in deciding whether an angel be of light or of darkness. This effort brings the soul no advantage. It merely wastes its time and hinders it, and becomes to it an occasion of many imperfections and of failure to make progress. The soul concerns not itself, in such a case, with what is important, nor frees itself of trifles in the shape of apprehensions and perceptions of some particular kind. This has already been said in the discussion of corporeal visions, and more will be said on the subject hereafter. 8. Let it be believed, too, that— if our Lord were not about to lead the soul in a way befitting its own nature, as we say here, he would never communicate to it the abundance of his spirit through these aqueducts, which are so narrow, these forms and figures and particular perceptions, by means whereof he gives the soul enlightenment by crumbs. For this cause, David says, He sent his wisdom to the souls as in morsels, it is greatly to be lamented that, though the soul has infinite capacity, it should be given its food by morsels conveyed through the senses by reason of the small degree of its spirituality and its incapacitation by sense. St. Paul was also grieved by this lack of preparation and this incapability of men for receiving the Spirit when he wrote to the Corinthians, saying, I, brethren, when I came to you, could not speak to you as to spiritual persons, but as to carnal, for ye could not receive it, neither can ye now. I have given you milk to drink as to infants in Christ, and not solid food to eat. 9. It now remains, then, to be pointed out that the soul must not allow its eyes to rest upon that outer husk, namely figures and objects set before it supernaturally. These may be presented to the exterior senses, as are locutions and words audible to the ear, or to the eyes visions of saints and of beauteous radiance, or perfumes to the sense of smell, or tastes and sweetnesses to the palate, or other delights to the touch, which are wont to proceed from the spirit, a thing that very commonly happens to spiritual persons. 
or the soul may have to avert its eyes from visions of interior sense, such as imaginary visions, all of which it must renounce entirely. It must set its eyes only upon the spiritual good which they produce, striving to preserve it in its works and to practice that which is for the due service of God, paying no heed to those representations nor desiring any pleasure of sense. And in this way the soul takes from these things only that which God intends and wills, namely the spirit of devotion, for there is no other important purpose for which he gives them, and it casts aside that which he would not give if these gifts could be received in the spirit without it, as we have said, namely the exercise and apprehension of the senses. Chapter 18 Which treats of the harm that certain spiritual masters may do to souls when they direct them not by a good method with respect to the visions aforementioned. Describes also how these visions may cause deception even though they be of God. In this matter of visions we cannot be as brief as we should desire since there is so much to say about them. Although in substance we have said what is relevant in order to explain to the spiritual person how he is to behave with regard to the visions aforementioned, and to the master who directs him, the way in which he is to deal with his disciple, yet it will not be superfluous to go into somewhat greater detail about this doctrine, and to give more enlightenment as to the harm which can ensue either to spiritual souls or to the masters who direct them, if they are over-credulous about them, although they be of God. 2. The reason which has now moved me to write at length about this is the lack of discretion, as I understand it, which I have observed in certain spiritual masters. Trusting to these supernatural apprehensions, and believing that they are good and come from God, both masters and disciples have fallen into great error and found themselves in dire straits, wherein is fulfilled the saying of our Saviour, If a blind man lead another blind man, both fall into the pit. And he says not, Shall fall, but fall. For they may fall without falling into error, since the very venturing of the one to guide the other is going astray, and thus they fall in this respect alone, at the very least. And, first of all, there are some whose way and method with souls that experience these visions cause them to stray, or embarrass them with respect to their visions, or guide them not along the road in some way, for which reason they remain without the true spirit of faith, and edify them not in faith, but lead them to speak highly of those things. By doing this, they make them realize that they themselves set some value upon them, or make great account of them, and, consequently, their disciples do the same. Thus their souls have been set upon these apprehensions, instead of being edified in faith, so that they may be empty and detached and freed from those things, and can soar to the heights of dark faith. All this arises from the terms and language which the soul observes its master to employ with respect to these apprehensions. Somehow it very easily develops a satisfaction and an esteem for them, which is not in its own control, and which averts its eyes from the abyss of faith. 3. 
And the reason why this is so easy must be that the soul is so greatly occupied with these things of sense that, as it is inclined to them by nature, and is likewise disposed to enjoy the apprehension of distinct and sensible things, it is only to observe in its confessor, or in some other person, a certain esteem and appreciation for them, and not merely will it at once conceive the same itself, but also, without it realizing the fact, its desire will become lured away by them, so that it will feed upon them, and will be ever more inclined toward them, and will set a certain value upon them. And hence arise many imperfections, at the very least, for the soul is no longer as humble as before, but thinks that all this is of some importance and productive of good, and that it is itself esteemed by God, and that he is pleased and somewhat satisfied with it, which is contrary to humility. And thereupon the devil secretly sets about increasing this, without the soul's realizing it, and begins to suggest ideas to it about others, as to whether they have these things or have them not, or are this or are that, which is contrary to holy simplicity and spiritual solitude. 4. There is much more to be said about these evils, and of how such souls, unless they withdraw themselves, grow not in faith, and also of how there are other evils of the same kind, which, although they be not so palpable and recognizable as these, are subtler and more hateful in the divine eyes, and which result from not living in complete detachment. Let us, however, leave this subject now, until we come to treat of the vice of spiritual gluttony, and of the other six vices, whereof, with the help of God, many things will be said, concerning these subtle and delicate stains, which adhere to the spirit when its director cannot guide it in detachment. 5. Let us now say something of this manner wherein certain confessors deal with souls, and instruct them ill. And of a truth I could wish that I knew how to describe it, for I realize that it is a difficult thing to explain how the spirit of the disciple grows in conformity with that of his spiritual father, in a hidden and secret way. And this matter is so tedious that it wearies me, for it seems impossible to speak of the one thing without describing the other also, as they are spiritual things, and the one corresponds with the other. 6. But it is sufficient to say here that I believe, if the spiritual father has an inclination toward revelations of such a kind that they mean something to him, or satisfy or delight his soul, it is impossible but that he will impress that delight and that aim upon the spirit of his disciple, even without realizing it, unless the disciple be more advanced than he, and even in this latter case he may well do him grievous harm if he continue with him. For from that inclination of the spiritual father towards such visions, and the pleasure which he takes in them, there arises a certain kind of esteem for them, of which, unless he watch it carefully, he cannot fail to communicate some indication or impression to other persons. And if any other such person is like-minded and has a similar inclination, it is impossible, as I understand, but that there will be communicated from the one to the other a readiness to apprehend these things, and a great esteem for them. 7. But we need not now go into detail about this. 
Let us speak of the confessor who, whether or no he be inclined toward these things, has not the prudence that he ought to have in disencumbering the soul of his disciple and detaching his desire from them, but begins to speak to him about these visions and devotes the greater part of his spiritual conversation to them, as we have said, giving him signs by which he may distinguish good visions from evil. Now, although it is well to know this, there is no reason for him to involve the soul in such labor, anxiety, and peril. By paying no heed to visions and refusing to receive them, all this is prevented, and the soul acts as it should. Nor is this all, for such confessors, when they see that their penitents are receiving visions from God, beg them to entreat God to reveal them to themselves also, or to say such and such things to them with respect to themselves or to others, and the foolish souls do so, thinking that it is lawful to desire knowledge by this means. For they suppose that, because God is pleased to reveal or say something by supernatural means, in his own way or for his own purpose, it is lawful for them to desire him to reveal it to them, and even to entreat him to do so. 8. And if it come to pass that God answers their petition and reveals it, they become more confident, thinking that because God answers them it is his will and pleasure to do so, whereas in reality it is neither God's will nor his pleasure. And they frequently act or believe according to that which he has revealed to them, or according to the way wherein he has answered them. For as they are attached to that manner of communion with God, the revelation makes a great impression upon them, and their will acquiesces in it. They take a natural pleasure in their own way of thinking, and therefore naturally acquiesce in it, and frequently they go astray. Then they see that something happens in a way they had not expected, and they marvel, and then begin to doubt if the thing were of God, since it happens not, and they see it not, according to their expectations. At the beginning they thought two things. First, that the vision was of God, since at the beginning it agreed so well with their disposition, and their natural inclination to that kind of thing may well have been the cause of this agreement, as we have said. And secondly, that being of God it would turn out as they thought or expected. 9. And herein lies a great delusion, for revelations or locutions which are of God do not always turn out as men expect or as they imagine inwardly. And thus they must never be believed or trusted blindly, even though they are known to be revelations or answers or sayings of God. For although they may in themselves be certain and true, they are not always so in their causes, and according to our manner of understanding, as we shall prove in the chapter following. And afterwards we shall further say and prove that, although God sometimes gives a supernatural answer to that which is asked of him, it is not his pleasure to do so, and sometimes, although he answers, he is angered. Chapter 19 Wherein is expounded and proved how, although visions and locutions which come from God are true, we may be deceived about them. This is proved by quotations from divine scripture. For two reasons we have said that, although visions and locutions which come from God are true, and in themselves are always certain, 
they are not always so with respect to ourselves. One reason is the defective way in which we understand them, and the other the variety of their causes. In the first place, it is clear that they are not always as they seem, nor do they turn out as they appear to our manner of thinking. The reason for this is that since God is vast and boundless, He is wont in His prophecies, locutions, and revelations to employ ways, concepts, and methods of seeing things which differ greatly from such purpose and method as can normally be understood by ourselves. And these are the truer and the more certain, the less they seem so to us. This we constantly see in the Scriptures. To many of the ancients, many prophecies and locutions of God came not to pass as they expected, because they understood them after their own manner, in the wrong way, and quite literally. This will be clearly seen in these passages. 2. In Genesis, God said to Abraham, when he had brought him to the land of the Canaanites, I will give thee this land. And when he had said it to him many times, and Abraham was by now that old, and he had never given it to him, though he had said this to him, Abraham answered God once again, and said, Lord, whereby or by what sign am I to know that I am to possess it? Then God revealed to him that he was not to possess it in person, but that his sons would do so after four hundred years. And Abraham then understood the promise, which in itself was most true, for in giving it to his sons for love of him, God was giving it to himself. And thus Abraham was deceived by the way in which he himself had understood the prophecy. If he had then acted according to his own understanding of it, those that saw him die without its having been given to him might have erred greatly, for they were not to see the time of its fulfilment. And as they had heard him say that God would give it to him, they would have been confounded and would have believed it to have been false. 3. Likewise to his grandson Jacob, when Joseph his son brought him to Egypt because of the famine in Canaan, and when he was on the road, God appeared and said, Jacob, fear not, go down into Egypt, and I will go down there with thee, and when thou goest forth thence again, I will bring thee out and guide thee. This promise, as it would seem according to our own manner of understanding, was not fulfilled, for, as we know, the good old man Jacob died in Egypt and never left it alive. The word of God was to be fulfilled in his children, whom he brought out thence after many years, being himself their guide upon the way. It is clear that any one who had known of this promise made by God to Jacob would have considered it certain that Jacob, even as he had gone to Egypt alive in his own person, by the command and favour of God, would of a certainty leave it, alive and in his own person, in the same form and manner as he went there, since God had promised him a favourable return. And such a one would have been deceived, and would have marvelled greatly when he saw him die in Egypt, the promise, in the sense in which he understood it, remain unfulfilled. And thus, while the words of God are in themselves most true, it is possible to be greatly mistaken with regard to them. 4. In the Judges, again, we read that when all the tribes of Israel had come together to make war against the tribe of Benjamin, in order to punish a certain evil to which that tribe had been consenting, 
They were so certain of victory because God had appointed them a captain for the war that when twenty-two thousand of their men were conquered and slain, they marveled very greatly. And going into the presence of God, they wept all that day, knowing not the cause of the fall, since they had understood that the victory was to be theirs. And when they inquired of God if they should give battle again or no, he answered that they should go and fight against them. This time they considered victory to be theirs already, and went out with great boldness, and were conquered again the second time, with the loss of eighteen thousand of their men. Thereat they were greatly confused, and knew not what to do, seeing that God had commanded them to fight, and yet each time they were vanquished, though they were superior to their enemies in number and strength, for the men of Benjamin were no more than twenty-five thousand and seven hundred, and they were four hundred thousand. And in this way they were mistaken in their manner of understanding the words of God. His words were not deceptive, for he had not told them that they would conquer, but that they should fight. For by these defeats God wished to chastise a certain neglect and presumption of theirs, and thus to humble them. But when in the end he answered that they would conquer, it was so, although they conquered only after the greatest stratagem and toil. 5. In this way, and in many other ways, souls are oftentimes deceived with respect to locutions and revelations that come from God, because they interpret them according to their apparent sense, and literally. Whereas, as has already been explained, the principal intention of God in giving these things is to express and convey the spirit that is contained in them, which is difficult to understand and the spirit is much more pregnant in meaning than the letter, and is very extraordinary, and goes far beyond its limits. And thus he that clings to the letter, or to a locution, or to the form or figure of a vision which can be apprehended, will not fail to go far astray, and will forthwith fall into great confusion and error, because he has guided himself by sense according to these visions, and not allowed the spirit to work in detachment from sense. As St. Paul says, The letter killeth, and the spirit giveth life. Wherefore in this matter of sense the letter must be set aside, and the soul must remain in darkness, in faith, which is the spirit, and this cannot be comprehended by sense. 6. For which cause many of the children of Israel, because they took the sayings and prophecies of the prophets according to this strict letter, and these were not fulfilled as they expected, came to make little account of them, and believed them not, so much so, that there grew up a common saying among them, almost a proverb indeed, which turned prophets into ridicule. Of this Isaiah complained, speaking and exclaiming, in the manner following, to whom shall God teach knowledge, and whom shall he make to understand his word and prophecy? Only them that are already weaned from the milk and drawn away from the breasts. For all say, that is, concerning the prophecies, promise and promise again, wait and wait again, wait and wait again. A little there, a little there. For in the words of his lips, and in another tongue, will he speak to this people. Here Isaiah shows quite clearly that these people were turning prophecies into ridicule, and that it was in mockery that they repeated this proverb, Wait, and then wait again. 
They meant that the prophecies were never fulfilled for them, for they were wedded to the latter, which is the milk of infants, and to their own sense, which is the breasts, both of which contradict the greatness of spiritual knowledge. Wherefore he says, To whom shall he teach the wisdom of his prophecies? And whom shall he make to understand his doctrine, save them that are already weaned from the milk of the latter, and from the breasts of their own senses? For this reason these people understand it not, save according to this milk of the husk and letter, and these breasts of their own sense, since they say, Promise and promise again, wait and wait again, etc. For it is in the doctrine of the mouth of God, and not in their own doctrine, and it is in another tongue than their own, that God shall speak to them. 7. And thus, in interpreting prophecy, we have not to consider our own sense and language, knowing that the language of God is very different from ours, and that it is spiritual language, very far removed from our understanding, and exceedingly difficult. So much so is it that even Jeremiah, though a prophet of God, when he sees that the significance of the words of God is so different from the sense commonly attributed to them by men, is himself deceived by them, and defends the people, saying, Ah, 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 Lord God, hast thou perchance deceived this people in Jerusalem, saying, Peace will come upon you, and seest thou here that the sword reacheth into their soul? For the peace that God promised them was that which was to be made between God and man by means of the Messiah, whom he was to send them, whereas they understood it of temporal peace, and therefore when they suffered wars and trials, they thought that God was deceiving them, because there befell them the contrary of that which they expected. And thus they said, as Jeremiah says likewise, We have looked for peace, and there is no boon of peace. And thus it was impossible for them not to be deceived, since they took the prophecy merely in its literal sense, for who would fail to fall into confusion and to go astray if he confined himself to a literal interpretation of that prophecy which David spake concerning Christ in the seventy-first psalm, and of all that he says therein, where he says, He shall have dominion from one sea even to the other sea, and from the river even unto the ends of the earth. And likewise in that which he says in the same place, he shall deliver the poor man from the power of the mighty, and the poor man that had no helper. But later it became known that Christ was born in a low state, and lived in poverty, and died in misery. Not only had he no dominion over the earth in a temporal sense while he lived, but he was subject to lowly people, until he died under the power of Pontius Pilate. And not only did he not deliver poor men— namely his disciples, from the hands of the mighty in a temporal sense, but he allowed them to be slain and persecuted for his name's sake. 8. The fact is that these prophecies concerning Christ had to be understood spiritually, in which sense they were entirely true. For Christ was not only Lord of earth alone, but likewise of heaven, since he was God, and the poor who were to follow him he was not only to redeem and free from the power of the devil, that mighty one against whom they had no helper, but also to make heirs of the kingdom of heaven. And thus God was speaking, in the most important sense, of Christ and of the reward of his followers, which was an eternal kingdom and eternal liberty, 
and they understood this after their own manner in a secondary sense of which God takes small account, namely that of temporal dominion and temporal liberty, which in God's eyes is neither kingdom nor liberty at all. Wherefore, being blinded by the insufficiency of the letter, and not understanding its spirit and truth, they took the life of their God and Lord, even as St. Paul said in these words, They that dwelt in Jerusalem and her rulers, not knowing who he was, nor understanding the sayings of the prophets which are read every Sabbath day, have fulfilled them by judging him. 9. And to such a point did they carry this inability to understand the sayings of God, as it behooved them that even his own disciples who had gone about with him were deceived, as were those two who, after his death, were going to the village of Emmaus, sad and disconsolate, saying, We hoped that it was he that should have redeemed Israel. They, too, understood that this dominion and redemption were to be temporal, but Christ our Redeemer, appearing to them, reproved them as foolish and heavy, and gross of heart as to their belief in the things that the prophets had spoken. And even when he was going to heaven, some of them were still in that state of grossness of heart, and asked him, saying, Lord, tell us if thou wilt restore at this time the kingdom of Israel. The Holy Spirit causes many things to be said which bear another sense than that which men understand, as can be seen in that which he caused to be said by Cephas concerning Christ. That is, was meet that one man should die, lest all the people should perish. This he said not of his own accord, and he said it and understood it in one sense, and the Holy Spirit in another. 10. From this it is clear that, although sayings and revelations may be of God, we cannot always be sure of their meaning, for we can very easily be greatly deceived by them because of our manner of understanding them. For they are all an abyss and a depth of the Spirit, and to try to limit them to what we can understand concerning them, and to what our sense can apprehend, is nothing but to attempt to grasp the air, and to grasp some particle in it that the hand touches. The air disappears and nothing remains. 11. The spiritual teacher must therefore strive that the spirituality of his disciple be not cramped by attempts to interpret all supernatural apprehensions, which are no more than spiritual particles, lest he come to retain naught but these, and have no spirituality at all. But let the teacher wean his disciple from all visions and locutions, and impress upon him the necessity of dwelling in the liberty and darkness of faith, wherein are received spiritual liberty and abundance, and consequently the wisdom and understanding necessary to interpret sayings of God. For it is impossible for a man, if he be not spiritual, to judge of the things of God or understand them in a reasonable way. And he is not spiritual when he judges them according to sense. And thus, although they come to him beneath the disguise of sense, he understands them not. This St. Paul well expresses in these words, The animal man perceives not the things which are of the Spirit of God, for unto him they are foolishness, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritual. But he that is spiritual judges all things. By the animal man is here meant one that uses sense alone, by the spiritual man one that is not bound or guided by sense. 
wherefore it is temerity to presume to have intercourse with God by way of a supernatural apprehension affected by sense, or to allow anyone else to do so. 12. And that this may be the better understood, let us here set down a few examples. Let us suppose that a holy man is greatly afflicted because his enemies persecute him, and that God answers him, saying, I will deliver thee from all thine enemies. This prophecy may be very true, yet, notwithstanding, his enemies may succeed in prevailing, and he may die at their hands. And so, if a man should understand this after a temporal manner, he would be deceived, for God might be speaking of the true and principal liberty and victory, which is salvation, whereby the soul is delivered free and made victorious over all its enemies, and much more truly so, and in a higher sense, than if it were delivered from them here below. And thus this prophecy was much more true and comprehensive than the man could understand, if he interpreted it only with respect to this life. For when God speaks, his words are always to be taken in the sense which is most important and profitable, whereas man, according to his own way and purpose, may understand the less important sense, and thus may be deceived. This we see in that prophecy which David makes concerning Christ in the second psalm, saying, Thou shalt rule all the people with a rod of iron, and thou shalt dash them in pieces like a vessel of clay. Herein God speaks of the principal and perfect dominion, which is eternal dominion, and it was in this sense that it was fulfilled, and not in the less important sense, which was temporal, and which was not fulfilled in Christ during any part of his temporal life. 13. Let us take another example. A soul has great desires to be a martyr. It may happen that God answers him, saying, Thou shalt be a martyr. This will give him inwardly great comfort and confidence that he is to be martyred, Yet it may come to pass that he dies not the death of a martyr, and notwithstanding this the promise may be true. Why, then, is it not fulfilled literally? Because it will be fulfilled, and is capable of being fulfilled, according to the most important and essential sense of that saying, namely, in that God will have given that soul the love and the reward which belong essentially to a martyr, and thus in truth he gives to the soul that which it formerly desired and that which he promised it. For the formal desire of the soul was not that particular manner of death, but to do God a martyr's service, and to show its love for him as a martyr does. For that manner of death is of no worth in itself without this love, the which love and the showing forth thereof and the reward belonging to the martyr may be given to it more perfectly by other means. So that, though it may not die like a martyr, the soul is well satisfied that it has been given that which it sired. For, when they are born of living love, such desires and others like them, although they be not fulfilled in the way wherein they are described and understood, are fulfilled in another and a better way and in a way which honours God more greatly than that which they might have asked. Wherefore David says, The Lord has granted the poor their desire. And in the Proverbs divine wisdom says, The just shall be given their desire. 
Hence, then, since we see that many holy men have desired many particular things for God's sake, and that in this life their desires have not been granted them, it is a matter of faith that, as their desires were just and true, they have been fulfilled for them perfectly in the next life. Since this is truth, it would also be truth for God to promise it to them in this life, saying to them, Your desire shall be fulfilled, and for it not to be fulfilled in the way which they expected. 14. In this and other ways the words and visions of God may be true and sure, and yet we may be deceived by them, through being unable to interpret them in a high and important sense, which is the sense and purpose wherein God intends them. And thus the best and surest course is to train souls in prudence, so that they flee from these supernatural things by accustoming them, as we have said, to purity of spirit in dark faith, which is the means of union. Chapter 20 wherein is proved by passages from Scripture how the sayings and words of God, though always true, do not always rest upon stable causes. We have now to prove the second reason why visions and words which come from God, although in themselves they are always true, are not always stable in their relation to ourselves. This is because of their causes whereon they are founded. For God often makes statements founded upon creatures and their effects, which are changeable and liable to fail, for which reason these statements which are founded upon them are liable also to be changeable and to fail. For when one thing depends on another, if one fails, the other fails likewise. It is as though God should say, In a year's time I shall send upon this kingdom such or such a plague, and the cause and foundation for this warning is a certain offence which has been committed against God in that kingdom. If the offence should cease or change, the punishment might cease, yet the threat was true because it was founded upon the fault committed at the time, and if this had continued, it would have been carried out. 2. This, we see, happened in the city of Nineveh, where God said, Yet, Forty days, and Nineveh shall be destroyed. This was not fulfilled, because the cause of the threat ceased, namely the sins of the city, for which it did penance. But if this had not been so, the prophecy would have been carried into effect. We read likewise in the third book of the Kings that when King Echab had committed a very great sin, God sent to prophecy a great punishment. Our father, Elijah, being the messenger, which should come upon his purpose, upon his house, and upon his kingdom. And, because Echab rent his garments with grief, and clothed himself in haircloth and fasted, and slept in sackcloth, and went about in a humble and contrite manner, God sent again, by the same prophet, to declare to him these words, Inasmuch as Echab has humbled himself for love of me, I will not send the evil whereof I spake in his days, but in the days of his son. Here we see that because Echab changed his spirit and his former affection, God likewise changed his sentence. 3. From this we may deduce, as regards the matter under discussion, that although God may have revealed or affirmed something to a soul, 
whether good or evil, and whether relating to that soul itself or to others, this may, to a greater or a lesser extent, be changed or altered or entirely withdrawn according to the change or variation in the affection of this soul or the cause whereon God based his judgment, and thus it would not be fulfilled in the way expected, and oftentimes none would have known why save only God. For God is wont to declare and teach and promise many things, not that they may be understood or possessed at the time, but that they may be understood at a later time, when it is fitting that a soul may have light concerning them, or when their effect is attained. This, as we see, he did with his disciples, to whom he spake many parables, and pronounced many judgments, the wisdom whereof they understood not until the time when they had to preach it, which was when the Holy Spirit came upon them, of whom Christ had said to them that he would explain to them all the things that he had spoken to them in his life. And when St. John speaks of that entry of Christ into Jerusalem, he says, And thus there may pass through the soul many detailed messages from God, which neither the soul nor its director will understand until the proper time. Or, likewise, in the first book of the Kings, we read that when God was wroth against Heli, a priest of Israel, for his sins in not chastising his sons, he sent to him by Samuel to say, among other words, these which follow. In very truth I said aforetime that thy house and the house of thy father should serve me continually in the priesthood in my presence for ever, but this purpose is far from me. I will not do this thing. For this office of the priesthood was founded for giving honour and glory to God, and to this end God has promised to give it to the father of Heli for ever if he failed not. But when Heli failed in zeal for the honour of God, for, as God himself complained when he sent him the message, he honoured his sons more than God, overlooking their sins so as not to offend them, the promise also failed, which would have held good for ever if the good service and zeal of Heli had lasted for ever. And thus there is no reason to think that, because sayings and revelations come from God, they must invariably come to pass in their apparent sense, especially when they are bound up with human causes, which may vary, change, or alter. 5. And when they are dependent upon these causes God himself knows, though he does not always declare it, but pronounces the saying, or makes the revelation, and sometimes says nothing of the condition, as when he definitely told the Ninevites that they would be destroyed after forty days, at other times he lays down the condition, as he did to Reboam, saying to him, If thou wilt keep my commandments as my servant David, I will be with thee even as I was with him, and will set thee up a house as I did to my servant David. But whether he declares it or no, the soul must not rely upon its own understanding, for it is impossible to understand the hidden truths of God which are in his sayings, and the multitude of their meanings. He is above the heavens, and speaks according to the way of eternity. We blind souls are upon the earth, and understand only the ways of flesh and time. It was for that reason, I believe, that the wise man said, God is in heaven, and thou art upon earth. 
Wherefore, be not thou lengthy or hasty in speaking. 6. You will perhaps ask me, why, if we are not to understand these things, or to play any part in them, does God communicate them to us? I have already said that everything will be understood in its own time by the command of him who spake it, and he whom God wills shall understand it, and it will be seen that it was fitting. For God does not save with due cause and in truth. Let it be realized, therefore, that there is no complete understanding of the meaning of the sayings and things of God, and that this meaning cannot be decided by what it seems to be without great error, and, in the end, grievous confusion. This was very well known to the prophets into whose hands was given the word of God, and who found it a sore trial to prophesy concerning the people. For as we have said, many of the people saw that things came not to pass literally, as they were told them, for which cause they laughed at the prophets and mocked them greatly, so much that Jeremiah went as far as to say, They mock me all the day long, they scorn and despise me every one, for I have long been crying against evil and promising them destruction, and the word of the Lord has been made a reproach and a derision to me continually. And I said, I must not remember him, neither speak any more in his name. Herein, although the holy prophet was speaking with resignation and in the form of a weak man who cannot endure the ways and workings of God, he clearly indicates the difference between the way wherein the divine sayings are fulfilled and the ordinary meaning which they appear to have. For the divine prophets were treated as mockers, and suffered so much from their prophecy that Jeremiah himself said elsewhere, Prophecy has become to us fear and snares and contradiction of spirit. 7. And the reason why Jonas fled when God sent him to preach the destruction of Nineveh was this, namely, that he knew the different meanings of the sayings of God with respect to the understanding of men and with respect to the causes of the sayings, and thus, lest they should mock him when they saw that his prophecy was not fulfilled, he went away and lied in order not to prophesy, and thus he remained waiting all the forty days outside the city to see if his prophecy was fulfilled, and when it was not fulfilled he was greatly afflicted, so much so that he said to God, I pray thee, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my own country? Therefore was I vexed, and fled away to Tharsis, and the saint was wroth, and besought God to take away his life. 8. Why, then, must we marvel that God should speak and reveal certain things to souls which come not to pass in the sense wherein they understand them? For if God should affirm or represent such or such a thing to the soul, whether good or evil, with respect to itself or to another, and if that thing be founded upon a certain affection or service or offence of that soul or of another at that time, with respect to God, so that if the soul persevere therein, it will be fulfilled. Yet even then its fulfilment is not certain, since it is not certain that the soul will persevere. Wherefore we must rely not upon understanding, but upon faith. Chapter 21 
wherein is explained how at times, although God answers the prayers that are addressed to Him, He is not pleased that we should use such methods. It is also shown how, although He condescend to us and answer us, He is oftentimes wroth. Certain spiritual men, as we have said, assure themselves that it is a good thing to display curiosity, as they sometimes do, in striving to know certain things by supernatural methods, thinking that, because God occasionally answers their importunity, this is a good method and pleasing to Him. Yet the truth is that, although He may answer them, the method is not good, neither is it pleasing to God, but rather it is displeasing to Him, and not only so, but oftentimes He is greatly offended and wroth. The reason for this is that it is lawful for no creature to pass beyond the limits that God has ordained for its governance after the order of nature. He has laid down rational and natural limits for man's governance. Wherefore, to desire to pass beyond them is not lawful, and to desire to seek out and attain to anything by supernatural means is to go beyond these natural limits. It is therefore an unlawful thing, and it is therefore not pleasing to God, for he is offended by all that is unlawful. King Echaz was well aware of this, since although Isaiah told him from God to ask for a sign, he would not do so, saying, I will not ask such a thing, neither will I tempt God. For it is tempting God to seek to commune with him by extraordinary ways, such as those that are supernatural. 2. But why, you will say, if it be a fact that God is displeased, does he sometimes answer? I reply that it is sometimes the devil who answers, and if it is God who answers, I reply that he does so because of the weakness of the soul that desires to travel along that road, lest it should be disconsolate and go backward, or lest it should think that God is wroth with it and should be overmuch afflicted, or for other reasons known to God, founded upon the weakness of that soul, whereby God sees that it is well that he should answer it and deigns to do so in that way. In a like manner, too, does he treat many weak and tender souls, granting them favours and sweetness in sensible converse with himself, as has been said above. This is not because he desires or is pleased that they should commune with him after that manner or by these methods. It is that he gives to each one, as we have said, after the manner best suited to him. For God is like a spring, whence every one draws water according to the vessel which he carries. Sometimes a soul is allowed to draw it by these extraordinary channels, but it follows not from this that it is lawful to draw water by them, but only that God himself can permit this, when, how, and to whom he wills, and for what reason he wills, without the party concerned having any right in the matter. And thus, as we say, he sometimes deigns to satisfy the desire and the prayer of certain souls, whom, since they are good and sincere, he wills not to fail to succour, lest he should make them sad. But it is not because he is pleased with their methods that he wills it. This will be the better understood by the following comparison. 3. The father of a family has on his table many and different kinds of food, some of which are better than others. A child is asking him for a certain dish, not the best, but the first that meets its eye. 
and it asks for this dish because it would rather eat of it than any other. And as the father sees that, even if he gives it the better kind of food, it will not take it, but will have that which it asks for, since that alone pleases it. He gives it that, regretfully, lest it should take no food at all and be miserable. In just this way, we observe, did God treat the children of Israel when they asked him for a king. He gave them one, but unwillingly, because it was not good for them. And thus he said to Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of this people, and grant them the king whom they ask of thee, for they have not rejected thee but me, that I should not reign over them. In this same way God condescends to certain souls, and grants them that which is not best for them, because they will not or cannot walk by any other road. And thus certain souls attain to tenderness and sweetness of spirit or sense, and God grants them this because they are unable to partake of the stronger and more solid food of the trials of the cross of his Son, which he would prefer them to take rather than aught else. 4. I consider, however, that the desire to know things by supernatural means is much worse than the desire for other spiritual favours pertaining to the senses, for I cannot see how the soul that desires them can fail to commit at the least venial sin, however good may be its aims, and however far advanced it may be on the road to perfection. And if any one should bid the soul desire them and consent to it, he sins likewise. For there is no necessity for any of these things, since the soul has its natural reason and the doctrine and law of the gospel, which are quite sufficient for its guidance, and there is no difficulty or necessity that cannot be solved and remedied by these means, which are very pleasing to God and of great profit to souls. And such great use must we make of our reason and of gospel doctrine, that if certain things be told us supernaturally, whether at our desire or no, we must receive only that which is in clear conformity with reason and gospel law. And then we must receive it, not because it is revelation, but because it is reason, and not allow ourselves to be influenced by the fact that it has been revealed. Indeed, it is well in such a case to look at that reason and examine it very much more closely than if there had been no revelation concerning it, inasmuch as the devil utters many things that are true and that will come to pass, and that are in conformity with reason, in order that he may deceive. 5. Wherefore, in all our needs, trials, and difficulties, there remains to us no better and surer means than prayer and hope that God will provide for us by such means as He wills. This is the advice given to us in the Scriptures, where we read that when King Jehoshaphat was greatly afflicted and surrounded by enemies, the saintly king gave himself to prayer, saying to God, when means fail and reason is unable to succor us in our necessities, it remains for us only to lift up our eyes to Thee, that Thou mayest succor us as is most pleasing to Thee. 6. And further, although this has also been made clear, it will be well to prove from certain passages of Scripture that though God may answer such requests, He is nonetheless sometimes wroth. In the first book of the Kings, it is said that when King Saul begged that the prophet Samuel, who was now dead, might speak to him, 
the said prophet appeared to him, and that God was wroth with all this, since Samuel at once reproved Saul for having done such a thing, saying, Why hast thou disquieted me in causing me to arise? We also know that, in spite of having answered the children of Israel, and given them the meat that they besought of him, God was nevertheless greatly incensed against them, for he sent fire from heaven upon them as punishment, as we read in the Pentateuch, and as David relates in these words, Even as they had the morsels in their mouths, the wrath of God came down upon them. And likewise we read in Numbers that God was greatly wroth with Balaam the prophet, because he went to the Midianites when Balak their king sent for him, although God had bidden him go, because he desired to go and had begged it of God. And while he was yet in the way, there appeared to him an angel with a sword, who desired to slay him, and said to him, Thy way is perverse and contrary to me, for which cause he desired to slay him. 7. After this manner and many others God deigns to satisfy the desires of souls, though he be wroth with them. Concerning this we have many testimonies in Scripture, and in addition many illustrations, though in a matter that is so clear these are unnecessary. I will merely say that to desire to commune with God by such means is a most perilous thing, more so than I can express, and that one who is affection to such methods will not fail to err greatly and will often find himself in confusion. Anyone who in the past has prized them will understand me from his own experience. For over and above the difficulty that there is in being sure that one is not going astray in respect of locutions and visions which are of God, there are ordinarily many of these locutions and visions which are of the devil. For in his converse with the soul, the devil habitually wears the same guise as God assumes in his dealings with it, setting before it things that are very like to those which God communicates to it, insinuating himself like the wolf in sheep's clothing among the flock, with a success so nearly complete that he can hardly be recognized. For since he says many things that are true and in conformity with reason, and things that come to pass as he describes them, it is very easy for the soul to be deceived, and to think that, since these things come to pass, as he says, and the future is correctly foretold, this can be the work of none save God. For such souls know not that it is a very easy thing for one that has clear natural light to be acquainted, as to their causes, with things, or with many of them, which have been or shall be. And since the devil has a very clear light of this kind, he can very easily deduce effect from cause, although it may not always turn out as he says, because all causes depend upon the will of God. Let us take an example. 8. The devil knows that the constitution of the earth and the atmosphere, and the laws ruling the sun, are disposed in such manner and in such degree that, when a certain moment has arrived, it will necessarily follow, according to the laws of nature laid down for these elements, that they will infect people with pestilence, and he knows in what places this will be more severe, and in what places less so. Here you have a knowledge of pestilence in respect of its causes. What a wonderful thing it seems when the devil reveals this to a soul, saying, 
in a year or in six months from now there will be pestilence, and it happens as he says. And yet this is a prophecy of the devil. In the same way he may have a knowledge of earthquakes, and seeing that the bowels of the earth are filling with air will say, At such a time there will be an earthquake. Yet this is only natural knowledge, for the possession of which it suffices for the spirit to be free from the passions of the soul. Even as Boetius says in these words, If thou desire to know truths with the clearness of nature, cast from thee rejoicing and fear and hope and sorrow. 9. And likewise supernatural events and happenings may be known in their causes, in matters concerning divine providence, which deals most justly and surely as is required by their good or evil causes as regards the sons of men. For one may know by natural means that such or such a person, or such or such a city, or some other place, is in such or such necessity, or has reached such or such a point, so that God, according to his providence and justice, must deal with such a person or thing in the way required by its cause, and in the way that is fitting for it, whether by means of punishment or of reward, as the cause merits. And then one can say, At such a time God will give you this, or will do this, or that will come to pass of a surety. It was this that Holy Judith said to Holofernes when, in order to persuade him that the children of Israel would without fail be destroyed, she first related to him many of their sins and the evil deeds that they did, and then she said, Since they do these things, it is certain that they will be destroyed. This is to know the punishment in the cause, and it is as though she had said, It is certain that such sins must be the cause of such punishments, at the hand of God who is most just. And, as the divine wisdom says, With respect to that and for that wherein a man sins, therein is he punished. 10. The devil may have knowledge of this, not only naturally, but also by the experience which he has of having seen God do similar things, and he can foretell it and do so correctly. Again, holy Tobias was aware of the punishment of the city of Nineveh because of its cause, and he thus admonished his son, saying, Behold, son, in the hour when I and thy mother die, go thou forth from this land, for it will not remain." I see clearly that its own iniquity will be the cause of its punishment, which will be that it shall be ended and destroyed altogether. This might have been known by the devil as well as by Tobias, not only because of the iniquity of the city, but by experience, since they had seen that for the sins of the world God destroyed it in the flood, and that the Sodomites too perished for their sins by fire, but Tobias knew it also through the divine spirit. 11. And the devil may know that one Peter cannot, in the course of nature, live more than so many years, and he may foretell this, and so with regard to many other things, and in many ways that it is impossible to recount fully. Nor can one even begin to recount many of them, since they are most intricate and subtle. He insinuates falsehoods, from which a soul cannot free itself save by fleeing from all revelations and visions and locutions that are supernatural. 
wherefore God is justly angered with those that receive them, for he sees that it is temerity on their part to expose themselves to such great peril and presumption and curiosity, and things that spring from pride, and are the root and foundation of vainglory, and of disdain for the things of God, and the beginning of many evils to which many have come. Such persons have succeeded in angering God so greatly that he has of set purpose allowed them to go astray and be deceived, and to blind their own spirits, and to leave the ordered paths of life, and give rein to their vanities and fancies, according to the words of Isaiah, where he says, The Lord hath mingled in the midst thereof the spirit of dissension and confusion, which in our ordinary vernacular signifies the spirit of misunderstanding. What Isaiah is here very plainly saying is to our purpose, for he is speaking of those who were endeavouring by supernatural means to know things that were to come to pass. And therefore he says that God mingled in their midst the spirit of misunderstanding, not that God willed them, in fact, to have the spirit of error, or gave it to them, but that they desired to meddle with that to which by nature they could not attain. Angered by this, God allowed them to act foolishly, giving them no light as to that wherewith he desired not that they should concern themselves. And thus the prophet says that God mingled that spirit in them, privately, and in this sense God is the cause of such an evil, that is to say, he is the privative cause, which consists in his withdrawal of his light and favour, to such a point that they must needs fall into error. 12. And in this way God gives leave to the devil to blind and deceive many, when their sins and audacities merit it, and this the devil can do and does successfully, and they give him credence and believe him to be a good spirit, to such a point that, although they may be quite persuaded that he is not so, they cannot undeceive themselves, since, by the permission of God, there has already been insinuated into them the spirit of misunderstanding. Even as we read was the case with the prophets of King Echab, whom God permitted to be deceived by a lying spirit, giving the devil leave to deceive them, and saying, Thou shalt prevail with thy falsehood, and shalt deceive them, go forth and do so. And so well was he able to work upon the prophets and the king, in order to deceive them, that they would not believe the prophet Micah, who prophesied the truth to them, saying the exact contrary of that which the others had prophesied, and this came to pass because God permitted them to be blinded, since their affections were attached to that which they desired to happen to them, and God answered them according to their desires and wishes. And this was a most certain preparation and means for their being blinded and deceived, which God allowed of set purpose. 13. Thus, too, did Ezekiel prophesy in the name of God, speaking against those who began to desire to have knowledge direct from God, from motives of curiosity, according to the vanity of their spirit, he says, When such a man comes to the prophet to inquire of me through him, I, the Lord, will answer him by myself, and I will set my face in anger against that man, and as to the prophet, when he has gone astray in that which was asked of him, I, the Lord, have deceived that prophet. 
this is to be taken to mean by not succoring him with his favor so that he might not be deceived. And this is his meaning when he says, I, the Lord, will answer him by myself in anger. That is, God will withdraw his grace and favor from that man. Hence, necessarily follows deception by reason of his abandonment by God. And then comes the devil and makes answer according to the pleasure and desire of that man, who, being pleased thereat, since the answers and communications are according to his will, allows himself to be deceived greatly. 14. It may appear that we have to some extent strayed from the purpose that we set down in the title of this chapter, which was to prove that, although God answers, he sometimes complains. But if it be carefully considered, all that has been said goes to prove or intention, for it all shows that God desires not that we should wish for such visions, since he makes it possible for us to be deceived by them in so many ways. Chapter 22 Wherein is solved the difficulty, namely, why it is not lawful under the law of grace to ask anything of God by supernatural means, as it was under the old law. This solution is proved by a passage from St. Paul. Difficulties keep coming to our mind, and thus we cannot progress with the speed that we should desire, for as they occur to us, we are obliged of necessity to clear them up, so that the truth of this teaching may ever be plain and carry its full force. But there is always this advantage in these difficulties, that, although they somewhat impede our progress, they serve nevertheless to make our intention the clearer and more explicit, as will be the case with the present one. 2. In the previous chapter, we said that it is not the will of God that souls should desire to receive anything distinctly by supernatural means, through visions, locutions, etc. Further, we saw in the same chapter, and deduced from the testimonies which were there brought forward from Scripture, that such communion with God was employed in the old law and was lawful, and that not only was it lawful, but God commanded it. And when they used not this opportunity, God reproved them, as is to be seen in Isaiah, where God reproves the children of Israel because they desire to go down to Egypt without first inquiring of him, saying, Ye asked not first at my own mouth what was fitting. And likewise we read in Joshua that when the children of Israel themselves are deceived by the Gabionites, the Holy Spirit reproves them for this fault, saying, They took of their victuals, and they inquired not at the mouth of God. Furthermore, we see in the divine scripture that Moses always inquired of God, as did King David and all the kings of Israel, with regard to their wars and necessities, and the priests and prophets of old, and God answered and spake with them, and was not wroth, and it was well done, and if they did it not, it would be ill done, and this is the truth. Why then in the new law, the law of grace, may it not now be as it was aforetime? 3. To this it must be replied that the principal reason why in the law of Scripture the inquiries that were made of God were lawful, and why it was fitting that prophets and priests should seek visions and revelations of God, was because at that time faith had no firm foundation, 
neither was the law of the gospel established, and thus it was needful that men should inquire of God, and that he should speak, whether by words, or by visions and revelations, or whether by figures and similitudes, or by many other ways of expressing his meaning. For all that he answered and spake and revealed belonged to the mysteries of our faith, and things touching it or leading to it. And since the things of faith are not of man, but come from the mouth of God himself, God himself reproved them, because they inquired not at his mouth in their affairs, so that he might answer, and might direct their affairs and happenings toward the faith, of which at that time they had no knowledge, because it was not yet founded. But now that the faith is founded in Christ, and in this era of grace, the law of the gospel has been made manifest— there is no reason to inquire of him in that manner, nor for him to speak or to answer as he did then. For in giving us, as he did, his Son, which is his word, and he has no other, he spake to us all together, once and for all, in this single word, and he has no occasion to speak further. For, and this is the sense of that passage with which St. Paul begins when he tries to persuade the Hebrews that they should abandon those first manners and ways of converse with God which are in the law of Moses, and should set their eyes on Christ alone, saying, That which God spake of old in the prophets to our fathers in sundry ways and divers manners, he has now at last in these days spoken to us once and for all in the Son. Herein the Apostle declares that God has become as it were dumb, and has no more to say, since that which he spake aforetime, in part to the prophets, he has now spoken altogether in him, giving us the all, which is his Son. 5. Wherefore he that would now inquire of God, or seek any vision or revelation, would not only be acting foolishly, but would be committing an offence against God by not setting his eyes altogether upon Christ, and seeking no new thing or aught beside. And God might answer him after this manner, saying, If I have spoken all things to thee in my word, which is my Son, and I have no other word, what answer can I now make to thee, or what can I reveal to thee which is greater than this? Set thine eyes on him alone, for in him I have spoken and revealed to thee all things, and in him thou shalt find yet more than that which thou askest and desirest. For thou askest locutions and revelations which are the part, but if thou set thine eyes upon him, thou shalt find the whole, for he is my complete locution and answer, and he is all my vision and all my revelation, so that I have spoken to thee, answered thee, declared to thee, and revealed to thee, in giving him to thee as thy brother, companion, and master, as ransom and prize. For since that day when I descended upon him with my spirit on Mount Tabor, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, hear ye him, I have left off all these manners of teaching and answering, and I have entrusted this to him. Hear him, for I have no more faith to reveal, neither have I any more things to declare. For if I spake aforetime, it was to promise Christ, 
and if they inquired of me, their inquiries were directed to petitions for Christ and expectancy concerning Him, in whom they should find every good thing, as is now set forth in all the teaching of the evangelists and the apostles. But now, any who would inquire of me after that manner and desire me to speak to him or reveal aught to him would, in a sense, be asking me for Christ again and asking me for more faith and be lacking in faith, which has already been given in Christ. And therefore he would be committing a great offence against my beloved Son. For not only would he be lacking in faith, but he would be obliging him again, first of all, to become incarnate and pass through life and death. Thou shalt find naught to ask me or to desire of me, whether revelations or visions. Consider this well, for thou shalt find that all has been done for thee and all has been given to thee, yea, and much more also in him.